Chapter 124 Of Names You, Vashat said as we walked through the hills, are one great gaudy showboating bastard, you know that? I inclined my head slightly to her, gracefully gesturing subordinate acceptance. She cuffed me on the side of the head. Get over yourself, you melodramatic ass. You can fool them, but not me. Vachette held her hand to her chest as if gossiping. Did you hear what Quoth brought back from the sword tree? The things a barbarian cannot understand. Silence and stillness. The heart of Edemre. What did he offer to Shayan? Willingness to bleed for the school. She looked at me, her expression trapped between disgust and amusement. Seriously, it's like you stepped out of a storybook. I gestured. Gracious, flattering, understated, affectionate acceptance. Bachette reached out and flicked my ear hard with a finger. Ow! I burst out laughing. Fine! But don't you dare accuse me of melodrama. You people are one great unending dramatic gesture. The quiet, the blood-red clothes, the hidden language, secrets and mysteries. It's like your lives are one giant dumb show. I met her eye. And I do mean that in all its various clever implications. Well, you impressed Shayan she said, which is the most important thing. And you did it in such a way that the heads of the other schools won't be able to grumble too much, which is the other most important thing. We reached our destination, a low building of three rooms next to a small split-timber goat pen. Here is the one who will tend to your hand, she said. What of the apothecary? I asked. The apothecary is close friends with Carceret's mother, Bachette said, and I would not have her looking after your hands for a weight of gold. She nodded her head at the nearby house. Dalen, on the other hand, is who I would come to if I needed mending. She knocked on the door. You may be a member of the school, but do not forget that I am still your teacher. In all things, I know what is best. Later, my hand tightly bandaged, Bachette and I sat with Shayan. We were in a room I'd never seen before, smaller than the rooms where we had discussed the Lathani. There was a small, messy writing desk, some flowers in a vase, and several comfortably cushioned chairs. Along one wall was a picture of three birds in flight against a sunset sky, not painted, but composed of thousands of pieces of bright enameled tile. I suspected we might be in the equivalent of Shayan's study. How is your hand? Shayan said. Fine, I said. It is a shallow cut. Dalen has the smallest stitches I have ever seen. He is quite remarkable. She nodded. Approval. I held up my left hand, wrapped in clean white linen. The hard part will be keeping this hand idle for four days. I already feel as if it were my tongue that were cut, and not my hand. Shayan gave a slight smile at this, startling me. The familiarity of the expression was a great compliment. You performed quite well today. Everyone is speaking of it. I expect a few that saw have better things to speak about, I said modestly. Amused disbelief. That may be true, but those who watched from hiding will doubtless say what they have seen. Celian herself will have already told a hundred people unless I miss my guess. 
By tomorrow, everyone will expect your stride to shake the ground as if you were Aeth himself come back to visit us. I couldn't think of anything to say, so I kept quiet. A rarity for me. But as I've said, I had been learning. There is something I have been waiting to speak to you about, Shane said, guarded curiosity. After Tempe brought you here, he told me the long story of your time together, she said, of your search for the bandits. I nodded. Is it true that you made blood magic to destroy some men, then called lightning to destroy the rest? Bachette looked up at this, glancing back and forth between us. I'd grown so used to speaking a turin with her that it was odd to see the expressionless Adam impassivity covering her face. Still, I could tell she was surprised. She hadn't known. I thought of trying to offer an explanation for my actions, then decided against it. Yes. You are powerful, then. I had never thought of it in those terms before. I have some power. Others are more powerful. Is that why you seek the K-10? To gain power? No. I seek from curiosity. I seek the knowing of things. Knowing is a type of power, Shane pointed out, then seemed to change the subject. Tempe told me there was a Rinta among the bandits as their leader. Rinta? I asked respectfully. A bad thing. A man who is more than a man, yet less than a man. A demon? I asked, using the Aeturan word without thinking. Not a demon, Shane said, switching easily to Aeturan. There are no such things as demons. Your priests tell stories of demons to frighten you. She met my eye briefly, gesturing a graceful, apologetic honesty and serious import. But there are bad things in the world, old things in the shape of men, and there are a handful worse than all the rest. They walk the world freely and do terrible things. I felt hope rising within me. I have also heard them called the Chandrian, I said. Shayan nodded. I have heard this too, but Rinta is a better word. Shayan gave me a long look and fell back into Ademic. Given what Tempe has told me of your reaction, I think that you have met such a one before. Yes. Will you meet such a one again? Yes. The certainty in my own voice surprised me. With purpose? Yes. What purpose? To kill him. Such things are not easily killed. I nodded. Will you use what Tempe has taught you to do this? I will use all things to that purpose. I unconsciously began to gesture absolute, but the bandage on my hand stopped me. I frowned at it. That is good, Shane said. Your Katan will not be enough. It is poor for one as old as you are. Good for a barbarian. Good for one with as little training as you have had, but still poor overall. I fought hard to keep the eagerness out of my voice. 
wishing I could use my hand to indicate how important the question was to me. Cheyenne, I have a great desire to know more of these Rinta. Cheyenne was quiet for a long moment. I will consider this, she said at last, making a gesture I thought might be trepidation. Such things are not spoken of lightly. I kept my face impassive and forced my bandaged hand to say profound respectful desire. I thank you for considering it, Cheyenne. Anything you could tell me of them I would value more than a weight of gold. Bachette gestured, firm discomfort, then polite desire, difference. Two span ago, I couldn't have understood, but now I realized she wanted to move the conversation onto a different subject. So I bit my tongue and let it go. I knew enough about the ADEM by this point to realize that pushing the issue was the worst thing to do if I wanted to learn more. In the Commonwealth, I could have pressed the point, teased and wheedled it out of the person I was talking to. That wouldn't work here. Stillness and silence were the only things that would work. I had to be patient and let Shane return to the subject in her own time. I was saying, Shane continued, reluctant confession, your Ketan is poor, but were you to train yourself in proper fashion for a year, you would be Tempe's equal. You flatter me. I do not. I tell you your weakness. You learn quickly. That leads to rash behavior, and rashness is not of the Lethani. Vachette is not alone in thinking there is something troubling about your spirit. Cheyenne gave me a long look. For over a minute she stared at me. Then she gave an eloquent shrug and glanced at Vachette, favoring the younger woman with a ghost of a smile. Still, whimsical musing, if I have ever met someone without a single shadow on their heart, it was surely a child too young for speaking. She pushed herself out of her chair and brushed off her shirt with both hands. Come, let us go and have a name for you. Cheyenne led the three of us up the side of a steep, rocky hill. None of us had spoken since we had left the school. I didn't know what was about to happen, but it didn't seem proper to ask. It would have seemed irreverent, like a groom blurting out, What comes next? halfway through his own wedding. We came to a grassy ledge with a leaning tree clutching tight to the bare face of a cliff. Beside the tree was a thick wooden door, one of the hidden Adam homes. Cheyenne knocked and opened the door herself. Inside, it wasn't cave-like at all. The stone walls were finished, and the floor was smooth wood. It was much larger than I'd expected, too, with a high ceiling and six doors leading deeper into the stone of the cliff. A woman sat at a low table, copying something from one book into another. Her hair was white, her face wrinkled as an old apple. It occurred to me, then, that this was the first person I'd seen reading or writing in all my time in Hert. The old woman nodded a greeting at Shane, then turned to Vachette, and her eyes crinkled around the edges. Gladness. Vachette, she said. I did not know you were returned. We are come for a name, Magwin, Shane said, polite formal entreaty. 
A name? Magwin asked, puzzled. She looked from Cheyenne to Vachette, then her eyes moved to where I stood behind them, to my bright red hair and my bandaged hand. Ah, she said, growing suddenly somber. Magwin closed her books and came to her feet. Her back was bent, and she took small, shuffling steps. She motioned me forward and walked a slow circle around me, looking me carefully up and down. She avoided looking at my face, but took hold of my unbandaged hand, turning it over to look at the palm and the fingertips. I would hear you say something, she said, still looking intently at my hand. As you will, honored shaper of names, I said. Magwin looked up at Shayan. Does he mock me? I think not. Magwin made another circle of me, running her hands over my shoulders, my arms, the back of my neck. She moved her fingers through my hair, then stopped in front of me and looked me fully in the eye. Her eyes were like Elodin's, not in any of the details. Elodin's eyes were green, sharp, and mocking. Magwin's were the familiar Adam gray, slightly watery and red around the edges. No, the similarity was in how she looked at me. Elodin was the only other person I had met who could look at you like that, as if you were a book he was idly thumbing through. When Magwin met my eyes for the first time, I felt like all the air had been sucked out of me. For the barest of moments, I thought she might be startled by what she saw, but that was probably just my anxiety. I had come to the edge of disaster too often lately, and despite how well my recent test had gone, part of me was still waiting for the other shoe to drop. Maidra, she said, her eyes still fixed on mine. She looked down and made her way back to her book. Maidra, Vachette said, a hint of dismay in her voice. She might have said more, but Shane reached out and cuffed her sharply on the side of the head. It was exactly the same motion Vachette had used to chastise me a thousand times in the last month. I couldn't help myself. I laughed. Vachette and Shane glared at me. Actually glared. Magwin turned to look at me. She didn't seem upset. Do you laugh at the name I have given you? Never, Magwin, I said, trying my best to gesture respect with my bandaged hand. Names are important things. She continued to eye me. And what would a barbarian know of names? Some, I said, fumbling with my bandaged hand again. I couldn't add fine shades of meaning to my words without it. Far away, I have made a study of such things. I know more than many, but still only just a little. Magwin looked at me for a long time. Then you will know you should not speak of your new name to anyone, she said. It is a private thing, and dangerous to share. I nodded. Magwin looked satisfied at this and settled back onto her chair, opening a book. Vachette, my little rabbit, you should come and visit me soon. Gentle chiding fondness. I will, grandmother, Vachette said. Thank you, Magwin, Shayan said, deferential gratitude. 
The old woman nodded a distracted dismissal, and Shane led us from the cave. Later that evening, I walked back to Vashat's house. She was sitting on the bench out front, watching the sky as the sun began to set. She tapped the bench beside her, and I took a seat. How does it feel to no longer be a barbarian? she asked. Mostly the same, I said. Slightly drunker. After dinner, Pentha had pulled me away to her house, where there was a party of sorts. Call it a gathering, rather, as there was no music or dancing. Still, I was flattered that Pentha had gone to the effort of finding five other ADEM who were willing to celebrate my admittance to the school. I was pleased to learn the ADEM impassivity dissolved quite easily after a few drinks, and we were all grinning like barbarians in no time. It relaxed me, especially as much of my own clumsiness with the language could now be blamed on my bandaged hand. Earlier today, I said carefully, Shane said she knew a story about the Rinta. Vachette turned to look at me, her face expressionless, hesitant. I have searched all over the world for such a thing, I said. There are few things I would value more. Utter sincerity. And I worry that I did a poor job of letting Shane know this. Questioning. Intense entreaty. Bachette looked at me for a moment, as if waiting for me to continue. Then she gestured reluctance. I will mention it to her, she said. Reassurance. Finished. I nodded and let the subject drop. Vachette and I sat for a while in companionable silence as the sun slowly sank into the horizon. She drew a deep breath and sighed expansively. I realized that, with the exception of waiting for me to catch my breath or recover from a fall, we had never done anything like this before. Up until this point, every moment we had spent together had been focused on my training. Tonight, I said at last, Pentha told me she thought I had a fine anger and that she'd like to share it with me. Bachette chuckled. That didn't take very long. She gave me a knowing look. What happened? I blushed a bit. Ah, uh, she reminded me the ADEM do not consider physical contact particularly intimate. Bachette's smile grew practically lecherous. Grabbed hold of you, did she? Almost, I said. I move more quickly than I did a month ago. I doubt you move quickly enough to keep away from Panther, Bashat said. All she is looking for is sex play. There is no harm in it. That is why I was asking you, I said slowly, to see if there was any harm in it. Bashat raised an eyebrow, at the same time gesturing vague puzzlement. Panther is quite lovely. I said carefully. However, you and I have... I looked for an appropriate term. Been intimate. Realization washed over Vashat's face, and she laughed again. What you mean is that we have been sexual. The intimacy between a teacher and student is greater by far than that. Ah, I said, relaxing. I'd suspected something of the sort, but... It's nice to know for certain. Bachette shook her head. I had forgotten what it is like with you barbarians, she said, 
her voice heavy with fond indulgence. It has been so many years since I had to explain such things to my poet king. So you would not be offended if I were to... I made an inarticulate gesture with my bandaged hand. You are young and energetic, she said. It is a healthy thing for you to do. Why would I be offended? Do I suddenly own your sex? That I should be worried about you giving it away? Bachette stopped, as if something had just occurred to her. She turned to look at me. Are you offended that I have been having sex with others all this while? She watched my face intently. I see you are startled by it. I am startled, I admitted. Then I did a mental inventory and was surprised to discover I wasn't sure how I felt. I feel I ought to be offended, I said at last, but I don't think I am. Bachette nodded approvingly. That is a good sign. It shows you are becoming civilized. The other feeling is what you were brought up to think. It is like an old shirt that no longer fits you, and now, when you look at it closely, you can see it was ugly to begin with. I hesitated for a moment. Out of curiosity, I said, how many others have you been with since we have been together? Bachette seemed surprised by the question. She pursed her mouth and looked up at the sky for a long moment before shrugging. How many people have I spoken with since then? How many have I sparred with? How many times have I eaten or practiced my ketan? Who counts such things? And most Adam think this way? I asked, glad to finally have the chance to ask these questions. That sex is not an intimate thing? Of course it is intimate, Vashat said. Anything that brings two people close together is intimate. A conversation, a kiss, a whisper. Even fighting is intimate. But we are not strange about our sex. We do not feel shame about it. We do not feel it important to keep someone else's sex all to ourselves, like a miser hoarding gold. She shook her head. More than any other, this strangeness in your thinking sets you barbarians apart. But what of romance, then? I asked, slightly indignant. What of love? Vachette laughed again, then, loud and long and vastly amused. Half of Hairt must have heard it, and it echoed back to us from the distant hills. You barbarians, she said, wiping moisture from her eyes. I had forgotten how backward you are. My poet king was the same way. It took him a long, miserable time before he realized the truth of things. There is a great deal of difference between a penis and a heart. Chapter 125 Sasura the next day I woke somewhat blearily. I hadn't drunk that much, but my body was no longer used to such things. And so I felt each drink three times that morning. I straggled to the baths, dunked myself in the hottest pool I could stand, then scrubbed the vaguely gritty feeling away as best I could. I was heading back to the dining hall when Vachette and Cheyenne found me in the hallway. Vachette gestured for me to follow, and I fell in step behind them. I hardly felt up for training or a formal conversation, but refusing didn't seem like a realistic option. 
We wound our way through several hallways, eventually emerging near the center of the school. Passing through a courtyard, we approached a small square building that Shane unlocked with a small iron key, the first locked door I had seen in all of Hert. The three of us moved into a small windowless entryway. Bachette closed the outside door, and the room grew black as pitch, cutting off the sound of the persistent wind. Then, Shane opened the inner door. Warm light from a half-dozen candles greeted us. At first, it seemed odd they had been left to burn in an empty room. Then, I saw what hung on the walls. Swords gleamed in the candlelight, dozens of them covering the walls. They were all of them naked, their scabbards hanging underneath them. There were no ritual trappings of the sort you might find in a Talon church. No tapestries or paintings, just the swords themselves. Still, it was obvious that this was an important place. There was a tension in the air of the sort you might feel in the archives or an old graveyard. Cheyenne turned to Vachette. Choose. Vachette looked startled by this, almost stricken. She started to make a gesture, but Cheyenne held up a hand before she could protest. He is your student, Cheyenne said. Refusal. You have brought him into the school. It is your choice. Vachette looked from Cheyenne to me, to the dozens of gleaming swords. They were all slender and deadly, each subtly different from the others. Some were curved, some longer or thicker than others. Some showed signs of much use, while some few resembled Vachette's, with worn hilts and unmarked blades of gray burnished metal. Slowly, Vachette moved to the right-hand wall. She picked up a sword, hefted it, and put it back. Then she lifted a different one, gripped it, and held it out to me. I took hold of it. It was light and thin as a whisper. Maiden combs her hair, Vachette said. I obeyed, feeling somewhat self-conscious as Cheyenne was watching. But before I made it halfway through the sweeping movement, Vachette was already shaking her head. She took the sword back from me and returned it to the wall. After another minute, she handed me a second sword. It had worn etching running down the blade like a crawling ivy. At Vachette's request, I made Heron falling. I swept high and lunged low, sword flickering. Vachette raised an eyebrow to me, questioning. I shook my head. The point is too heavy for me. Vachette didn't seem particularly surprised and returned that sword to the wall as well. So things continued. Vachette hefted swords and rejected most without a word. She set three more in my hands, asked for various pieces of the Katan, then returned them to the wall without asking my opinion. Vachette moved more slowly as she made her way along the second wall. She handed me a sword slightly curved like Pentha's, and my breath caught when I saw the blade was the same flawless burnished gray as Vachette's. I took it carefully, but the grip wasn't right for my fingers. When I handed it back, I saw relief written plainly on her face. As she progressed along the wall, occasionally Vachette would steal a glance at Cheyenne. At those moments, she looked very little like my confident, swaggering teacher, and very much like a young woman desperately hoping for a word of advice. Cheyenne remained impassive. Eventually, Vachette came to the third wall, moving slower and slower. 
She handled almost every sword now, taking a long time before setting them back in their places. Then slowly, she laid her hand on another sword with a blade of burnished gray. She lifted it off the wall, gripped it, and seemed to age ten years. Bachette avoided looking at Cheyenne and handed me the sword. The guard of this one extended out slightly, curving to give a hint of protection to the hand. It was nothing like a full handguard. Anything that bulky would render half the K-10 useless. But it looked as if it would give my fingers an extra bit of shelter, and that was appealing to me. The warm grip settled into my palm as smoothly as the neck of my lute. Before she could ask, I made Maiden Combs her hair. It felt like stretching after a long, stiff sleep. I eased into twelve stones, and for the smallest of moments, I felt graceful as Pentha looked when she fought. I made Heron falling, and it was sweet and simple as a kiss. Vachette held out her hand to take it back from me. I didn't want to give it up, but I did. I knew this was the worst possible time and place for me to make a scene. Holding the sword, Vachette turned to Cheyenne. This is the one for him, she said. And for the first time since I'd known my teacher, it was as if all the laughing had been pressed out of her. Her voice was thin and dry. Cheyenne nodded. I agree. You have done well to find it. Bachette's relief was palpable, though her face still looked somewhat stricken. It will perhaps offset his name, she said. She held the sword out to Cheyenne. Cheyenne gestured. Refusal. No. Your student. Your choice. Your responsibility. Bachette took the scabbard from the wall and sheathed the sword. Then she turned and held it out to me. This is named Sesra. Sasura? I asked, startled by the name. Wasn't that what Sim had called the break in the line of Eldvintic verse? Was I being given a poet's sword? Sesra, she said softly, as if it were the name of God. She stepped back, and I felt the weight of it settle back into my hands. Sensing something was expected of me, I drew it from its sheath. The faint ring of leather and metal seemed a whisper of its name. Sesra. It felt light in my hand. The blade was flawless. I slid it back into its sheath, and the sound was different. It sounded like the breaking of a line. It said, Sasura. Shane opened the inner door, and we left as we came, silently and with respect. The rest of the day was quite the opposite of exciting. With a dogged and humorless persistence, Vachette taught me how to care for my sword, how to clean and oil my sword, how to dismantle and reassemble my sword, how to strap the scabbard to my shoulder or hip, how the slightly enlarged guard would alter a few of the grips and motions of the K-10. The sword was not mine. The sword belonged to the school, to a Demre. I would return it when I was no longer able to fight. While I normally have little tolerance for hearing the same thing over and over again, I let Vachette ramble. The least I could do was let her repeat herself a bit when she was plainly anxious and trying to settle her mind. Around the fifteenth repetition, I asked what I should do if the sword broke. Not the hilt or the guard, but the blade itself. Should I still bring it back? 
Bachette gave me a look of dismay so raw it verged on horror. She didn't answer, and I made a point of not asking any more questions for the rest of the morning. After lunch, Bachette took me back to Magwin's cave. My teacher's mood seemed somewhat improved, but she was still far from her regular gregarious self. Magwin will be giving you a Sacra story, she said. You must memorize it. Its story? I asked. Bachette shrugged. In Edemic it is Atas. It is the history of your sword, everyone who has carried it, what they have done. It is something you must know. We reached the top of the path and stood before Magwin's door. Bachette gave me a serious look. You must be on your best behavior and be very polite. I will, I said. Magwin is an important person, and you must attend closely to what she says. I will, I said. Bachette knocked on the door and escorted me in. Magwin sat at the same table as before. For all I could tell, she was copying the same book. She smiled when she saw Vachette, then noticed me, and let her face slide into the familiar Adem impassivity. Magwin, Vachette said, profoundly polite entreaty. This one needs the Athas of his sword. Which sword did you find for him? Magwin asked, her face wrinkling even further as she squinted to see it. Sesra, Bashat said. Magwin gave a laugh that was almost a cackle. She got down off her chair. I can't say I'm surprised, she said, and disappeared through a door that led back into the cliff. Bashat let herself out, and I stood there feeling awkward, like one of those terrible dreams when you're on stage and can't remember what to say, or even what part you were meaning to play. Magwin returned carrying a thick book bound in brown leather. At a gesture from her, we took seats in chairs facing each other. Hers was a deeply cushioned leather chair. Mine was not. I sat with Sasura across my knees, partly because it seemed appropriate, and partly because I was fond of the feel of it beneath my hand. She opened the book, the binding crackling as she spread it open on her lap. She flipped pages for a moment until she found the place she was looking for. First came Chael, she read, who shaped me in fire for an unknown purpose. He carried me, then cast me aside. Magwin looked up, unable to gesture as her hands were both occupied by the large book. Well, she demanded. What would you like me to do? I asked politely. I couldn't gesture due to my bandages. We made a fine pair of half-mutes. Repeat it back, she said irritated. You need to learn them all. First came Chael, I said, who shaped me in fire for an unknown purpose. He carried me, then cast me aside. She nodded and continued. Next came Etain. I repeated it. We continued this way for perhaps a half hour, owner after owner, name after name, loyalties declaimed and enemies killed. At first, the names and places were tantalizing. Then, as it continued, the list began to depress me, as nearly each piece ended with the death of the owner. They were not peaceful deaths either, 
Some died in wars, some in duels. Many were merely killed by or slain by, giving no clue as to the circumstances. After thirty of these, I had heard nothing resembling, passed from this world peacefully in his sleep, surrounded by fat grandchildren. Then the list stopped being depressing and became simply boring instead. Next came Finol of the clear and shining eye, I repeated attentively. Much beloved of Dulcin. She herself slew two Daruna, then was killed by Gremin at the Drossen Tor. I cleared my throat before Magwin could recite another passage. If I may ask, I said, how many have carried Sasura over the years? Sesra, she corrected me sharply. Do not presume to meddle with her name. It means to break, to catch, and to fly. I looked down at the sheathed sword across my lap. I felt the weight of it, the chill of the metal under my fingers. A small sliver of the smooth gray blade was visible above the top of the sheath. How can I say this so you can understand? Sesra was a fine name. It was thin and bright and dangerous. It fit the sword like a glove fits a hand. But it wasn't the perfect name. This sword's name was Sasura. This sword was the jarring break in a line of perfect verse. It was the broken breath. It was smooth and swift and sharp and deadly. The name didn't fit it like a glove. It fit like skin. More than that, it was bone and muscle and movement. Those things are the hand, and Sasura was the sword. It was both the name and the thing itself. I can't tell you how I knew this, but I knew it. Besides, if I was to be a namer, I decided I could damn well choose the name of my own sword. I looked up at Magwin. It is a good name, I agreed politely, deciding to keep my opinion to myself until I was well gone from a Demre. I am only wondering how many owners there have been entirely. That is something I should know as well. Magwin gave me a sour look that said she knew I was patronizing her, but she flipped ahead several pages in her book. Then a few more. Then a few more. Two hundred and thirty-six, she said. You will be the two hundred thirty-seventh. She flipped back to the beginning of the list. Let us begin again. She drew a breath and said, First came Chael, who shaped me in fire for an unknown purpose. He carried me, then cast me aside. I fought down the urge to sigh. Even with my trooper's knack for learning lines, it would take long, weary days setting them all to memory. Then I realized what this truly meant. If each owner had kept Sasura for ten years, and it had never sat idle for longer than a day or two, that meant Sasura was, at a very conservative estimate, more than two thousand years old. I received my next surprise three hours later when I tried to excuse myself for supper. As I stood to leave, Magwin explained I was to remain with her until I learned all of Sasura's story by heart. Someone would bring us our meals, and there was a room nearby where I could sleep. First came Chael.
Chapter 126 The First Stone I spent the next three days with Magwin. It wasn't bad, especially considering my left hand was still healing, so my ability to talk and fight was rather limited. I like to think I did rather well. It would have been easier for me to memorize an entire play than this. A play fits together like a jigsaw. Dialogue moves back and forth. There is a shape to a story. But what I learned from Magwin was merely a long string of unfamiliar names and unconnected events. It was a laundry list masquerading as a story. Still, I learned it all by heart. It was late in the evening of the third day when I recited it back flawlessly to Magwin. The hardest part was not singing it as I recited. Music carries words over miles and into hearts and memories. Committing Sasura's history to memory had been much easier when I'd started fitting it to the tune of an old vintage ballad in my head. The next morning, Magwin demanded I recite it again. After I made it through a second time, she scribbled a note to Shayan, sealed it in wax, and shooed me out of her cave. We had not expected Magwin to be finished with you for several days yet, Shayan said, reading the note. Vachette took a trip to Feint, and will not be back for at least two days. That meant I had memorized the A-Task twice as quickly as their best estimate. I felt more than a little pride in that. Shane glanced at my left hand and gave the barest frown. When did you have your dressings removed? she asked. I could not find you at first, I said. So I went to visit Dalen. He said it was healed quite nicely. I flexed my newly unbandaged left hand and gestured joyful relief. There is hardly any stiffness in the skin, and he reassures me even that will fade soon with proper care. I looked at Shane, expecting to see some gesture of approval or satisfaction. Instead, I saw exasperated irritation. Have I done something wrong? I asked. Confused regret. Apology. Shayan motioned to my hand. It could have been a convenient excuse to postpone your stone trial, she said, irritated resignation. Now we must go ahead with it today, Vachette or no. I felt a familiar anxiety settle back onto me, like a dark bird clenching its claws deep into the muscles of my neck and shoulders. I'd thought the tedium of memorization had been the last of it, but apparently the final shoe was yet to drop. I didn't like the sound of the term stone trial either. Return here after midday meal, Shayan said. Dismissal. Go. I have much to prepare before then. I went looking for Pentha. With Vachette gone, she was the only one I knew well enough to ask about the upcoming trial. But she wasn't in her house the school, or the baths. Eventually, I gave up, stretched, and rehearsed my K-10, first with Sasura, then without. Then, I made my way to the baths and scrubbed away three days of sitting and doing nothing. Shayan was waiting for me when I returned after lunch, holding her carved wooden sword. She looked at my empty hands and made an exasperated gesture. Where is your dueling sword? In my room, I said, I did not know I would need it. Run, fetch it, she said. Then meet me at the stone hill. Shayan, I said, urgent imploring. I don't know where that is. I don't know anything about the stone trial. Surprised. 
Vachette never told you? Disbelief. I shook my head. Sincere apology. We were focused on other things. Exasperation. It is simple enough, she said. First, you will recite Sesra's Atas for all gathered. Then you will climb the hill. At the first stone, you will fight one from the school who is ranked of the first stone. If you win, you will continue to climb and fight someone of the second stone. Cheyenne looked at me. In your case, this is a formality. Occasionally, a student enters the school with exceptional talent. Vachette was one such as this, and she gained the second stone at her first trial. Blunt honesty. You are not such a one. Your Catan is still poor, and you cannot expect to gain even the first stone. The stone hill is east of the baths. She flicked her hand at me. Hurry. There was a crowd gathered at the foot of the stone hill by the time I arrived. More than a hundred people. Gray homespun and muted colors vastly outnumbered mercenary red, and the low murmur of the crowd's conversation was audible from a distance. The hill itself wasn't particularly high, nor was it steep, but the path to the top cut back and forth in a series of switchbacks. At each corner there was a wide, flat space with a large block of gray stone. There were four corners, four stones, and four red-shirted mercenaries. At the top of the hill stood a tall gray stone, familiar as a friend. Beside that stood a small figure in blinding white. As I came closer, I caught a smell drifting on the breeze. Toasted chestnuts. Only then did I relax. This was pageantry of a sort. While Stone Trial had an intimidating sound to it, I doubted very much that I was going to be brutalized in front of a milling audience while someone sold roasted nuts. I entered the crowd and approached the hill. I could see it was Cheyenne next to the gray stone. I also recognized the heart-shaped face and long, hanging braid of Pentha at the third stone. The crowd parted gently as I walked to the foot of the hill. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a blood-red figure rushing toward me. Alarmed, I turned and saw it was none other than Tempe. He hurried toward me, gesturing a broad, enthusiastic greeting. I fought the urge to smile and shout his name, settling instead on a gesture of joyful excitement. He came to stand directly in front of me, gripping me by my shoulder and jostling me around playfully, as if congratulating me. But his eyes were intense. Close to his chest, his hand said, Deception, where only I could see. Listen. He spoke quickly under his breath. You cannot win this fight. Don't worry, reassurance. Cheyenne thinks the same, but I might surprise you. Tempe's grip on my shoulder grew painfully tight. Listen, he hissed. Look who is at the first stone. I looked over his shoulder. It was Carceret. Her eyes were like knives. She is full of rage, Tempe said quietly, gesturing fond affection for the crowd to see. As if your admittance to the school was not enough, you have been given her mother's sword. That piece of news knocked the wind out of me. My mind flickered to the final piece of the ATAS. Laurel was Carceret's mother? I asked. Tempe ran his right hand affectionately through my hair. Yes, she is enraged past reason. 
I fear she would gladly cripple you, even if it means being thrown from the school. I nodded seriously. She will try to disarm you. Be wary of it. Do not grapple. If she catches you with sleeping bear or circling hands, submit quickly. Shout it if you must. If you hesitate or try to break away, she will shatter your arm or pull it from your shoulder. I heard her say this to her sister not an hour ago. Suddenly, Tempe stepped away from me and gestured deferential respect. I felt a tapping at my arm and turned to see Magwin's wrinkled face. Come, she said with quiet authority. It is time. I fell into step behind her. As we walked, everyone in the crowd gestured some manner of respect toward her. Magwin led me to the beginning of the path. There was a block of gray stone, slightly taller than my knee and identical to the others at each corner of the path. The old woman gestured for me to climb up onto the stone. I looked out over the group of Adem and had an unprecedented moment of stage fright. Bending a bit, I spoke softly to Magwin. Is it appropriate for me to raise my voice when reciting this? I asked her nervously. I do not mean to be offensive, but if I do not, those in the back will not be able to hear. Magwin smiled at me for the first time, her wrinkled face suddenly sweet. She patted my hand. No one will be offended at a loud voice here, she said, gesturing considerate moderation. Give. I unbuckled Sesra and handed it over. Then Magwin urged me onto the stone. I recited the ATAS while Magwin watched. Though I was confident of my memory, it was still nerve-wracking. I wondered what would happen if I skipped an owner or misplaced a name. It took the better part of an hour before I was done, the audience of Adam listening with an almost eerie quiet. When I finished, Magwin offered her hand, helping me down from the stone as if I were a lady descending from a carriage. Then she gestured up the hill. I wiped the sweat from my hand and gripped the wooden hilt of my dueling sword as I started up the path. Carceret's reds were strapped tightly across her long arms and broad shoulders. The leather straps she used were wider and thicker than Tempe's. They looked to be a brighter red, too, and I wonder if she had dyed them especially for today. As I came closer, I saw she had the fading remains of a black eye. Once she saw I was watching, Carceret tossed her wooden sword away in a slow, deliberate motion. She gestured disdain broadly enough so they could see it in the halfpenny seats at the back of the crowd. There was a murmur from the crowd as I stopped walking, uncertain what to do. After a moment's thought, I lay my own training sword down by the side of the path and continued to walk. Carceret waited in the center of a flat, grassy circle about thirty feet across. The ground was soft here, so I wouldn't ordinarily worry about being thrown. Ordinarily. Vachette had taught me the difference between throwing someone to the ground and throwing someone at the ground. The first was what you did during a polite bout. The second was what you would use in a true fight where the intention was to maim or kill your opponent. Before I came too close, I fell into the now familiar fighter's crouch. I raised my hands, bent my knees, and fought the urge to raise up onto the balls of my feet, knowing I would feel quicker and ruin my balance as a result. I took a deep, steadying breath and slowly moved toward her. Carceret fell into a similar crouch, 
and just as I was coming to the outside limits of her reach, she made a feint toward me. It was only a slight twitch of the hand and shoulder, but anxious as I was, I fell for it wholeheartedly and skittered away like a startled rabbit. Carceret lowered her hands and stood up straight, abandoning her fighting crouch. Amusement, she gestured broadly. Invitation. Then she beckoned with both hands. I heard a few pieces of laughter drift up from the crowd below. Humiliating as her attitude was, I was eager to take advantage of her lowered guard. I moved forward and made a cautious attempt at hands like knives. Too cautious, and she stepped away from it without even needing to lift her hands. I knew I was outclassed as a fighter. That meant my only hope was to play on her already hot emotions. If I could infuriate her, she might make mistakes. If she made mistakes, I might be able to win. First came Chael, I said, giving her my widest, most barbaric smile. Carceret took a half-step closer. I am going to crush your pretty hands, she hissed in perfect Aturin. As she spoke, she reached out and made a vicious gripping motion at me. She was trying to scare me, make me recoil and lose my balance, and honestly, the raw venom in her voice made me want to do just that. But I was ready. I resisted my reflex to pull back. In doing so, I froze for a moment, neither retreating nor advancing. Of course, this is what Carceret was truly waiting for, a half-moment's hesitation as I fought the urge to flee. She closed on me in a single easy step and caught my wrist, her hand tight as a band of iron. Without thinking, I used Celian's curious two-handed version of Break Lion, perfect for a small girl struggling against a grown man or a hopelessly outclassed musician trying to escape an ADEM mercenary. I regained control of my hand, and the unorthodox movement startled Carceret ever so slightly. I took advantage of it and struck out quickly with sewing barley, snapping my knuckles hard against the meat of her inner bicep. It wasn't a hard punch, I was too close for that, but if I managed to hit the nerve properly, the blow would numb her hand. This wouldn't just make her weak on her left side, but it would make all the two-handed motions of the K-10 more difficult, a significant advantage. Since I was still so close, I immediately followed sewing barley with turn millstone, giving her a short, firm push to knock her off balance. I managed to get both hands on her, and even pushed her backward by perhaps four inches, but Carceret came nowhere near to losing her balance. Then I saw her eyes. I'd thought she'd been angry before, but it was nothing compared to now. Now, I'd managed to actually strike her. Not just once, but twice. A barbarian with less than two months of training had struck her twice, while everyone in the school looked on. I cannot describe how she looked, and even if I could, it would not impress upon you the truth of things, as her face was still almost entirely impassive. Instead, let me say this. I have never seen anyone so furious in my entire life. Not Ambrose, not Hem, not Denna when I criticized her song, or the mayor when I defied him. Those angers were pale candles compared to the forge fire burning in Carceret's eyes. But even in the full flower of her fury, Carceret was perfectly in control. She didn't lash out wildly or snarl at me. She kept her words inside her, burning them like fuel. I couldn't win this fight, 
but my hands moved automatically, trained by hundreds of hours of practice to take advantage of her nearness. I stepped forward and tried to grab hold of her for thunder upward. Her hands snapped out, brushing the attack away. Then she lashed out with Bargeman at the dock. I don't think she expected it to connect. A more competent opponent would have avoided or blocked it. But I had let myself get slightly wrong-footed, so I was off-balance. So I was slow. So her foot caught me in the stomach and pushed. Bargeman at the dock isn't a quick kick meant to break bones. It is a kick that shoves the opponent off-balance. As it was already off-balance, it pushed me right off my feet. I landed jarringly on my back, then rolled to stop in a messy tangle of limbs. Now, some might say that I had taken a bad fall and was obviously too stupefied to find my feet and continue the fight. Others might say that while it was messy, the fall wasn't quite as hard as all that, and I had certainly found my feet after worse. Personally, I think the line between being stupefied and being wise is sometimes very thin. How thin, I suppose, I will leave you to decide. Chapter 127 Anger What were you thinking? Tempe demanded. Disappointment, fierce chastisement. What fool sets his sword aside? She threw her sword away first, I protested. Only to lure you in, Tempe said. Only as a trap. I was buckling Sasura's scabbard so the hilt hung over my shoulder. There hadn't been any particular ceremony after I had lost. Magwin simply returned my sword and smiled at me, patting my hand in a comforting way. I watched the crowd slowly dispersing below and gestured polite disbelief to Tempe. Should I have kept my sword when she was unarmed? Yes. Absolute agreement. She is five times the fighter you are. You might have had a chance if you had kept your sword. Tempe is right, I heard Shan's voice behind me. Knowing your enemy is in keeping with the Lathani. Once a fight is inevitable, a clever fighter takes any advantage. I turned and saw her coming down the path. Pentha walked beside her. I gestured polite certainty. If I had kept my sword and won, people would have thought Carceret was a fool and resented me for gaining a rank I did not deserve. And if I had kept my sword and lost, it would have been humiliating. Neither reflects well on me. I looked back and forth between Shane and Tempe. Am I wrong in this? You are not wrong in this, Shane said. But neither is Tempe wrong. Victory is always to be sought, Tempe said, firm. Shane turned to face him. Success is key. She said, victory is not always needed to succeed. Tempe gestured, respectful disagreement, and opened his mouth to respond, but Pentha spoke first, cutting him off. Quoth, are you hurt from your fall? Not badly, I said, moving my back gingerly. A few bruises, perhaps. Do you have anything to put on them? I shook my head. Pentha stepped forward and took hold of my arm. I have things at my house. We will leave these two to discuss the Letani. Someone should tend to your hurts. She held my arm with her left hand, 
making her statement curiously empty of any emotional content. Of course, Shayan said after a moment, and Tempe gestured a hasty agreement. But Pentha was already leading me firmly down the hill. We walked for a quarter mile or so, Pentha holding my arm lightly. Eventually, she spoke in her lightly accented Aturin. Are you bruised badly enough to need a salve? she asked. Not really, I admitted. I thought not, she said. But after I have lost a fight, I rarely wish to have people tell me how I lost it. She flashed me a small, secret smile. I smiled back. We continued to walk, and Pentha kept hold of my arm, subtly guiding us through a grove of trees, then up a steep path carved through a small bluff. Eventually, we came to a secluded dell that had a carpet of wild papaver flower blossoming among the grass. Their loose, blood-red petals were almost exactly the same color as Pentha's mercenary reds. Vachette told me barbarians have strange rituals with your sex, Pentha said. She told me if I wanted to bed you, I should bring you to some flowers. She gestured around. These are the best I could find in this season. She looked up at me expectantly. Ah, I said. I expect Vachette was having a bit of a joke with you. Or perhaps a joke with me. Pentha frowned, and I hurried to continue. But it is true that among the barbarians there are many rituals that lead up to sex. It is somewhat more complicated there. Pentha gestured, sullen irritation. I should not be surprised, she said. Everyone tells stories about the barbarians. Some of it is training so I can move well among you. Rai, however. Since I have not been out among them yet, they also tell stories to tease me. What sort of stories? I asked, thinking of what I had heard about the Adem and the Lathani before I had met Tempe. She shrugged, slight embarrassment. It is foolishness. They say all the barbarian men are huge. She gestured far above her head, showing a height of more than seven feet. Naden told me he went to a town where the barbarians ate a soup made of dirt. They say the barbarians never bathe. They say barbarians drink their own urine, believing it will help them live longer. She shook her head, laughing and gesturing, horrified amusement. Are you saying, I asked slowly, that you don't drink yours? Pentha froze mid-laugh and looked at me, her face and hands showing a confused, apologetic mix of embarrassment, disgust, and disbelief. It was such a bizarre tangle of emotions, I couldn't help but laugh, and I saw her relax when she realized the joke. I understand, I said. We tell similar stories about the Adem. Her eyes lit up. You must tell me as I told you. It is fair. Given Tempe's reaction when I'd told him of the word fire and Lathani, I decided to share something else. They say those who take the red never have sex. They say you take that energy and put it into your katan, and that is why you are such good fighters. Pentha laughed hard at that. I would have never made the third stone if that were the case, she said, wry amusement. If keeping from sex gave me my fighting, there would be days I could not make even a fist. I felt my pulse quicken a bit at that. Still, she said, I can see where that story comes from. 
They must think we have no sex because no a damn would bed a barbarian. Ah, I said, somewhat disappointed. Why have you brought me to the flowers, then? You are now of a demre, she said easily. I expect many will approach you now. You have a sweet face, and it is hard not to be curious about your anger. Pentha paused and glanced significantly downward. That is, unless you are diseased. I blushed at this. What? No, of course not. Are you certain? I have studied at the Medica, I said somewhat stiffly. The greatest school of medicine in all the world. I know all about the diseases a person might catch, how to spot them, and how to treat them. Penta gave me a skeptical look. I do not question you in particular, but it is well known that barbarians are quite frequently diseased in their sex. I shook my head. This is just another foolish story. I assure you the barbarians are no more diseased than the Adem. In fact, I expect we may be less. She shook her head, her eyes serious. No, you are wrong in this. Of a hundred barbarians, how many would you say were so afflicted? It was an easy statistic I knew from the Medica. Out of every hundred? Perhaps five? More among those who work in brothels or frequent such places, of course. Pentha's face showed obvious disgust, and she shivered. Of one hundred Adem, none are so afflicted, she said firmly, absolute. Oh, come now. I held up my hand, making a circle with my fingers. None? None, she said with grim certainty. The only place we could catch such a thing is from a barbarian, and those who travel are warned. What if you caught a disease from another Adem who had not been careful while traveling? I asked. Pentha's tiny heart-shaped face went grim, her nostrils flaring. From one of my own? Vast anger. If one of Ademre were to give me a disease, I would be furious. I would shout from the top of a cliff what they had done. I would make their life as painful as a broken bone. She gestured disgust brushing at the front of her shirt in the first piece of Adam hand talk I had ever learned from Tempe. Then I would make the long trek over the mountains into the Tal to be cured of it. Even if the trip should take two years and bring no money to the school, and none would think the less of me for that. I nodded to myself. It made sense. Given their attitudes about sex, if it were any other way, disease would run rampant through the population. I saw Pentha looking at me expectantly. Thank you for the flowers, I said. She nodded and stepped closer, looking up at me. Her eyes were excited as she smiled her shy smile. Then her face grew serious. Is it enough to satisfy your barbarian rituals, or is there more that must be done? I reached down and ran my hand along the smooth skin of her neck sliding my fingertips under the long braid so they brushed the back of her neck. She closed her eyes and tipped her face up toward mine. They are lovely, and more than enough, I said, and bent to kiss her. I was right, Pentha said with a contented sigh as we lay naked among the flowers. You have a fine anger. I lay on my back, her small body curled under my arm, 
her heart-shaped face resting gently on my chest. What do you mean by that? I asked. I think anger might be the wrong word. I mean vaven, she said, using the idemic term. Is that the same? I don't know that word, I admitted. I think anger is the right word, she said. I have spoken with Bachet in your language, and she did not correct me. What do you mean by anger, then? I asked. I certainly don't feel angry. Penta lifted her head from my chest and gave me a lazy, satisfied smile. Of course not, she said. I have taken your anger. How could you feel such a way? Are... are you angry, then? I asked, sure I was missing the point entirely. Penta laughed and shook her head. She had undone her long braid and her honey-colored hair hung down the side of her face. It made her look like an entirely different person. That and the lack of the mercenary reds, I supposed. It is not that kind of anger. I am glad to have it. I still do not understand, I said. This could be something barbarians do not know. Explain it to me as if I were a child. She looked at me for a moment, her eyes serious. Then she rolled over onto her stomach so she could face me more easily. This anger is not a feeling. It is... She hesitated, frowning prettily. It is a desire. It is a making. It is a wanting of life. Pentha looked around, then focused on the grass around us. Anger is what makes the grass press up through the ground to reach the sun, she said. All things that live have anger. It is the fire in them that makes them want to move and grow and do and make. She cocked her head. Does that make sense to you? I think so, I said. And women take the anger from men in sex. She smiled, nodding. That is why afterward a man is so weary. He gives a piece of himself. He collapses. He sleeps. She glanced down. Or a part of him sleeps. Not for long, I said. That is because you have a fine, strong anger, she said proudly. As I have already said, I can tell because I have taken a piece of it. I can tell there is more waiting. There is, I admitted. But what do women do with the anger? We use it, Penta said simply. That is why, afterward, a woman does not always sleep as a man does. She feels more awake, full of the need to move, often full of desire for more of what brought her the anger in the first place. She lowered her head to my chest and bit me playfully, wriggling her naked body against me. It was pleasantly distracting. Does this mean women have no anger of their own? She laughed again. No, all things have anger, but women have many uses for their anger, and men have more anger than they can use, too much for their own good. How can one have too much of the desire to live and grow and make? I asked. It seems more would be better. Pentha shook her head, brushing her hair back with one hand. No, it is like food. One meal is good. Two meals is not better. She frowned again. No, it is more like wine. 
One cup of wine is good. Two is sometimes better, but ten? She nodded seriously. That is very much like anger. A man who grows full of it, it is like a poison in him. He wants too many things. He wants all things. He becomes strange and wrong in his head, violent. She nodded to herself. Yes, that is why anger is the right word, I think. You can tell a man who has been keeping all his anger to himself. It goes sour in him. It turns against itself and drives him to breaking rather than making. I can think of men like that, I said. But I can think of women, too. All things have anger, she repeated with a shrug. A stone does not have much compared to a budding tree. It is the same with people. Some have more or less. Some use it wisely. Some do not. She gave me a wide smile. I have a great deal, which is why I am so fond of sex and fierce in my fighting. She bit at my chest again, less playfully this time, and began to work her way up to my neck. But if you take the anger from a man in sex, I said, struggling to concentrate, doesn't that mean the more sex you have, the more you want? It is like the water one uses to prime a pump, she said hotly against my ear. Come now, I will have all of it, even if it takes us all day and half the night. We eventually moved from the grassy field to the baths, and then to Pentha's house of two snug rooms built against the side of a bluff. The moon was in the sky and had been watching us for some time through the window, though I doubt we showed her anything she hadn't seen before. Is that enough for you? I said breathlessly. We were side by side in her pleasantly capacious bed, the sweat drying off our bodies. If you take much more of it, I might not have enough anger left to speak or breathe. My hand lay on the flat plane of her belly. Her skin was soft and smooth, but when she laughed, I could feel the muscles of her stomach jump, going hard as sheets of steel. It is enough for now, she said, exhaustion plain in her voice. It would upset Vachette if I left you empty as a fruit with all the juice pressed out. Despite my long day, I was oddly wakeful, my thoughts bright and clear. I remembered something she had said earlier. You mentioned that a woman has many uses for her anger. What use does a woman have for it that a man does not? We teach, she said. We give names. We track the days and tend to the smooth turning of things. We plant. We make babies, she shrugged. Many things. A man can do those things as well, I said. Pentha chuckled. You have the wrong word, she said, rubbing at my chin. A beard is what a man makes. A baby is something different, and that you have no part of. We don't carry the baby, I said, slightly offended. But still, we play our part in making it. Pentha turned to look at me, smiling as if I had made a joke. Then her smile faded. She propped herself up on her elbow and looked at me for another long moment. Are you in serious? Seeing my perplexed expression, her eyes grew wide with amazement, and she sat upright on the bed. 
It is true, she said. You believe in man-mothers. She giggled, covering the bottom half of her face with both hands. I never believed it was true. She lowered her left hand, revealing an excited grin as she gestured, amazed delight. I felt I should be irritated, but I couldn't quite muster the energy. Perhaps some of what she said about men giving away their anger had some truth to it. What is a man-mother? I asked. Are you not making a joke? She asked, one hand still half-covering her smile. Do you truly believe a man puts a baby in a woman? Well, yes, I said a little awkwardly. In a manner of speaking, it takes a man and a woman to make a baby, a mother and a father. You have a word for it, she said, delighted. They told me this, too, with the stories of dirt soup, but I never thought it the real story. I sat up myself at this point, growing concerned. You do know how babies are made, don't you? I asked, gesturing serious earnestness. What we have been doing for most of the day is what makes a baby. She looked at me for a moment in stunned silence, then dissolved helplessly into laughter, trying to speak several times, only to have it overwhelm her again when she looked up at the expression on my face. Pentha put her hands on her belly, prodding it as if puzzled. Where is my baby? She looked down at her flat belly. Perhaps I have been sexing wrong these years. When she laughed, the muscles across her stomach flickered, making a pattern like a turtle shell. I should have a hundred babies if what you say is true. Five hundred babies. It does not happen every time there is sex, I said. There are only certain times when a woman is ripe for a baby. And have you done this? She asked, looking at me with mock seriousness while a smile tugged at her mouth. Have you made a baby with a woman? I have been careful not to do such a thing, I said. There is an herb called sulfium. I chew it every day and it keeps me from putting a baby in a woman. Pentha shook her head. This is more of your barbarian sex rituals, she said. Does bringing a man to the flowers also make a baby where you come from? I decided to take a different tack. If men do not help with making babies, how do you explain that babies look like their fathers? Babies look like angry old men, Pentha said, all bald and with... She hesitated, touching her cheek. With face lines... Perhaps the old men are the only ones making babies then, she smirked. What about kittens, I asked. You have seen a litter of kittens. When a white cat and a black cat have sex, you get kittens both white and black, and kittens of both colors. Always, she asked. Not always, I admitted, but most times. But if there is a yellow kitten, she asked. Before I could put together an answer, she waved the question away. Kittens have little to do with this, she said. We are not like animals. We do not go into season. We do not lay eggs. We do not make cocoons or fruit or seeds. We are not dogs or frogs or trees. Penta gave me a serious look. You are committing a false thinking. You could as easily say two stones make baby stones by banging against each other until a piece breaks off. Therefore, two people make baby peoples in the same way. I fumed, but she was right. 
I was committing a fallacy of analogy. It was faulty logic. Our conversation continued along this vein for some time. I asked her if she had ever known a woman to get pregnant who had not had sex in the previous months. She said she didn't know of any woman who would willingly go three months without sex except those who were traveling among the barbarians, or very ill, or very old. Eventually, Pentha waved a hand to stop me, gesturing exasperation. Do you hear your own excuses? Sex makes babies, but not always. Babies look like man-mothers, but not always. The sex must be at the right time, but not always. There are plants that make it more likely or less likely. She shook her head. You must realize what you say is thin as a net. You keep sewing new threads hoping it will hold water, but hoping does not make it true. Seeing me frown, she took my hand and gestured comfort into it as she had before in the dining hall, all the laughter gone out of her face. I can see you think this truly. I can understand why barbarian men would want to believe it. It must be comforting to think you are important in this way, but it is simply not. Pentha looked at me with something close to pity. Sometimes a woman ripens. It is a natural thing, and men have no part in it. That is why more women ripen in the fall, like fruit. That is why more women ripen here in Hert, where it is better to have a child. I tried to think of some other convincing argument, but none would come to mind. It was frustrating. Seeing my expression, Pentha squeezed my hand and gestured concession. Perhaps it is different for barbarian women, she said. You are only saying that to make me feel better. I said sullenly, and was overcome with a jaw-popping yawn. I am, she admitted. Then she gave me a gentle kiss and pushed at my shoulders, encouraging me to lie back down on the bed. I did, and she nestled into the crook of my arm again, resting her head on my shoulder. It must be hard to be a man, she said softly. A woman knows she is part of the world. We are full of life. A woman is the flower and the fruit— we move through time as part of our children, but a man? She turned her head and looked up at me with gentle pity in her eyes. You are an empty branch. You know when you die you will leave nothing of any import behind. Pentha stroked my chest fondly. I think that is why you are so full of anger. Maybe you do not have more than women. Maybe the anger in you simply has no place to go, Maybe it is desperate to leave some mark. It hammers at the world. It drives you to rash action, to bickering, to rage. You paint and build and fight and tell stories that are bigger than the truth. She gave a contented sigh and rested her head on my shoulder, snuggling herself firmly into the circle of my arm. I am sorry to tell you this thing. You are a good man and a pretty thing, but still, you are only a man. All you have to offer the world is your anger. Chapter 128 Names It was the day that I would either stay or leave. I sat with Vashat on a green hill, watching the sun rise out of the clouds to the east. Sesra means to fly, to catch, to break, Vashat said softly, repeating herself for the hundredth time. You must remember all the hands that have held her. 
many hands, all following the Letani. You must never use her in an improper way. I promise, I said for the hundredth time, then hesitated before bringing up something that had been bothering me. But, Vachette, you used your sword to trim the willow branch you beat me with. I saw you use it to hold your window open once. You pare your nails with it. Vachette gave me a blank look. Yes? Isn't that improper? I asked. She cocked her head, then laughed. You mean I should only use it for fighting? I gestured, obvious implication. A sword is sharp, she said. It is a tool. I carry it constantly. How is using it improper? It seems disrespectful, I clarified. You respect the thing by putting it to good use. It may be years before I return to the barbarian lands and fight. How does it harm my sword if it cuts kindling and carrots in the meantime? Bachette's eyes grew serious. To carry a sword your whole life, knowing it was only for killing. She shook her head. What would that do to a person's mind? It would be a horrible thing. Bachette had returned to Hert last night, dismayed that she had missed my stone trial. She said I was right to lay aside my sword when Carceret did, and that I had made her proud. Yesterday, Cheyenne had formally invited me to stay and train at the school. In theory, I already earned that right, but everyone knew that was more of a political fiction than anything. Her offer was a flattering one, an opportunity I knew I would likely never have again. We watched a boy herd a flock of goats down the side of a hill. Vachette, is it true that the Adam have no concept of fatherhood? Vachette nodded easily, then paused. Tell me you did not embarrass both of us by talking about this with everyone while I was gone, she said with a sigh. Only with Penta, I said. She thought it was the funniest thing she had heard in ten months' time. It is fairly amusing at that, Bashat said, her mouth curving a little. It's true, then? Even you believe this? You— Bashat held up a hand, and I trailed off. Peace, she said. Think whatever you wish about your man-mothers. It is all the same to me. She gave a soft smile of remembrance. My poet-king actually believed a woman was nothing more than the ground in which a man might plant a baby. Bashat made an amused huffing sound that wasn't quite a laugh. He was so sure he was right. Nothing could sway him. Years ago I decided arguing such things with a barbarian is a long, weary waste of my time. She shrugged. Think what you want about making babies. Believe in demons. Pray to a goat. So long as it doesn't bruise me, why should I bother myself? I chewed it over for a moment. There's wisdom in that, I said. She nodded. But either a man helps with a baby, or he does not, I pointed out. There can be many opinions on a thing, but there is only one truth. Vachette smiled lazily. And if the pursuit of truth was my goal, that would concern me. She gave a long yawn, stretching like a happy cat. Instead, I will focus on the joy in my heart, the prosperity of the school, and understanding the Lethani. If I have time left after that, I will put it toward worrying on the truth. We watched the sunrise for a while longer in silence. 
It occurred to me Vachette was quite a different person when she wasn't struggling to cram the K-Tan and all of a demic into my head as quickly as possible. That said, Vachette added, if you persist in clinging to your barbarian beliefs about man-mothers, you would do well to keep quiet about it. Amusement is the best you can hope for. Most will simply assume you an idiot for thinking such things. I nodded. After a long moment, I decided to finally ask the question I had been holding off for days. Magwin called me Maedra. What does it mean? It is your name, she said. Speak of it to no one. It is a secret thing? I asked. She nodded. It is a thing for you and your teachers and Magwin. It would be dangerous to let others know what it is. How could it be dangerous? Bachette looked at me as if I were daft. When you know a name, you have power over it. Surely you know this. But I know your name, and Shayan's, and Tempe's. What danger is in that? She waved a hand. Not those names. Deep names. Tempe is not the name he was given by Magwin, just as Quoth is not yours. Deep names have meanings. I already knew what Vachette's name meant. What does Tempe mean? Tempe means little iron. Tampa means iron, and it means to strike iron, and it means angry. Shayan gave him that name years ago. He was the most troublesome student. In a Turin, temper means angry. I pointed it out rather excitedly, amazed at the coincidence. And it is also something you do with iron when forging it into steel. Vachette shrugged, unimpressed. That is the way of names. Tempe is a small name, and still it holds much. That is why you should not speak of yours, even to me. But I do not know your language well enough to tell what it means myself, I protested. A man should know the meaning of his own name. Vachette hesitated, then relented. It means flame and thunder and broken tree. I thought for a while and decided I liked it. When Magwin gave it to me, you seemed surprised. Why is that? It is not proper for me to comment on another's name. Absolute refusal. Her gesture was so sharp it almost hurt to look at. She came to her feet, then brushed her hands against her pants. Come. It is time you gave your answer to Shayan. Shayan motioned for us to sit as we entered her room. Then she took a seat herself, startling me by showing the smallest of smiles. It was a terribly flattering gesture of familiarity. Have you decided? she asked. I nodded. I thank you, Shayan, but I cannot stay. I must return to Severin to speak with the mayor. Tempe fulfilled his obligation when the road was made safe, but I am bound to return and explain everything that happened. I thought of Denna as well, but didn't mention her. Shayan gestured an elegant mingling of approval and regret. Fulfilling one's duty is of the Lethani. She gave me a serious look. Remember, you have a sword and a name, but you must not hire yourself out as if you had taken the red. Vachette has explained everything to me, 
I said, reassurance. I will make arrangements for my sword to be returned to Hert if I am killed. I will not teach the Katan or wear the red. Carefully attentive curiosity. But I am permitted to tell others I have studied fighting with you. Reserved agreement. You may say you have studied with us, but not that you are one of us. Of course, I said, and not that I am equal to you. Shayan gestured, content satisfaction. Then her hands shifted, and she made a small gesture of embarrassed admission. This is not entirely a gift, she said. You will be a better fighter than many barbarians. If you fight and win, the barbarians will think, Quoth studied only slightly the Adam arts, and still he is formidable. How much more skilled must they themselves be? However, if you fight and lose, they will think he only learned a piece of what the Adem know. The old woman's eyes twinkled ever so slightly. She gestured, amusement. No matter what, our reputation thrives. This serves Edemre. I nodded, willing acceptance. It will not hurt my reputation either, I said, understatement. There was a pause in the conversation, then Shayan gestured solemn importance. When we spoke before, you asked me of the Rinta. Do you remember? Shayan asked. From the corner of my eye, I saw Vashat shift uncomfortably in her seat. Suddenly excited, I nodded. I have remembered a story of such. Would you like to hear it? I gestured extreme eager interest. It is an old story, old as a Demre. It is always told the same. Are you ready to hear it? Profound formality. There was a hint of ritual in her voice. I nodded again, pleading entreaty. As with all things, there are rules. I will tell you this story once. After, you may not speak of it. After, you may not ask questions. Shayan looked back and forth between Vashat and myself. Grave seriousness. Not until you have slept one thousand nights may you speak on this. Not until you have traveled one thousand miles may you ask questions. Knowing this, are you willing to hear it? I nodded a third time, my excitement rising in me. Shayan spoke with great formality. Once there was a great realm peopled by great people. They were not Edemre. They were what Edemre was before we became ourselves. But at this time they were themselves, the women and men, fair and strong. They sang songs of power and fought as well as Edemre do. These people had a great empire. The name of the empire is forgotten. It is not important as the empire has fallen, and since that time the land has broken and the sky changed. In the empire there were seven cities and one city. The names of the seven cities are forgotten, for they are fallen to treachery and destroyed by time. The one city was destroyed as well, but its name remains. It was called Tarinial. The empire had an enemy, 
as strength must have, but the enemy was not great enough to pull it down. Not by pulling or pushing was the enemy strong enough to drag it down. The enemy's name is remembered, but it will wait. Since not by strength could the enemy win, he moved like a worm in fruit. The enemy was not of the Lethani. He poisoned seven others against the empire, and they forgot the Lethani. Six of them betrayed the cities that trusted them. Six cities fell, and their names are forgotten. One remembered the Lethani, and did not betray a city. That city did not fall. One of them remembered the Lethani, and the empire was left with hope. With one unfallen city. But even the name of that city is forgotten, buried in time. But seven names are remembered. The name of the one and of the six who follow him. Seven names have been carried through the crumbling of empire, through the broken land and changing sky. Seven names are remembered through the long wandering of Edemre. Seven names have been remembered, the names of the seven traitors. Remember them and know them by their seven signs. Cyphus bears the blue flame. Sturtius is in thrall of iron. Ferul chill and dark of eye. Usnia lives in nothing but decay. Grey Dalsenti never speaks. Pale Alenta brings the blight. Last, there is the Lord of Seven. Hated, hopeless, sleepless, sane. Alaxel bears the shadow's hame. Chapter 129 Interlude Din of Whispering Rashi! Bast cried out, his face stricken. No! Stop! He held out his hands as if he would press them against the innkeeper's mouth. You shouldn't say such things! Quoth smiled in a humorless way. Bast, who taught you your name, Lore, in the first place? Not you, Rashi! Bast shook his head. There are things every fey child knows. It's never good to speak such things aloud. Not ever. And why is that? Quoth prompted in his best teacher's voice. Because some things can tell when their names are spoken. Bast swallowed. They can tell where they're spoken. Quoth gave a somewhat exasperated sigh. There is small harm in saying a name once, Bast. He sat back in his chair. Why do you think the Adem have their traditions surrounding that particular story? Only once, and no questions after? Bast's eyes narrowed thoughtfully, and Quoth gave him a small, tight smile. Exactly. Trying to find someone who speaks your name once is like tracking a man through a forest from a single footprint. Chronicler spoke up hesitantly, as if afraid of interrupting. Can such a thing really be done? he asked. Truthfully? Quoth nodded grimly. I expect that's how they found my troop when I was young. Chronicler looked around nervously, then frowned and made an obvious effort to stop. The result was that he sat very still, looking every bit as nervous as before. Does that mean they might come here? You've certainly been talking about them enough. 
Quoth made a dismissive gesture. No. Names are the key. Real names. Deep names. And I have been avoiding them for just that reason. My father was a great one for details. He had been asking questions and digging up old stories about the Chandrian for years. I expect he stumbled onto a few of their old names and worked them into his song. Understanding washed over Chronicler's face. And then rehearsed it again and again. The innkeeper gave a faint, fond smile. Endlessly, if I knew him at all. I have no doubt he and my mother did their solid best to work every tiny burr out of their song before they made it public. They were perfectionists. He gave a tired sigh. To the Chandrian, he must have been like someone constantly lighting a signal fire. I expect the only thing that kept them safe for so long was that we were constantly traveling. Bast broke in again. Which is why you shouldn't say such things, Reshi. Quoth frowned. I have slept my thousand nights and traveled several thousand miles since then, Bast. It is safe to say them once. With all the hell that's breaking loose in the world these days, you can believe people are telling old stories more often. If the Chandrian are listening for names, I don't doubt they've got a slow din of whispering from Arua to the Circle Sea. Bast's expression made it clear he was less than reassured. Besides, Quoth said with a bit of a weary sigh, it's good to have them written down. They may prove useful to someone someday. Still, Reshi, you should be more careful. What have I been these last years except for careful, Bast? Quoth said, his irritation finally bubbling to the surface. What good has it done me? Besides, if what you say about the Cathay is true, then things will end in tears no matter what I do. Isn't that right? Bast opened his mouth, then closed it, obviously at a loss. Then he darted a look toward Chronicler, his eyes pleading for support. Seeing this, Quoth turned to look at Chronicler as well, raising an eyebrow curiously. I'm sure I don't know in the least, Chronicler said, looking down as he opened his satchel and brought out an ink-stained piece of cloth. Both of you have seen the full extent of my naming prowess. Iron. And that is a fluke by all accounts. Master Namer declared me an utter waste of his time. That sounds familiar, Quoth murmured. Chronicler shrugged. In my case, I took him at his word. Can you remember the excuse he gave you? He had many specific criticisms. I knew too many words. I'd never been hungry. I was too soft— Chronicler's hands were busy cleaning the nib of his pen. I felt he made his overall position clear when he said, Who would have thought a papery little scriv like you could have any iron in him at all? Quoth's mouth quirked into a sympathetic smile. Did he really? Chronicler shrugged. He called me a twat, actually. I was trying not to offend the innocent ears of our young friend here. He nodded at Bast. From what I can tell, he's had a rough day. Quoth smiled in full now. It's a shame we weren't ever at the university at the same time. Chronicler gave the nib one last rub against the soft cloth and held it up to the fading light from the inn's window. Not really, he said. You wouldn't have liked me. I was a papery little twat, and spoiled, and full of myself. And what's changed since then? Quoth asked. 
Chronicler blew air through his nose dismissively. Not much, depending who you ask. But I like to think I've had my eyes opened a bit. He screwed the nib carefully back into his pen. And how did that happen exactly? Quoth asked. Chronicler looked across the table, seeming surprised at the question. Exactly? he asked. Telling a story isn't what I'm here for. He tucked the cloth back into his satchel. In brief, I had a snit and left the university looking for greener pasture. Best thing I ever did. I learned more from a month on the road than I had in three years of classes. Quoth nodded. Tecum said the same thing. No man is brave that has never walked a hundred miles. If you want to know the truth of who you are, walk until not a person knows your name. Travel is the great leveler, the great teacher, bitter as medicine, crueler than mirror glass. A long stretch of road will teach you more about yourself than a hundred years of quiet introspection. Chapter 130 Wine and Water Saying my farewells in Hert took an entire day. I shared a meal with Vachette and Tempe, and let both of them give me more advice than I needed or desired. Celian cried a bit and told me she would come visit me when she finally took the red. We bowed one final time, and I suspect she let me win. Lastly, I spent a pleasant evening with Pentha that turned into a pleasant night and eventually into a pleasant late night. I did manage to catch a few hours of sleep in the pale hours before dawn. I grew up among the Rue, so I am endlessly amazed how quickly a person can put down roots in a place. Though I had been in Hert less than two months, it was hard to leave. Still, it felt good to be back on the road again, heading toward Alvaron and Denna. It was time I collected my reward for a job well done and delivered an earnest and rather belated apology. Five days later, I was walking one of those long, lonely stretches of road you only find in the low hills of eastern Vintus. I was, as my father used to say, on the edge of the map. I had only passed one or two travelers all day, and not a single inn. The thought of sleeping outdoors wasn't particularly troubling, but I had been eating from my pockets for a couple days, and a warm meal would have been a welcome thing. Night had nearly fallen, and I had given up hope of something decent in my stomach when I spotted a line of white smoke trailing into the twilight sky ahead of me. I took it for a farmhouse at first. Then I heard a faint strain of music, and my hopes for a bed and hearth-hot meal began to rise. But as I came around a curve in the road, I found a surprise better than any roadside inn. Through the trees I saw a tall campfire flickering between two achingly familiar wagons. Men and women lounged about, talking. One strummed a lute, while another tapped a small tabor idly against his leg. Others were pitching a tent between two trees while an older woman set a tripod over the fire. Troopers. What's better, I recognized familiar markings on the side of one of the wagons. To me, they stood out more brightly than the fire. Those signs meant that these were true troopers. My family, the Adimaru. As I stepped from the trees, one of the men gave a shout, and before I could draw breath to speak, there were three swords pointing at me. The sudden stillness after the music and chatter was more than slightly unnerving. A handsome man with a black beard and a silver earring took a slow step forward, never taking the tip of his sword off my eye. 
Otto! He shouted into the woods behind me. If you're napping, I swear on my mother's milk, I'll gut you! Who the hell are you? The last was directed at me. But before I could respond, a voice came out of the trees. I'm right here, Alec. As... Who's that? How in the God's name did he get past me? When they'd drawn their swords on me, I'd raised my hands. It's a good habit to have when anyone points something sharp at you. Nevertheless, I was smiling as I spoke. Sorry to startle you, Alec. Save it, he said coldly. You have one breath left to tell me why you were sneaking around our camp. I had no need to talk, and instead turned so everyone by the fire could see the loot case slung across my back. The change in Alec's attitude was immediate. He relaxed and sheathed his sword. The others followed suit as he smiled and approached me, laughing. I laughed, too. One family! One family! He shook my hand and turned toward the fire, shouting, Best behavior, everyone! We have a guest tonight! There was a low cheer, and everyone went busily back to whatever they had been doing before I arrived. A thick-bodied man wearing a sword stomped out of the trees. I'll be damned if he came past me, Alec! He's probably from... He's from our family, Alec interjected smoothly. Oh, Otto said, obviously taken aback. He looked at my loot. Welcome, then! I didn't go past, actually. I lied. When it was dark, my shade made me very difficult to see, but that wasn't his fault, and I didn't want to get him in trouble. I heard the music and circled around. I thought you might be a different troop, and I was going to surprise them. Otto gave Aleg a pointed look, then turned and stomped back into the woods. Aleg put his arm around my shoulders. Might I offer you a drink? A little water, if you can spare it. No guest drinks water by our fire, he protested. Only our best wine will touch your lips. The water of the edema is sweeter than wine to those who have been upon the road. I smiled at him. Then have water and wine, each to your desire. He led me to one of the wagons where there was a water barrel. Following a tradition older than time, I drank a ladle of water and used a second to wash my hands and face. Patting my face dry with the sleeve of my shirt, I looked up at him and smiled. It's good to be home again. He clapped me on the back. Come, let me introduce you to the rest of your family. First were two men of about twenty, both with scruffy beards. Fran and Josh are our two best singers, excepting myself, of course. I shook their hands. Next were the two men playing instruments around the fire. Gaskin plays lute. Laren does pipes and tabor. They smiled at me. Laren struck the head of the tabor with his thumb, and the drum made a mellow tum. There's Tim. Alec pointed across the fire to a tall, grim man oiling a sword. And you've already met Otto. They keep us from falling into danger on the road. Tim nodded, looking up briefly from his sword. This is Anne. Alec gestured to an older woman with a pinched expression and gray hair pulled back in a bun. She keeps us fed and plays mother to us all. Anne continued to cut carrots, ignoring both of us. And far from last is our own sweet Kate, who holds the key to all our hearts.
Kate had hard eyes and a mouth like a thin line, but her expression softened a little when I kissed her hand. And that's everyone, Aleg said with a smile and a little bow. Your name is? Quoth. Welcome, Quoth. Rest yourself and be at your ease. Is there anything we can do for you? A bit of that wine you mentioned earlier. I smiled. He touched the heel of his hand to his forehead. Of course! Or would you prefer ale? I nodded, and he fetched me a mug. Excellent, I said after tasting it, seating myself on a convenient stump. He tipped an imaginary hat. Thank you. We were lucky enough to nick it on our way through Levenshire a couple days ago. How has the road been treating you of late? I stretched backward and sighed. Not bad for a lone minstrel, I shrugged. I take advantage of what opportunities present themselves. I have to be careful since I'm alone. Alag nodded wisely. The only safety we have is in numbers, he admitted, then nodded to my lute. Would you favor us with a bit of a song while we're waiting for Anne to finish dinner? Certainly, I said, setting down my drink. What would you like to hear? Can you play Leave the Town Tinker? Can I? You tell me. I lifted my lute from its case and began to play. By the chorus, everyone had stopped what they were doing to listen. I even caught sight of Otto near the edge of the trees as he left his lookout to peer toward the fire. When I was done, everyone applauded enthusiastically. You can play it, Alag laughed. Then his expression became serious, and he tapped a finger to his mouth. How would you like to walk the road with us for a while? He asked after a moment. We could use another player. I took a moment to consider it. Which way are you heading? Easterly, he said. I'm bound for Severin, I said. Aleg shrugged. We can make it to Severin, he said, so long as you don't mind taking the long way around. I have been away from the family for a long time, I admitted, looking at the familiar sights around the fire. One is a bad number for an edema on the road, Aleg said persuasively, running a finger along the edge of his dark beard. I sighed. Ask me again in the morning. He slapped my knee, grinning. Good! That means we have all night to convince you. I replaced my lute and excused myself for a call of nature. Coming back, I knelt next to Anne where she sat near the fire. What are you making for us, mother? I asked. Stew, she said shortly. I smiled. What's in it? Anne squinted at me. Lamb, she said, as if daring me to challenge the fact. It's been a long while since I've had lamb, mother. Could I have a taste? You'll wait, same as everyone else, she said sharply. Not even a small taste? I wheedled, giving her my best ingratiating smile. The old woman drew a breath, then shrugged it away. Fine, she said, but it won't be my fault if your stomach sets to aching. I laughed. No, mother, it won't be your fault. I reached for the long-handled wooden spoon and drew it out. After blowing on it, I took a bite. Mother, I exclaimed. This is the best thing to touch my lips in a full year. Humph, she said, squinting at me. It's the first truth, mother, I said earnestly. Anyone who does not enjoy this fine stew is hardly one of the rue, in my opinion. 
Anne turned back to stir the pot and shooed me away, but her expression wasn't as sharp as it had been before. After stopping by the keg to refill my mug, I returned to my seat. Gaskin leaned forward. You've given us a song. Is there anything you'd like to hear? How about Piper Wit? I asked. His brow furrowed. I don't recognize that one. It's about a clever roux who outwits a farmer. Gaskin shook his head. I'm afraid not. I bent to pick up my lute. Let me. It's a song every one of us should know. Pick something else, Laren protested. I'll play you something on the pipes. You've played for us once already tonight. I smiled at him. I forgot you piped. You'll like this one, I assured him. Piper's the hero. Besides, you're feeding my belly. I'll feed your ears. Before they could raise any more objections, I started to play quick and light. They laughed through the whole thing. From the beginning when Piper kills the farmer to the end when he seduces the dead man's wife and daughter. I left off the last two verses where the townsfolk kill Piper. Laren wiped his eyes after I was done. Heh, <laughs> you're right, Quoth. I'm better off knowing that one. Besides, he shot a look at Kate where she sat across the fire. It's an honest song. Women can't keep their hands off a piper. Kate snorted derisively and rolled her eyes. We talked of small things until Anne announced the stew was done. Everyone fell to, breaking the silence only to compliment Anne on her cooking. Honestly, Anne, Aleg asked after his second bowl, did you lift a little pepper back in Levenshire? Anne looked smug. We all need our secrets, dear, she said. Don't press a lady. I asked Aleg. Have times been good for you and yours? Oh, certainly, he said between mouthfuls. Three days ago, Levenshire was especially good to us, he winked. You'll see how good later. I'm glad to hear it. In fact, he leaned forward conspiratorially. We've done so well that I feel quite generous. Generous enough to offer you anything you'd like. Anything at all. Ask and it's yours. He leaned closer and said in a stage whisper, I want you to know this is a blatant attempt to bribe you into staying on with us. We would make a thick purse off that lovely voice of yours. Not to mention the songs he could teach us, Gaskin chimed in. Alec gave a mock snarl. Don't help him bargain, boy. I have the feeling this is going to be hard enough as it is. I gave it a little thought. I suppose I could stay. I let myself trail off uncertainly. Alec gave a knowing smile. But? But I would ask for three things. Hmm, three things. He looked me up and down. Just like in one of the stories. It only seems right, I urged. He gave a hesitant nod. I suppose it does. And how long would you travel with us? Until no one objects to my leaving. Does anyone have any problem with this? Aleg looked around. What if he asks for one of the wagons? Tim asked. His voice startled me, harsh and rasping like two bricks grating together. It won't matter, as he'll be traveling with us, Aleg argued. 
They belong to all of us anyway, and since he can't leave unless we say so... There were no objections. Alag and I shook hands, and there was a small cheer. Kate held up her mug. To Quoth and his songs, she said. I have a feeling he'll be worth whatever he costs us. Everyone drank, and I held up my own glass. I swear on my mother's milk, none of you will ever make a better deal than the one you made with me tonight. This evoked a more enthusiastic cheer, and everyone drank again. Wiping his mouth, Aleg looked me in the eye. So, what is the first thing you want from us? I lowered my head. It's a little thing, really. I don't have a tent of my own. If I'm going to be traveling with my family... Say no more! Aleg waved his wooden mug like a king granting a boon. You'll have my own tent, piled with furs and blankets a foot deep. He made a gesture over the fire to where Fran and Josh sat. Go set it up for him. That's all right, I protested. I can manage it myself. Hush. It's good for them. Makes them feel useful. Speaking of which... He made another gesture at Tim. Bring them out, would you? Tim stood and pressed a hand to his stomach. I'll do it in a quick minute. I'll be right back. He turned to walk off into the woods. I don't feel very good. That's what you get for eating like you're at a trough, Otto called after him. He turned back to the rest of us. Someday he'll realize he can't eat more than me and not feel sick afterward. Since Tim's busy painting a tree, I'll go get them, Laren said with thinly veiled eagerness. I'm on guard tonight, Otto said. I'll do it. I'll get them, Kate said, exasperated. She stared the other two back into their seats and walked behind the wagon on my left. Josh and friend came out of the other wagon with a tent, ropes, and stakes. Where do you want it? Josh asked. That's not a question you usually have to ask a man, is it, Josh? Friend joked, nudging his friend with an elbow. I tend to snore, I warned them. You'll probably want me a little away from everyone else, I pointed. Over between those two trees would be fine. I mean, with a man, you normally know where they want it, don't you, Josh? Friend continued as they wandered off and began to string up the tent. Kate returned a minute later, leading a pair of lovely young girls. One had a lean body and face, with straight black hair cut short like a boy's. The other was more generously rounded, with curling golden hair. Both wore hopeless expressions and looked to be about sixteen. Meet Crin and Ellie, Kate said, gesturing to the girls. Aleg smiled. They are one of the ways in which Lavenshire was generous to us. Tonight, one of them will be keeping you warm. My gift to you as the new member in our family. He made a show of looking them over. Which one would you like? I looked from one to the other. That's a hard choice. Let me think on it a little while. Kate sat them near the edge of the fire and put a bowl of stew in each of their hands. The girl with the golden hair, Ellie, ate woodenly for a few bites, then slowed to a stop like a toy winding down. Her eyes looked almost blind, as if she were watching something none of us could see. Crin's eyes, on the other hand, were focused fiercely into the fire. She sat stiffly with her bowl in her lap. 
Girls? Aleg chided. Don't you know that things will get better as soon as you start cooperating? Ellie took another slow bite, then stopped. Kryn stared into the fire, her back stiff, her expression hard. From where she sat by the fire, Anne prodded at them with her wooden spoon. Eat! The response was the same as before. One slow bite. One tense rebellion. Scowling. Anne leaned closer and gripped the dark-haired girl firmly by the chin, her other hand reaching for the bowl of stew. Don't, I urged. They'll eat when they're hungry enough. Aleg looked up at me curiously. I know what I'm talking about. Give them something to drink instead. The old woman looked for a moment as if she might continue anyway, then shrugged and let go of Kryn's jaw. Fine. I'm sick of force-feeding this one anyway. She's been nothing but trouble. Kate sniffed in agreement. Little bitch came at me when I untied her for her bath, she said, brushing her hair away from the side of her face to reveal scratch marks. Almost took out my damn eye. Did a runner, too. Anne said, still scowling. I've had to start doping her at night. She made a disgusted gesture. Let her starve if she wants. Laren came back to the fire with two mugs, setting them in the girl's unresisting hands. Water? I asked. Ale, he said. It'll be better for them if they aren't eating. I stifled my protest. Ellie drank in the same vacant manner in which she had eaten. Kryn moved her eyes from the fire, to the cup, to me. I felt an almost physical shock at her resemblance to Denna. Still looking at me, she drank. Her hard eyes gave away nothing of what was happening inside her head. Bring them over to sit by me, I said. It might help me to make up my mind. Kate brought them over. Ellie was docile. Kryn was stiff. Be careful with this one, Kate said nodding to the dark-haired girl. She's a scratcher. Tim came back looking a little pale. He sat by the fire where Otto nudged him with an elbow. Want some more stew? He asked maliciously. Sod off, Tim rasped weakly. A little ale might settle your stomach, I advised. He nodded, seeming eager for anything that might help him. Kate fetched him a fresh mugful. By this time, the girls were sitting on either side of me, facing the fire. Closer, I saw things I had missed before. There was a dark bruise on the back of Kryn's neck. The blonde girl's wrists were merely chafed from being tied, but Kryn's were raw and scabbed. For all that, they smelled clean. Their hair was brushed, and their clothes had been washed recently. Kate had been tending to them. They were also much more lovely up close. I reached out to touch their shoulders. Kryn flinched, then stiffened. Ellie didn't react at all. From off in the direction of the trees, Friend called out, It's done! Do you want us to light a lamp for you? Yes, please, I called back. I looked from one girl to the other, then to Aleg. I cannot decide between the two, I told him honestly. So I will have both. Aleg laughed incredulously. Then, seeing I was serious, he protested. Oh, come now. That's hardly fair to the rest of us. Besides, you can't possibly... I gave him a frank look. Well, he hedged, even if you can, it... This is the second thing I ask for, I said formally. 
both of them. Otto made a cry of protest that was echoed in the expression of Gaskin and Laren. I smiled reassuringly at them. Only for tonight. Fran and Josh came back from setting up my tent. Be thankful he didn't ask for you, Otto, Fran said to the big man. That's what Josh would have asked for, isn't it, Josh? Shut your hole, Fran, Otto said, exasperated. Now I feel ill. I stood and slung my loot over one shoulder, then I led both lovely girls, one golden and one dark, toward my tent. Chapter 131 Black by Moonlight Fran and Josh had done a good job with the tent. It was tall enough to stand in the center, but still crowded with me and both girls standing. I gave the golden-haired one, Ellie, a gentle push toward the bed of thick blankets. Sit down, I said gently. When she didn't respond, I took her by the shoulders and eased her into a sitting position. She let herself be moved, but her blue eyes were wide and vacant. I checked her head for any signs of a wound. Not finding any, I guessed she was in deep shock. I took a moment and dug through my travel sack, then shook some powdered leaf into my traveling cup and added some water from my water skin. I set the cup into Ellie's hands, and she took hold of it absently. Drink it, I encouraged, trying to capture the tone of voice Valorian had used to gain my thoughtless compliance from time to time. It may have worked, or perhaps she was just thirsty. Whatever the reason, Ellie drained the cup to the bottom. Her eyes still held the same faraway look they had before. I shook another measure of the powdered leaf into the cup, refilled it with water, and held it out for the dark-haired girl to drink. We stayed there for several minutes, my arm outstretched, her arms motionless at her sides. Finally, she blinked, her eyes focusing on me. What did you give her? She asked. Crushed Velia, I said gently. It's a countertoxin. There was poison in the stew. Her eyes told me she didn't believe me. I didn't eat any of the stew. It was in the ale, too. I saw you drink that. Good, she said. I want to die. I gave a deep sigh. It won't kill you. It'll just make you miserable. You'll throw up and be weak with muscle cramps for a day or two. I raised the cup, offering it to her. Why do you care if they kill me? She asked tonelessly. If they don't do it now, they'll do it later. I'd rather die. She clenched her teeth before she finished the sentence. They didn't poison you. I poisoned them, and you happened to get some of it. I'm sorry, but this will help you over the worst of it. Crin's gaze wavered for a second, then became iron hard again. She looked at the cup, then fixed her gaze on me. If it's harmless, you drink it. I can't, I explained. It would put me to sleep, and I have things to do tonight. Crin's eyes darted to the bed of furs laid out on the floor of the tent. I smiled my gentlest, saddest smile. Not those sorts of things. She still didn't move. We stood there for a long while. I heard a muted retching sound from off in the woods. I sighed and lowered the cup, looking down. I saw Ellie had already curled up and gone to sleep. Her face looked almost peaceful. I took a deep breath and looked back up at Crin. 
You don't have any reason to trust me, I said, looking straight into her eyes. Not after what has happened to you. But I hope you will. I held out the cup again. She met my eyes without blinking, then reached for the cup. She drank it off in one swallow, choked a little, and sat down. Her eyes stayed hard as marble as she stared at the wall of the tent. I sat down, slightly apart from her. In fifteen minutes, she was asleep. I covered the two of them with a blanket and watched their faces. In sleep, they were even more beautiful than before. I reached out to brush a strand of hair from Crin's cheek. To my surprise, she opened her eyes and stared at me. Not the marble stare she had given me before. She looked at me with the dark eyes of a young Denna. I froze with my hand on her cheek. We watched each other for a second. Then her eyes drew closed again. I couldn't tell if it was the drug pulling her under or her own will surrendering to sleep. I settled myself at the entrance of the tent and lay Sasura across my knees. I felt rage like a fire inside me, and the sight of the two sleeping girls was like a wind fanning the coals. I set my teeth and forced myself to think of what had happened here, letting the fire burn fiercely, letting the heat of it fill me. I drew deep breaths, tempering myself for what was to come. I waited for three hours, listening to the sounds of the camp. Muted conversation drifted toward me, shapes of sentences with no individual words. They faded, mixing with cursing and sounds of people being ill. I took long, slow breaths as Vachette had shown me, relaxing my body, slowly counting my exhalations. Then, opening my eyes, I looked at the stars and judged the time to be right. I slowly unfolded myself from my sitting position and made a long, slow stretch. There was a solid crescent of moon hanging in the sky, and everything seemed very bright. I approached the campfire slowly. It had fallen to sullen coals that did little to light the space between the two wagons. Otto was there, his huge body slumped against one of the wheels. I smelled vomit. Is that you, Kvolth? he asked blurrily. Yes. I continued my slow walk toward him. That bitch Anne didn't let the lamb cook through, he moaned. I swear to holy God I've never been this sick before. He looked up at me. Are you all right? Sisura leapt, caught the moonlight briefly on her blade, and tore his throat. He staggered to one knee, then toppled to his side, his hands staining black as they clutched his neck. I left him bleeding darkly in the moonlight, unable to cry out, dying, but not dead. I tossed a piece of brittle iron into the coals of the fire and headed toward the other tents. Laren startled me as I came around the wagon. He made a surprised noise as he saw me walk around the corner with my naked sword. But the poison had made him sluggish, and he had barely managed to raise his hands before Sasura took him in the chest. He choked a scream as he fell backward, writhing on the ground. None of them had been sleeping soundly due to the poison, so Laren's cry set them pouring from the wagons and tents, staggering and looking around wildly. Two indistinct shapes that I knew must be Josh and Fren leapt from the open back of the wagon closest to me. I struck one in the eye before he hit the ground and tore the belly from the other. Everyone saw, and now there were screams in earnest. Most of them began to run drunkenly into the trees, 
some falling as they went. But the tall shape of Tim hurled itself at me. The heavy sword he had been sharpening all evening glinted silver in the moonlight. But I was ready. I slid a second, long, brittle piece of sword iron into my hand and muttered a binding. Then, just as he came close enough to strike, I snapped the iron sharply between my fingers. His sword shattered with the sound of a broken bell, and the pieces tumbled and disappeared in the dark grass. Tim was more experienced than me, stronger and with longer reach. Even poisoned and with half a sword, he made a good showing of himself. It took me nearly half a minute before I snuck past his guard with lover out the window and severed his hand at the wrist. He fell to his knees, letting out a raspy howl and clutching at the stump. I struck him high in the chest and headed for the trees. The fight hadn't taken long, but every second was vital as the others were already scattering into the woods. I hurried in the direction I'd seen one of the dark shapes stagger. I was careless, so when Alec threw himself on me from the shadow of a tree, he caught me unaware. He didn't have a sword, only a small knife flashing in the moonlight as he dove for me. But a knife is enough to kill a man. He stabbed me in the stomach as we rolled to the ground. I struck the side of my head against a root and tasted blood. I fought my way to my feet before he did and cut the hamstring on his leg. Then I stabbed him in the stomach and left him cursing on the ground as I went to hunt the others. I held one hand tight across my stomach. I knew the pain would hit me soon, and after that... I might not have long to live. It was a long night, and I will not trouble you with any further details. I found all the rest of them as they made their way through the forest. Anne had broken her leg in her reckless flight, and Tim made it nearly half a mile despite the loss of his hand and the wound in his chest. They shouted and cursed and begged for mercy as I stalked them through the forest, but nothing they said could appease me. It was a terrible night but I found them all. There was no honor to it, no glory. But there was justice of a sort, and blood, and in the end, I brought their bodies back. I came back to my tent as the sky was beginning to color to a familiar blue. A sharp, hot line of pain burned a few inches below my navel, and I could tell from the unpleasant tugging when I moved that dried blood had matted my shirt to the wound. I ignored the feeling as best I could, knowing I could do nothing for myself with my hands shaking and no decent light to see by. I'd have to wait for dawn to see how badly I was hurt. I tried not to dwell on what I knew from my work in the Medica. Any deep wound to the gut promises a long, painful trip to the grave. A skilled physiker with the right equipment could make a difference, but I couldn't be farther from civilization. I might as well wish for a piece of the moon. I wiped my sword, sat in the wet grass in front of the tent, and began to think. Chapter 132 The Broken Circle I had been busy for more than an hour when the sun finally peered over the tops of the trees and began to burn the dew from the grass. I had found a flat rock and was using it as a makeshift anvil to hammer a spare horseshoe into a different shape. Above the fire, a pot of oats was boiling. I was just putting the finishing touches on the horseshoe when I saw a flicker of movement from the corner of my eye. It was Crin peeking around the corner of the wagon. I guessed I'd woken her with the sound of hammering iron. Oh, my God! Her hand went to her mouth, and she took a couple stunned steps out from behind the wagon. You killed them! 
Yes, I said simply, my voice sounding dead in my ears. Crin's eyes ran up and down my body, staring at my torn and bloody shirt. Are— Her voice caught in her throat, and she swallowed. Are you all right? I nodded silently. When I'd finally worked up the courage to examine my wound, I discovered that Felurian's cloak had saved my life. Instead of spilling open my guts, Aleg's knife had merely given me a long, shallow cut across my belly. He had also ruined a perfectly good shirt, but I had a hard time feeling bad about that, all things considered. I examined the horseshoe, then used a damp leather strap to tie it firmly to one end of a long, straight branch. I pulled the kettle of oats off the fire and thrust the horseshoe into the coals. Seeming to recover from some of her shock, Crin slowly approached, eyeing the row of bodies on the other side of the fire. I had done nothing other than lay them out in a rough line. It wasn't tidy. Blood stained the bodies, and their wounds gaped openly. Crin stared as if she were afraid they might start to move again. What are you doing? she asked finally. In answer, I pulled the now hot horseshoe from the coals of the fire and approached the nearest body. It was Tim. I pressed the hot iron against the back of his remaining hand. The skin smoked and hissed and stuck to the metal. After a moment, I pulled it away, leaving a black burn against his white skin. A broken circle. I moved back to the fire and began to heat the iron again. Crin stood mutely, too stunned to react normally. Not that there could be a normal way to react in a situation like this, I suppose. But she didn't scream or run off as I thought she might. She simply looked at the broken circle and repeated, What are you doing? When I finally spoke, my voice sounded strange to my own ears. All of the Edema Rue are one family, I explained. Like a closed circle. It doesn't matter if some of us are strangers to others. We are still family. Still close. We have to be this way, because we are always strangers wherever we go. We are scattered, and people hate us. We have laws. Rules we follow. When one of us does a thing that cannot be forgiven or mended, if he jeopardizes the safety or the honor of the Adimaru, he is killed and branded with the broken circle to show he is no longer one of us. It is rarely done. There is rarely a need. I pulled the iron from the fire and walked to the next body, Otto. I pressed it to the back of his hand and listened to it hiss. These were not Edema Rue, but they made themselves out to be. They did things no Edema would do, so I'm making sure the world knows they were not a part of our family. The Rue do not do the sort of things that these men did. But the wagons, she protested. The instruments. They were not Edema Rue, I said firmly. They probably weren't even real troopers. Just a group of thieves who killed a band of Rue and tried to take their place. Crin stared at the bodies then back at me. So you killed them for pretending to be Edema Rue? For pretending to be Rue? No. 
I put the iron back in the fire. For killing a Rue troop and stealing their wagons? Yes. For what they did to you? Yes. But if they aren't Rue... Kryn looked at the brightly painted wagons. How... I'm curious about that myself, I said, pulling the broken circle from the fire again. I moved to Aleg and pressed it onto his palm. The false trooper jerked and screamed himself awake. He isn't dead! Kryn exclaimed shrilly. I had examined the wound earlier. He's dead, I said coldly. He just hasn't stopped moving yet. I turned to look him in the eye. How about it, Aleg? How did you come by a pair of edema wagons? Rube bastard! He cursed at me with blurry defiance. Yes, I said. I am. And you are not. So how did you learn my family's signs and customs? How did you know? He asked. We knew the words. The handshake. We knew water and wine and songs before supper. How did you know? You thought you could fool me? I said, feeling my anger coiling inside me again like a spring. This is my family. How could I not know? Rue don't do what you did. Rue don't steal. Don't kidnap girls. Aleg shook his head with a mocking smile. There was blood on his teeth. Everyone knows what you people do. My temper exploded. Everyone thinks they know. They think rumor is the truth. Rue don't do this. I gestured wildly around me. People only think those things because of people like you. My anger flared even hotter, and I found myself screaming. Now tell me what I want to know or God will weep when he hears what I've done to you. Alec paled and had to swallow before he found his voice. There was an old man and his wife and a couple other players. I traveled guard with them for half a year. Eventually, they took me in. He ran out of breath and gasped a bit as he tried to get it back. He'd said enough. So you killed them. Aleg shook his head vigorously. No. We were attacked on the road. He gestured weakly to the other bodies. They surprised us. The other players were killed. But I was just... knocked out. I looked over the line of bodies and felt the rage flare up, even though I'd already known. There was no other way these people could have come by a pair of edema wagons with their markings intact. Aleg was talking again. I showed them afterward. How to act like a troop. He swallowed against the pain. Good life. I turned away, disgusted. He was one of us, in a way. One of our adopted family. It made everything ten times worse knowing that. I pushed the horseshoe into the coals of the fire again, then looked to the girl as it heated. Her eyes had gone to flint as she watched Aleg. Not sure if it was the right thing to do, I offered her the brand. Her face went hard, and she took it. 
Alec didn't seem to understand what was about to happen until she had the hot iron against his chest. He shrieked and twisted, but lacked the strength to get away as she pressed it hard against him. She grimaced as he struggled weakly against the iron, her eyes brimming with angry tears. After a long minute, she pulled the iron away and stood, crying quietly. I let her be. Aleg looked up at her and somehow managed to find his voice. Ah, girl. We had some good times, didn't we? She stopped crying and looked at him. Don't. I kicked him sharply in the side before he could say anything else. He stiffened in mute pain and then spat blood at me. I landed another kick and he went limp. Not knowing what else to do, I took back the brand and began heating it again. There was a long silence. Is Ellie still asleep? I asked. Crin nodded. Do you think it would help for her to see this? She thought about it, wiping at her face with a hand. I don't think so, she said finally. I don't think she could see it right now. She's not right in her head. The two of you are from Levenshire? I asked to keep the silence at arm's length. My family farms just north of Levenshire, Crin said. Ellie's father is mayor. When did these come into your town? I asked as I set the brand to the back of another hand. The sweet smell of charred flesh was becoming thick in the air. What day is it? I counted in my head. Felling. They came into town on Thaden. She paused. Five days ago? Her voice was tinged with disbelief. We were glad to have the chance to see a play and hear the news. Here's some music. She looked down. They were camped on the east edge of town. When I came to get my fortune read, they told me to come back that night. They seemed so friendly, so exciting. Crin looked at the wagons. When I showed up, they were all sitting around the fire. They sang me songs. The old woman gave me some tea. I didn't even think. I mean, she looked like my gran. Her eyes strayed to the body of the old woman, then away. Then, I don't remember what happened. I woke up in the dark, in one of the wagons. I was tied up and I... Her voice broke a little, and she rubbed absent-mindedly at her wrists. She glanced back at the tent. I guess Ellie got an invitation, too. I finished branding the backs of their hands. I had been planning to do their faces, too, but the iron was slow to heat in the fire, and I was quickly growing sick of the work. I hadn't slept at all, and the anger that had burned so hot for so long was in its final flicker, leaving me feeling cold and numb. I made a gesture to the pot of oats I'd pulled off the fire. Are you hungry? Yes, she said, then darted a look toward the bodies. No. Me neither. Go wake up Ellie, and we can get you home. Crin hurried off to the tent. After she disappeared inside, I turned to the line of bodies. Does anyone object to my leaving the troop? I asked. None of them did. 
so I left. Chapter 133 Dreams It was an hour's work to drive the wagons into a thick piece of forest and hide them. I destroyed their edema markings and unhitched the horses. There was only one saddle, so I loaded the other two horses with food and whatever other portable valuables I could find. When I returned with the horses, Kryn and Ellie were waiting for me. More precisely, Kryn was waiting. Ellie was merely standing nearby, her expression vacant, her eyes empty. Do you know how to ride? I asked Kryn. She nodded, and I handed her the reins to the saddled horse. She got one foot in the stirrup and stopped, shaking her head. She brought her foot back down slowly. I'll walk. Do you think Ellie would stay on a horse? Kryn looked over to where the blonde girl was standing. One of the horses nuzzled her curiously and got no response. Probably, but I don't think it would be good for her after... I nodded in understanding. We'll all walk then. What is the heart of the Lathani? I asked Vachette. Success and right action. Which is the more important, success or rightness? They are the same. If you act rightly, success follows. But others may succeed by doing wrong things, I pointed out. Wrong things never lead to success, Vachette said firmly. If a man acts wrongly and succeeds, that is not the way. Without the Lethani, there is no true success. Sir? A voice called. Sir? My eyes focused on Kryn. Her hair was windblown, her young face tired. She looked at me timidly. Sir, it's getting dark. I looked around and saw twilight creeping in from the east. I was bone-weary and had fallen into a walking doze after we had stopped for lunch at midday. Just call me Kvoth, Kryn. Thanks for jogging my elbow. My mind was somewhere else. Kryn gathered wood and started a fire. I unsaddled the horses, then fed and rubbed them down. I took a few minutes to set up the tent, too. Normally, I don't bother with such things, but there had been room for it on the horses, and I guessed the girls weren't used to sleeping out of doors. After I finished with the tent, I realized I'd only brought one extra blanket from the troop's supplies. There would be a chill tonight, too, if I was any judge of such things. Dinner's ready, I heard Kryn call. I tossed my blanket and the spare one into the tent and headed back to where she was finishing up. She'd done a good job with what was available. Potato soup with bacon and toasted bread. There was a green summer squash nestled into the coals as well. Ellie worried me. She had been the same all day, walking listlessly, never speaking or responding to anything Kryn or I said to her. Her eyes would follow things, but there was no thought behind them. Kryn and I had discovered the hard way that if left to herself she would stop walking or wander off the road if something caught her eye. Kryn handed me a bowl and spoon as I sat down. It smells good, I complimented her. She half-smiled and dished a second bowl for herself. She started to fill a third bowl, then hesitated, realizing Ellie couldn't feed herself. Would you like some soup, Ellie? I asked in normal tones. It smells good. 
She sat blankly by the fire, staring into nothing. Do you want to share mine? I asked, as if it were the most natural thing in the world. I moved closer to her and blew on a spoonful to cool it. Here you go. Ellie ate it mechanically, turning her head slightly in my direction toward the spoon. Her eyes reflected the dancing patterns of the fire. They were like the windows of an empty house. I blew on another spoonful and held it out to the blonde girl. She opened her mouth only when the spoon touched her lips. I moved my head, trying to see past the dancing firelight in her eyes, desperately hoping to see something behind them. Anything. I bet you're an L, aren't you? I said conversationally. I looked at Crin. Short for Ellie? Crin shrugged helplessly. We weren't friends, really. She's just Ellie Anwater, the mayor's daughter. It sure was a long walk today, I continued, speaking in the same easy tone. How do your feet feel, Crin? Crin continued to watch me with her serious dark eyes. A little sore? Mine too. I can't wait to get my shoes off. Are your feet sore, Elle? No response. I fed her another bite. It was pretty hot, too. It should cool off tonight, though. Good sleeping weather. Won't that be nice, Elle? No response. Crin continued to watch me from the other side of the fire. I took a bite of soup for myself. This is truly fine, Crin, I said earnestly, then turned back to the vacant girl. It's a good thing we have Crin to cook for us, Elle. Everything I cook tastes like horse shit. On her side of the fire, Crin tried to laugh with a mouthful of soup with predictable results. I thought I saw a flicker in Elle's eyes. If I had some horse apples, I could make us a horse apple pie for dessert, I offered. I could make some tonight if you want. I trailed off, making it a question. Elle gave the slightest frown. A small wrinkle creased her forehead. You're probably right, I said. It wouldn't be very good. Would you like more soup instead? The barrist nod. I gave her a spoonful. It's a little salty, though. You probably want some water. Another nod. I handed her the water skin, and she lifted it to her own lips. She drank for a long, long minute. She was probably parched from our long walk today. I would have to watch her more closely tomorrow to make sure she drank enough. Would you like a drink, Crin? Yes, please, Crin said, her eyes fixed on Elle's face. Moving automatically, Elle held the water skin out toward Crin, holding it directly over the fire with the shoulder strap dragging in the coals. Crin grabbed it quickly, then added a belated, Thank you, Elle. I kept a slow stream of conversation going through the whole meal. Elle fed herself toward the end of it, and though her eyes were clearer, it was as if she were looking at the world through a sheet of frosted glass, seeing but not seeing. Still, it was an improvement. After she ate two bowls of soup and half a loaf of bread, her eyes began to bob closed. Would you like to go to sleep, Elle? I asked. A more definite nod. Should I carry you to the tent? Her eyes snapped open at this, and she shook her head firmly. Maybe Crin would help you get ready for bed if you asked her. 
Elle turned to look in Kryn's direction. Her mouth moved in a vague way. Kryn darted a glance at me and I nodded. Let's go and get tucked in then, Kryn said, sounding every bit the older sister. She came over and took Elle's hand, helping her to her feet. As they went into the tent, I finished off the soup and ate a piece of bread that had been too badly burnt for either of the girls. Before too long, Kryn came back to the fire. Is she sleeping? I asked. Before she hit the pillow. Do you think she'll be all right? She was in deep shock. Her mind had stepped through the doors of madness to protect itself from what was happening. It's probably just a matter of time, I said tiredly, hoping it was the truth. The young heal quickly. I chuckled humorlessly as I realized she was probably only about a year younger than me. I felt every year twice tonight, some of them three times. Despite the fact that I felt covered in lead, I forced myself to my feet and helped Kryn clean the dishes. I sensed her growing unease as we finished cleaning up and re-picketing the horses to a fresh piece of grazing. The tension grew worse as we approached the tent. I stopped and held the flap open for her. I'll sleep out here tonight. Her relief was tangible. Are you sure? I nodded. She slipped inside, and I let the flap fall closed behind her. Her head poked out almost immediately, followed by a hand holding a blanket. I shook my head. You'll need them both. There'll be a chill tonight. I pulled my shade around me and lay directly in front of the tent. I didn't want Elle wandering out during the night and getting lost or hurt. Won't you be cold? I'll be fine, I said. I was tired enough to sleep on a running horse. I was tired enough to sleep under a running horse. Kryn ducked her head back into the tent. Soon, I heard her nestling into the blankets. Then everything was quiet. I remembered the startled look on Otto's face as I cut his throat. I heard Aleg struggle weakly and curse me as I dragged him back to the wagons. I remembered the blood, the way it had felt against my hands, the thickness of it. I had never killed anyone like that before. Not coldly, not close up. I remembered how warm their blood had been. I remembered the way Kate had cried as I stalked her through the woods. It was them or me! She had screamed hysterically. I didn't have a choice! It was them or me! I lay awake a long while. When I finally slept, the dreams were worse. Chapter 134 The Road to Levenshire We made poor time the next day as Kryn and I were forced to lead the three horses and L besides. Luckily, the horses were well behaved, as edema-trained horses tend to be. If they had been as wayward-witted as the poor mayor's daughter, we might never have made it to Levenshire at all. Even so, the horses were almost more trouble than they were worth. The glossy roan in particular liked to wander off into the underbrush, foraging. Three times now I'd had to drag him out, and we were irritated with each other. I'd named him Burback for obvious reasons. The fourth time I had to pull him back onto the road, I seriously considered cutting him loose to save myself the trouble. I didn't, of course. A good horse is the same as money in your pocket, and it would be quicker to ride back to Severin than walk the whole way. Kryn and I did our best to keep Elle engaged in conversation as we walked. It seemed to help a bit. 
and by the time our noon meal came around, she seemed almost aware of what was going on around her. Almost. I had an idea as we were getting ready to set out again after lunch. I led our dappled gray mare over to where Elle stood. Her golden hair was one great tangle, and she was trying to run one of her hands through it while her eyes wandered around in a distracted way, as if she didn't quite understand where she was. L, She turned to look. Have you met Greytail? I gestured to the mare. A faint, confused shake of the head. I need your help leading her. Have you led a horse before? A nod. She needs someone to take care of her. Can you do it? Greytail looked at me with one large eye, as if to let me know she needed leading as much as I needed wheels to walk. But then she lowered her head a bit and nuzzled Elle in a motherly way. The girl reached out a hand to pet her nose almost automatically, then took the reins from me. Do you think that's a good idea? Crin asked when I came back to pack the other horses. Greytail is gentle as a lamb. Just because Elle is witless as a sheep... Crin said archly, doesn't make them a good pairing. I cracked a smile at that. We'll watch them close for an hour or so. If it doesn't work, it doesn't. But sometimes, the best help a person can find is helping someone else. Since I had slept poorly, I was twice weary today. My stomach was sour, and I felt gritty, like someone had sanded the first two layers of my skin away. I was almost tempted to doze in the saddle, but I couldn't bring myself to ride while the girls walked. So I plodded along, leading my horse and nodding on my feet. But today, I couldn't fall into the comfortable half-sleep I tend to use when walking. I was plagued with thoughts of Alec, wondering if he was still alive. I knew from my time in the Medica that the gut wound I'd given him was fatal. I also knew it was a slow death. Slow and painful. With proper care, it might be a full span of days before he died. Even alone in the middle of nowhere, he could live for days with such a wound. Not pleasant days. He would grow delirious with fever as the infection set in. Every movement would tear the wound open again. He couldn't walk on his hamstrung leg either. So if he wanted to move, he'd have to crawl. He would be cramped with hunger and burning with thirst by now but not dead from thirst. No. I had left a full water skin nearby. I had laid it at his side before we left. Not out of kindness. Not to make his last hours more bearable. I had left it because I knew that with water, he would live longer, suffer more. Leaving him that water skin was the most terrible thing I'd ever done, and now that my anger had cooled to ashes, I regretted it. I wondered how much longer he would live because of it. A day? Two? Certainly no more than two. I tried not to think of what those two days would be like. But even when I forced thoughts of Aleg from my mind, I had other demons to fight. I remembered bits and pieces of that night. The things the false troopers had said as I cut them down. The sounds my sword had made as it dug into them the smell of their skin as I had branded them. I had killed two women. What would Vachette think of my actions? What would anyone think? Exhausted from worry and lack of sleep, my thoughts spun in these circles for the remainder of the day. 
I set up camp from force of habit and kept up a conversation with L through an effort of sheer will. The time for sleep came before I was ready, and I found myself rolled in my shade in the front of the girl's tent. I was dimly aware that Kryn had started giving me the same worried look she'd been giving L for the past two days. I lay wide-eyed for an hour before falling asleep, wondering about Aleg. When I slept, I dreamed of killing them. In my dream, I stalked the forest like grim death unwavering. But it was different this time. I killed Otto, his blood spattering my hands like hot grease. Then I killed Laren and Josh and Tim. They moaned and screamed, twisting on the ground. Their wounds were horrible, but I could not look away. Then the faces changed. I was killing Terran, the bearded ex-mercenary in my troop. Then I killed Trip. Then I was chasing Shandy through the forest, my sword naked in my hand. She was crying out, weeping in fear. When I finally caught her, she clutched at me, knocking me to the ground, burying her face in my chest, sobbing, No, 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 she begged. No, no, no. I came awake. I lay on my back, terrified, and not knowing where my dream ended and the world began. After a brief moment, I realized the truth. L had crawled from the tent and lay curled against me, her face pressed against my chest, her hand grasping desperately at my arm. No, no, she choked out. No, 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 no. Her body shook with helpless sobs when she couldn't say it anymore. My shirt was wet with hot tears, my arm was bleeding where she clutched it. I made consoling noises and brushed at her hair with my hand. After a long while, she quieted and eventually fell into an exhausted sleep, still clinging tightly to my chest. I lay very still, not wanting to wake her by moving. My teeth were clenched. I thought of Aleg and Otto and all the rest. I remembered the blood and screaming and the smell of burning skin. I remembered it all and dreamed of worse things I could have done to them. I never had the nightmares again. Sometimes I think of Aleg and I smile. We made it to Levenshire the next day. Elle had come to her senses but remained quiet and withdrawn. Still, things went more quickly now, especially as the girls decided they had recovered enough to take turns riding Greytail. We covered six miles before we stopped at midday, with the girls becoming increasingly excited as they began to recognize parts of the countryside. The shape of hills in the distance, a crooked tree by the road. But as we grew closer to Levenshire, they grew quiet. It's just over the rise there, Kryn said, getting down off the roan. You ride from here, El. El looked from her to me to her feet. She shook her head. I watched them. Are the two of you okay? My father's going to kill me. Kryn's voice was barely a whisper, her face full of serious fear. Your father will be one of the happiest men in the world tonight, I said, then thought it best to be honest. He might be angry, too, but that's only because he's been scared out of his mind for the last eight days. Kryn seemed slightly reassured, but Elle burst out crying. Kryn put her arms around her, making gentle sounds. No one will marry me, Elle sobbed. 
I was going to marry Jason Watterson and help him run his store. He won't marry me now. No one will. I looked up to Crin and saw the same fear reflected in her wet eyes. But Crin's eyes were angry, while Elle's held nothing but despair. Any man who thinks that way is a fool, I said, weighting my voice with all the conviction I could bring to bear. And the two of you are too clever and too beautiful to be marrying fools. It seemed to calm Elle somewhat, her eyes turning up at me as if looking for something to believe. It's the truth, I said, and none of this was your fault. Make sure you remember that for these next couple days. I hate them, Elle spat, surprising me with her sudden rage. I hate men! Her knuckles were white as she gripped Greytail's reins. Her face twisted into a mask of anger. Crin put her arms around Elle, but when she looked at me, I saw the sentiment reflected quietly in her dark eyes. You have every right to hate them, I said, feeling more anger and helplessness than ever before in my life. But I'm a man, too. Not all of us are like that. We stayed there for a while, not more than a half mile from town. We had a drink of water and a small bite to settle our nerves, and then I took them home. Chapter 135 Homecoming Levenshire wasn't a big town. Two hundred people lived there, maybe three if you counted the outlying farms. It was mealtime when we rode in, and the dirt road that split the town in half was empty and quiet. Elle told me her house was on the far side of town. I hoped to get the girls there without being seen. They were worn down and distraught. The last thing they needed was to face a mob of gossipy neighbors. But it wasn't meant to be. We were halfway through the town when I saw a flicker of movement in a window. A woman's voice cried out, Elle? And in ten seconds, people began to spill from every doorway in sight. The women were the quickest, and inside a minute, a dozen of them had formed a protective knot around the two girls, talking and crying and hugging each other. The girls didn't seem to mind. Perhaps it was better this way. A warm welcome might do a lot to heal them. The men held back, knowing they were useless in situations like this. Most watched from doorways or porches. Six or eight came down onto the street, moving slowly and eyeing up the situation. These were cautious men, farmers and friends of farmers. They knew the names of everyone within ten miles of their homes. There were no strangers in a town like Levenshire, except for me. None of the men were close relatives to the girls. Even if they were, they knew they wouldn't get near them for at least an hour, maybe as much as a day, so they let their wives and sisters take care of things. With nothing else to occupy them, their attention wandered briefly past the horses and settled on to me. I motioned over a boy of ten or so. Go tell the mayor his daughter's back. Run! He tore off in a cloud of road dust, his bare feet flying. The men moved slowly closer to me, their natural suspicion of strangers made ten times worse by recent events. A boy of twelve or so wasn't as cautious as the rest and came right up to me, eyeing my sword, my cloak. What's your name? I asked him. Pete. 
Can you ride a horse, Pete? He looked insulted. Snuff? Do you know where the Walker farm is? He nodded. About north two miles by the millway. I stepped sideways and handed him the reins to the roan. Go tell them their daughter's home. Then, let them use the horse to come back to town. He had a leg over the horse before I could offer him a hand up. I kept a hand on the reins long enough to shorten the stirrups so he wouldn't kill himself on the way there. If you make it there and back without breaking your head or my horse's leg, I'll give you a penny, I said. You'll give me two, he said. I laughed. He wheeled the horse around and was gone. The men had wandered closer in the meantime, gathering around me in a loose circle. A tall, balding fellow with a scowl and a grizzled beard seemed to appoint himself leader. So, who are you? he asked, his tone speaking more clearly than his words. Who the hell are you? Quoth, I answered pleasantly. And yourself? Don't know as that's any of your business, he growled. What are you doing here? What the hell are you doing here with our two girls? God's mother, Seth, an older man said to him. You don't have the sense God gave a dog. That's no way to talk to the... Don't give me any of your lip, Benjamin, the scowling man bristled back. We got a good right to know who he is. He turned to me and took a few steps in front of everyone else. You one of those trooper bastards what came through here? I shook my head and attempted to look harmless. No, I think you are. I think you look kind of like one of them Rue. You got them eyes. The men around him craned to get a better look at my face. God, Seth, the old fellow chimed in again. None of them had red hair. You remember hair like that. He ain't one of them. Why would I bring them back if I'd been one of the men who took them? I pointed out. His expression grew darker, and he continued his slow advance. You getting smart with me, boy? Maybe you think all of us are stupid here. You think if you bring them back, you'll get a reward, or maybe we won't send anyone else out after you. He was almost within arm's reach of me now, scowling furiously. I looked around and saw the same anger lurking in the faces of all the men who stood there. It was the sort of anger that comes to a slow boil inside the hearts of good men who want justice, and finding it out of their grasp, decide vengeance is the next best thing. I tried to think of a way to calm the situation, but before I could do anything, I heard Crin's voice lash out from behind me. Seth, you get away from him! Seth paused his hands half-raised against me. Now! Crin was already stepping toward him. The knot of women loosened to release her, but stayed close. He saved us, Seth! She shouted furiously. You stupid shit-eater! He saved us! Where the hell were all of you? Why didn't you come get us? He backed away from me as anger and shame fought their way across his face. Anger won. We came! he shouted back. After we found out what happened, we went after him. They shot out Bill's horse from under him, and he got his leg crushed. Jim got his arm stabbed, and old Cupper still ain't waked up from the thumping they gave him. 
They almost killed us. I looked again and saw anger on the men's faces, saw the real reason for it, the helplessness they had felt, unable to defend their town from the false troops' rough handling. Their failure to reclaim the daughters of their friends and neighbors had shamed them. Well, it wasn't good enough, Crin shouted back hotly, her eyes burning. He came and got us because he's a real man, not like the rest of you who left us to die. The anger leapt out of a young man to my left, a farm boy, about seventeen. None of this would have happened if you hadn't been running around like some rue whore. I broke his arm before I quite realized what I was doing. He screamed as he fell to the ground. I pulled him to his feet by the scruff of his neck. What's your name? I snarled into his face. My arm! He gasped, his eyes showing me their whites. I shook him like a rag doll. Name! Jason! He blurted. God's mother, my arm! I took his chin in my free hand and turned his face toward Crin and L. Jason, I hissed quietly in his ear, I want you to look at those girls, and I want you to think about the hell they've been through in these past days, tied hand and foot in the back of a wagon, and I want you to ask yourself what's worse, a broken arm or getting kidnapped by a stranger and raped four times a night. Then I turned his face toward me and spoke so quiet that even an inch away it was hardly a whisper. After you've thought of that, I want you to pray to God to forgive you for what you just said. And if you mean it, Telu grant your arm heal straight and true. His eyes were terrified and wet. After that, if you ever think an unkind thought about either of them, your arm will ache like there's hot iron in the bone. And if you ever say an unkind word, it will go to fever and slow rot, and they'll have to cut it off to save your life. I tightened my grip on him, watching his eyes widen. And if you ever do anything to either of them, I'll know. I will come here and kill you and leave your body hanging in a tree. There were tears on his face now, although whether from shame or fear or pain I couldn't guess. Now you tell her you're sorry for what you said. I let go of him after making sure he had his feet under him and pointed him in the direction of Crin and L. The women stood around them like a protective cocoon. He clutched his arm weakly. I shouldn't have said that, Ellie, he sobbed, sounding more wretched and repentant than I would have thought possible, broken arm or no. It was a demon talking out of me. I swear, though, I've been sick worrying. We all been, and we did try to come get you, but they was a lot of them, and they jumped us on the road. Then we had to bring Bill home, or he would have died from his leg. Something tickled my memory about the boy's name. Jason? I suddenly suspected I had just broken L's boyfriend's arm. Somehow, I couldn't feel bad for it just now. Best thing for him, really. Looking around, I saw the anger bleed out of the faces of the men around me, as if I'd used up the whole town's supply in a sudden furious flash. Instead, they watched Jason, looking slightly embarrassed, as if the boy were apologizing for the lot of them. Then I saw a big, healthy-looking man running down the street, followed by a dozen other townsfolk. From the look on his face, I guessed it was El's father, the mayor. 
He forced his way into the knot of women, gathered his daughter up in his arms, and swung her around. You find two types of mayor in small towns like this. The first type are balding older men of considerable girth who are good with money and tend to wring their hands a great deal when anything unexpected happens. The second type are tall, broad-shouldered men whose families have grown slowly prosperous because they had worked like angry bastards behind a plow for twenty generations. L's father was the second sort. He walked over to me, keeping one arm around his daughter's shoulders. I understand I have you to thank for bringing our girls back. He reached out to shake my hand, and I saw his arm was bandaged. His grip was solid in spite of it. He smiled the widest smile I'd seen since I left Simon at the university. How's the arm? I asked, not realizing how it would sound. His smile faded a little, and I was quick to add, I've had some training as a physiker, and I know that those sort of things can be tricky to deal with when you're away from home. When you're living in a country that thinks mercury is medicine, I thought to myself. His smile came back, and he flexed his fingers. It's stiff, but that's all. Just a little meat. They caught us by surprise. I got my hands on one of them, but he stuck me and got away. How did you end up getting the girls away from those godless Rue bastards? He spat. They weren't Adima Rue, I said, my voice sounding more strained than I would have liked. They weren't even real troopers. His smile began to fade again. What do you mean? They weren't Adima Rue. We don't do the things they did. Listen, the mayor said plainly, his temper starting to rise a bit. I know damn well what they do and don't do. They came in all sweet and nice, played a little music, made a penny or two. Then they started to make trouble around town. When we told them to leave, they took my girl. He almost breathed fire as he said the last words. We? I heard someone say faintly behind me. Jim, he said we! Seth scowled around the side of the mayor to get a look at me again. I told you he looked like one he said triumphantly. I know them. You can always tell by them eyes. Hold on, the mayor said with slow incredulity. Are you telling me you're one of them? His expression grew dangerous. Before I could explain myself, L had grabbed his arm. Oh, don't make him mad, Daddy, she said quickly, holding on to his good arm as if to pull him away from me. Don't say anything to get him angry. He's not with them. He brought me back. He saved me. The mayor seemed somewhat mollified by this, but his congeniality was gone. Explain yourself, he said grimly. I sighed inside, realizing what a mess I'd made of this. They weren't troopers, and they certainly weren't Edimaru. They were bandits who killed some of my family and stole their wagons. They were only pretending to be performers. Why would anyone pretend to be Rue? The mayor asked, as if the thought were incomprehensible. So they could do what they did, I snapped. You let them into your town and they abused that trust. That's something no Adima Rue would ever do. You never did answer my question, he said. How did you get the girls away? I took care of things, 
I said simply. He killed them, Crin said loudly enough for everyone to hear. He killed them all! I could feel everyone looking at me. Half of them were thinking, All of them? He killed seven men? The other half were thinking, There were two women with them. Did he kill them too? Well then, the mayor looked down at me for a long moment. Good, he said, as if he had just made up his mind. That's good. The world's a better place for it. I felt everyone relax slightly. These are their horses. I pointed to the two horses that had been carrying our baggage. They belong to the girls now. About forty miles east you'll find the wagons. Crin can show you where they're hidden. They belong to the girls, too. They'll fetch a good price off in Thamesford, the mayor mused. Together with the instruments and clothes and such, they'll fetch a heavy penny, I agreed. Split two ways, it'll make a fine dowry, I said firmly. He met my eyes, nodded slowly in understanding. That it will. What about the things they stole from us? A stout man in an apron protested. They smashed up my place and stole two barrels of my best ale. Do you have any daughters? I asked him calmly. The sudden stricken look on his face told me he did. I met his eye, held it. Then I think you came away from this pretty well. The mayor finally noticed Jason clutching his broken arm. What happened to you? Jason looked at his feet and Seth spoke up for him. He said some things he shouldn't. The mayor looked around and saw that getting more of an answer would involve an ordeal. He shrugged and let it go. I could splint it for you, I said easily. No, Jason said too quickly, then backpedaled. I'd rather go to Gran. I gave a sideways look to the mayor. Gran? He gave a fond smile. When we scrape our knees, Gran patches us back up again. Would Bill be there? I asked. The man with the crushed leg? He nodded. She won't let him out of her sight for another span of days if I know her. I'll walk you over, I said to the sweating boy who was carefully cradling his arm. I'd like to watch her work. As far from civilization as we were, I expected Gran to be a hunched old woman who treated her patients with leeches and wood alcohol. That opinion changed when I saw the inside of her house. Her walls were covered with bundles of dry herbs and shelves lined with small, carefully labeled bottles. There was a small desk with three heavy leather books on it. One of them lay open, and I recognized it as the Hurraborica. I could see handwritten notes scrawled in the margins, while some of the entries had been edited or crossed out entirely. Gran wasn't as old as I'd thought she'd be, though she did have her share of gray hair. She wasn't hunched either, and actually stood taller than me, with broad shoulders and a round, smiling face. She swung a copper kettle over the fire, humming to herself. Then she brought out a pair of shears and sat Jason down, prodding his arm gently. Pale and sweating, the boy kept up a constant stream of nervous chatter while she methodically cut his shirt away. In the space of a few minutes, without her even asking, he'd given her an accurate, if somewhat disjointed, version of Ellen Crin's homecoming. 
It's a nice, clean break, she said at last, interrupting him. How'd it happen? Jason's wild eyes darted to me, then away. Nothing, he said quickly, then realized he hadn't answered the question. I mean... I broke it, I said. Figured the least I could do was come along and see if there's anything I could do to help set it right again. Gran looked back at me. Have you dealt with this sort of thing before? I've studied medicine at the university, I said. She shrugged. Then I guess you can hold the splints while I wrap them. I have a girl who helps me, but she run off when she heard the commotion up the street. Jason eyed me nervously as I held the wood tight to his arm, but it took Gran less than three minutes to bind up the splint with an air of bored competence. Watching her work, I decided she was worth more than half the students I could name in the Medica. After we'd finished, she looked down at Jason. You're lucky, she said. It didn't need to be set. You hold off using it for a month. It should heal up just fine. Jason left as quickly as he was able, and after a small amount of persuasion, Gran let me see Bill, who was laid up in her back room. If Jason's arm was a clean break, then Bill's was messy as a break can be. Both the bones in his lower leg had broken in several places. I couldn't see under the bandages, but his leg was hugely swollen. The skin above the bandages was bruised and mottled, stretched as tight as an overstuffed sausage. Bill was pale but alert, and it looked like he would probably keep the leg. How much use it would be was another matter. He might come away with nothing more than a heavy limp, but I wouldn't bet on him ever running again. What sort of folks shoot a man's horse? He asked indignantly, his face covered in a sheen of sweat. It ain't right. It had been his own horse, of course, and this wasn't the sort of town where folk had horses to spare. Bill was a young man with a new wife and his own small farm, and he might never walk again because he had tried to do the right thing. It hurt to think about. Gran gave him two spoonfuls of something from a brown bottle, and it dragged his eyes shut. She ushered us out of the room and closed the door behind her. Did the bone break the skin? I asked once the door was closed. She nodded as she put the bottle back on the shelf. What have you been using to keep it from going septic? Sour, you mean? she asked. Ramsbur. Really? I asked. Not arrowroot? Arrowroot? She snorted as she added wood to the fire and swung the now steaming kettle off of it. You ever tried to keep something from going sour with arrowroot? No, I admitted. Let me save you the trouble of killing someone, then. She brought out a pair of wooden cups. Arrowroot is useless. You can eat it if you like, but that's about it. But a paste of arrowroot and besame is supposed to be ideal for this. Besame might be worth half a damn, she admitted, but ramsbur is better. I'd rather have some red blade, but we can't always have what we want. A paste of mother leaf and ramsbur is what I use, and you can see he's doing just fine. Arrowroot is easier for folk to find, and it pulps smooth, but it hain't got any worthwhile properties. She shook her head. Arrowroot and camphor, arrowroot and besame, arrowroot and saltbine. Arrowroot hain't a palliative of any sort, 
It's just good at carrying around what works. I opened my mouth to protest, then looked around her house at her heavily annotated copy of the Huroborica. I closed my mouth. Gran poured hot water from the kettle into two cups. Sit yourself down for a bit, she said. You look like you're on your last leg. I looked longingly at the chair. I should probably be getting back, I said. You've got time for a cup, she said, taking my arm and setting me firmly into the chair. And a quick bite. You're pale as a dry bone, and I have a bit of sweet pudding here that ain't got anybody to give it a home. I tried to remember if I'd eaten any lunch today. I remembered feeding the girls. I don't want to put you to any more trouble, I said. I've already made more work for you. About time somebody broke that boy's arm, she said conversationally. Has a mouth on him like you wouldn't believe. She handed me one of the wooden cups. Drink that down and I'll get you some of that pudding. The steam coming off the cup smelled wonderful. What's in it? I asked. Rose hip and some apple brandy I still up my own self. She gave a wide smile that crinkled the edges of her eyes. If you like, I can put in some arrowroot, too. I smiled and sipped. The warmth of it spread through my chest, and I felt myself relax a bit, which was odd, as I hadn't realized I'd been tense before. Gran bustled about a bit before setting two plates on the table and easing herself down into a nearby chair. You really kill those folk? She asked plainly. There wasn't any accusation in her voice. It was just a question. I nodded. You probably shouldn't have told anyone, she said. There's bound to be a fuss. They'll want a trial and have to bring in the Azzy from Thamesford. I didn't tell them, I said. Crin did. Ah, she said. The conversation lulled. I drank the last swallow out of my cup, but when I tried to set it on the table, my hands were shaking so badly that it knocked against the wood, making a sound like an impatient visitor at the door. Gran sipped calmly from her cup. I don't care to talk about it, I said at last. It wasn't a good thing. Some folk might argue that, she said gently. I think you done the right thing. Her words brought a sudden hot ache behind my eyes as if I were about to burst into tears. I'm not so sure about that, I said, my voice sounding strange in my own ears. My hands were shaking worse now. Gran didn't seem surprised by this. You've had the bit in your teeth for a couple of days now, haven't you? Her tone made it clear it wasn't really a question. I know the look. You've been keeping busy, looking after the girls, not sleeping, probably not eating much. She picked up the plate. Eat your pudding. It will help to get some food in you. I ate the pudding. Halfway through, I began to cry, choking a bit as it stuck in my throat. Gran refilled my cup with more tea and poured another dollop of brandy in on top of it. Drink that down, she repeated. I took a swallow. I didn't mean to say anything, but I found myself talking anyway. I think there might be something wrong with me, I said quietly. A normal person doesn't have it in him to do the things I do. A normal person would never kill people like this. 
That may be, she admitted, sipping from her own cup. But what would you say if I told you Bill's leg had gone a bit green and sweet-smelling under that bandage? I looked up, startled. He's got the rot? She shook her head. No, I told you he's fine. But what if? We'd have to cut the leg off, I said. Gran nodded seriously. That's right. And we'd have to do it quick. Today. No dithering about and hoping he'd fight his way through on his own. That wouldn't do a thing but kill him. She took a sip, watching me over the top of her cup, making it a question of sorts. I nodded. I knew it was true. You've got some medicine, she said. You know that proper doctoring means hard choices. She gave me an unflinching look. We ain't like other folk. You burn a man with an iron to stop his bleeding. You save the mother and lose the babe. It's hard and nobody ever thanks you for it. But we are the ones that have to choose. She took another slow drink of tea. The first few times are the worst. You'll get the shakes and lose some sleep. But that's the price of doing what needs to be done. There were women, too, I said, the words catching in my throat. Gran's eyes flashed. They earned it twice as much, she said, and the sudden furious anger in her sweet face caught me so completely by surprise that I felt prickling fear crawl over my body. A man who would do that to a girl is like a mad dog. He ain't hardly a person. Just an animal needs to be put down. But a woman who helps him do it? That's worse. She knows what she's doing. She knows what it means. Gran put her cup down gently on the table, her expression composed again. If a leg goes bad, you cut it off. She made a firm gesture with the flat of her hand, then picked up her slice of pudding and began to eat it with her fingers. And some folk need killing. That's all there is to it. By the time I got myself under control and made it back outside, the crowd in the street had swelled. The local tavern keeper had rolled a barrel onto his front landing, and the air was sweet with the smell of beer. Crin's father and mother had ridden back into town on the Rhone. Pete was there, too, having run back. He offered up his unbroken head for my inspection and demanded his two pennies for services rendered. I was warmly thanked by Crin's parents. They seemed to be good people. Most people are, if given the chance. I caught hold of the Roan's reins, and using him as a sort of portable wall, I managed to get a moment of relatively private conversation with Crin. Her dark eyes were a little red around the edges, but her face was bright and happy. Make sure you get Lady Ghost, I said, nodding to one of the horses. She's yours. The mayor's daughter would have a fair dowry no matter what, so I'd loaded Crin's horse with the more valuable goods as well as most of the false trooper's money. Her expression grew serious as she met my eyes, and again she reminded me of a young Denna. You're leaving? she said. I guess I was. She didn't try to convince me to stay, and instead surprised me with a sudden embrace. After kissing me on the cheek, she whispered in my ear, Thank you. We stepped away from each other, knowing propriety would only allow so much. Don't sell yourself short and marry some fool, I said, feeling as if I should say something. Don't you either, she said, 
her dark eyes mocking me gently. I took Greytail's reins and led her over to where the mayor stood, watching the crowd in a proprietary way. He nodded as I approached. I drew a deep breath. Is the constable about? He raised an eyebrow at this, then shrugged and pointed off into the crowd. That's him there. He was three-quarters drunk even before you brought our girls home, though. Don't know how much use he'll be to you now. Well, I said hesitantly, I'm guessing someone is going to need to lock me up until you can get word to the Azzy off in Thamesford. I nodded to the small stone building in the center of town. The mayor looked sideways at me, frowning a bit. You want to be locked up? Not particularly, I admitted. You can come and go as you please, then, he said. The Azzy won't be happy when he hears, I said. I'd rather not have anyone else go up against the Iron Law because of something I've done. Aiding in the escape of a murderer can be a hanging offense. The big man gave me a long looking over. His eyes lingered a bit on my sword, the worn leather of my boots. I could almost feel him noticing the lack of any serious wounds, despite the fact that I just killed half a dozen armed men. So you'd let us just lock you up? he asked. Easy as that? I shrugged. He frowned again, then shook his head as if he couldn't make sense of me. Well, aren't you just as gentle as a lamb, he said wonderingly. But no, I won't lock you up. You haven't done anything less than proper. I broke that boy's arm, I said. Mmm, he rumbled darkly. Forgot about that. He reached into his pocket and brought out Halfpenny. He handed it to me. Much obliged. I laughed as I put it in my pocket. Here's my thought, he said. I'll head over and see if I can find the constable. Then I'll explain to him we've got to lock you up. If you've slipped off in the middle of this confusion, we wouldn't hardly be aiding in the escape, would we? It would be negligence and maintenance of the law, I said. He might take a few lashes for it, or lose his post. Shouldn't come to that the mayor said. But if it does, he'll be happy to do it. He's Ellie's uncle. He looked out at the crowd on the street. Will fifteen minutes be enough for you to slip off in all the confusion? If it's all the same to you, I said, could you say I disappeared in a strange and mysterious way when your back was turned? He laughed at this. Don't see why not. You need more than fifteen minutes on account of it being mysterious and all? Ten should be a great plenty, I said as I unpacked my loot case and travel sack from Greytail and handed the mayor the reins. You'd be doing me a favor if you took care of him until Bill is up and about, I said. You leaving your horse? he asked. He's just lost his, I shrugged. And we Rue are used to walking. I wouldn't know what to do with a horse anyway, I said half honestly. The big man gripped the reins and gave me a long look as if he wasn't quite sure what to make of me. Is there anything we can do for you? He asked at last. Remember it was bandits who took them, I said as I turned to leave, and remember it was one of the Edema Rue who brought them back. Chapter 136 Interlude Close to Forgetting Quoth held up a hand to Chronicler. Let's take a moment, shall we? 
he looked around the dark inn. I've let myself get a little caught up in the story. I should tend to a few things before it gets any later. The innkeeper came stiffly to his feet and stretched. He lit a candle at the fireplace and moved around the inn, lighting the lamps one by one, driving back the dark by slow degrees. I was focused rather closely myself, Chronicler said, standing up and stretching. What time is it? Late, Bast said. I'm hungry. Chronicler looked out the dark window into the street. I'd have thought you'd have had at least a few folks in for dinner by now. You pulled a good crowd for lunch. Quoth nodded. We would have seen a few of my regulars if not for Shep's funeral. Ah. Chronicler looked down. I'd forgotten. Is that something I've kept you two from attending? Quoth lit the last lamp behind the bar and blew out his candle. Not really, he said. Bast and I aren't from around these parts, and they're practical folk. They know I have a business to run, such as it is. And you don't get along with Abbe Leodin, Bast said. And I don't get along with the local priest, Quoth admitted. But you should make an appearance, Bast. It will seem odd if you don't. Bast's eyes darted around nervously. I don't want to leave, Reshi. Quoth smiled warmly at him. You should, Bast. Shep was a good man. Go have a drink to send him off. In fact, he bent and rummaged around under the bar for a moment before coming up with a bottle. Here, a fine old bottle of brand. Better stuff than anyone around here asks for. Go share it around. He set it on the bar with a solid sound. Bast took an involuntary step forward. His face conflicted. But Reshi, I... Pretty girls dancing, Bast, Quoth said, his voice low and soothing. Someone on the fiddle, and all of them just glad to be alive, kicking up their skirts to the music, laughing and a little tipsy, their cheeks all rosy and ready to be kissed. He gave the heavy brown bottle a nudge, and it slid down the bar toward his student. You're my ambassador to the town. I may be stuck minding the shop, but you can be there and make my apologies. Bast closed his hand around the neck of the bottle. I'll have one drink, he said, his voice thick with resolve. And one dance. And one kiss with Katie Miller. And maybe another with the Widow Creel. But that's all. He looked Quoth in the eye. I'll only be gone half an hour. Quoth gave a warm smile. I have things to tend to, Bast. I'll cobble together dinner, and we'll give our friend's hand a bit of a rest. Bast grinned and picked up the bottle. Two dances, then. He bolted for the door, and when he opened it, the wind gusted around him, swirling his hair wildly. Save me something to eat, he shouted over his shoulder. The door banged shut. Chronicler gave the innkeeper a curious look. Quoth gave a small shrug. He was getting too tangled up in the story. He can't feel a thing halfway. A little time away will give him some perspective. Besides, I do have dinner to prepare, even if it's only for three. The scribe brought a grimy piece of cloth out of his leather satchel and looked at it with some distaste. I don't suppose I could trouble you for a clean rag, he asked. Quoth nodded and brought out a white linen cloth from beneath the bar. Is there anything else you need? Chronicler stood and walked over to the bar. 
If you had some strong spirits, it would be a great help, he said, sounding slightly embarrassed. I hate to ask, but when I was robbed... Quoth waved the comment away. Don't be ridiculous, he said. I should have asked you yesterday if there was anything you needed. He moved out from behind the bar toward the basement stairs. I'm assuming wood alcohol would work best. Chronicler nodded, and Quoth disappeared into the basement. The scribe picked up the crisply folded square of linen and rubbed it idly between his fingers. Then his eyes wandered up to the sword hanging high on the wall behind the bar. The gray metal of the blade was striking against the dark wood of the mounting board. Quoth came back up the steps carrying a small, clear bottle. Is there anything else you need? I have a good stock of paper and ink here, too. It may come to that by tomorrow, Chronicler said. I've used up most of my paper, but I can grind more ink tonight. Don't put yourself to the trouble, Quoth said easily. I have several bottles of fine Aruan ink. True Aruan ink? Chronicler asked, surprised. Quoth gave a broad smile and nodded. That's terribly kind of you, Chronicler said, relaxing a bit. I'll admit I wasn't looking forward to spending an hour grinding tonight. He gathered up the clear bottle and cloth, then paused. Would you mind if I ask you a question? Unofficially, as it were. A smirk curled the corner of Quoth's mouth. Very well, then, unofficially. I can't help notice that your description of Sasura doesn't... Chronicler hesitated. Well, it doesn't quite seem to match the actual sword itself. His eyes flicked to the sword behind the bar. The handguard isn't what you described. Quoth gave a wide grin. Well, you're just sharp as anything, aren't you? I don't mean to imply, Chronicler said quickly, looking embarrassed. Quoth laughed a rich, warm laugh. The sound of it tumbled around the room, and for a moment, the inn didn't feel empty at all. No, you're absolutely right. He turned to look at the sword. This isn't... What did the boy call it this morning? His eyes went distant for a moment. Then he smiled again. Kaysera, the poet killer. I was just curious, Chronicler said apologetically. Am I supposed to be offended that you're paying attention? Quoth laughed again. What fun is there in telling a story if nobody's listening? He rubbed his hands together eagerly. Right then, dinner. What would you like, hot or cold, soup or stew? I'm a dab hand at pudding, too. They settled on something simple to avoid restoking the stove in the kitchen. Quoth moved briskly around the inn, gathering what was needed. He hummed to himself as he fetched cold mutton and half a hard, sharp cheese from the basement. These will be a nice surprise for Bast, Quoth grinned at Chronicler as he brought out a jar of brined olives from the pantry. He can't know we have them or he'd have eaten them already. He untied his apron, pulling it off over his head. I think we have a few tomatoes left in the garden, too. Quoth returned after several minutes with his apron wrapped into a bundle. He was spattered with rain, and his hair was in wild disarray. He wore a boyish grin, and at that moment he looked very little like the somber, slow-moving innkeeper. It can't quite decide if it wants to storm, he said, as he set his apron on the bar, carefully removing the tomatoes. But if it makes up its mind, we're in for a wagon tipper tonight. He began to hum absent-mindedly while he cut and arranged everything on a broad wooden platter. 
The door of the waystone opened, and a sudden gust of wind made the lamplight flicker. Two soldiers came in, hunched against the weather, their swords sticking out like tails behind them. Dark spatters of rain spotted the fabric of their blue and white tabards. They dropped their heavy packs, and the shorter of the two pressed his shoulder to the door, forcing it closed against the wind. God's teeth, said the taller one, straightening his clothes. It's a bad night to be caught in the open. He was bald on top, with a thick black beard that was flat as a spade. He looked at Quoth. Oh boy, he said cheerfully. We were glad to see your light. Run and fetch the owner, would ya? We need to have a word with him. Quoth picked his apron up off the bar and ducked his head into it. That would be me, he said, clearing his throat as he tied the strings around his waist. He ran his hands through his tousled hair, smoothing it down. The bearded soldier peered at him, then shrugged. Fair enough. Any chance of us getting a spot of dinner? The innkeeper gestured to the empty room. It didn't seem worth putting the kettle on tonight, he said. But we've got what you see here. The two soldiers strode to the bar. The blonde one ran his hands through his curly hair, shaking a few drops of rain out of it. This town looks deader than ditch water, he said. We didn't see a single light but this. Long harvest day, the innkeeper said, and there's a wake tonight at one of the nearby farms. The four of us are probably the only folk in town right now. He rubbed his hands together briskly. Can I interest you fine folk in a drink to take off the chill? He brought out a bottle of wine and sat it on the bar with a solid, satisfying sound. Well, that's a difficulty, the blonde soldier said with a bit of an embarrassed smile. I'd dearly love a drink, but my friend and I just took the king's coin. He reached into his pocket and brought out a bright gold coin. This is all the money I have on me. I don't suppose you have enough to break a whole royal, would you? I'm stuck with mine, too, the bearded soldier groused. Most money I've ever had, but it don't spend well in a lump. Most of the towns we've been through could barely make change for a halfpenny. He chuckled at his own joke. I should be able to help you out with that, the innkeeper said easily. The two soldiers exchanged a look. The blonde one nodded. Right then, the blonde soldier put the coin back in his pocket. Here's the truth. We aren't really going to be stopping for the night. He picked up a piece of cheese off the bar and took a bite. And we aren't going to be paying for anything either. Ah, the innkeeper said. I see. And if you've got enough money in your purse to change out two gold royals, the bearded one said eagerly, then we'll have that off you as well. The blonde soldier spread his hands in a calming gesture. Now this don't need to be any sort of ugly thing. We aren't bad folk. You pass over your purse and we go on our way. No folk get hurt and nothing gets wrecked. It's bound to sting a bit. He raised an eyebrow at the innkeeper. But a little sting beats hell out of getting yourself killed. Am I right? The bearded soldier looked over at where Chronicler sat near the hearth. This ain't got nothing to do with you either, he said grimly, his beard waggling as he spoke. We don't want anything of yours. You just stay sat where you're at and don't get feisty on us. Chronicler shot a glance to the man behind the bar, but the innkeeper's eyes were fixed on the two soldiers. The blonde one took another bite of cheese while his eyes wandered around the inn. 
young man like you is doing pretty well for himself. You'll be doing just as well after we're gone. But if you start trouble, we'll feed you your teeth, wreck up the place, and you'll still be out your purse. He dropped the rest of the cheese on the bar and clapped his hands together briskly. He smiled. So, are we all going to be civilized folk? That seems reasonable, Quoth said as he walked out from behind the bar. He moved slowly and carefully, the way you would approach a skittish horse. I'm certainly no barbarian. Quoth reached down and removed his purse from his pocket. He held it out in one hand. The blonde soldier walked over to him, swaggering just a bit. He took hold of the purse and hefted it appreciatively. He turned to smile at his friend. You see, I told you... In a smooth motion, Quoth stepped forward and struck the man hard in the jaw. The soldier staggered and fell to one knee. The purse arced through the air and hit the floorboards with a solid, metallic thud. Before the soldier could do more than shake his head, Quoth stepped forward and calmly kicked him in the shoulder. Not a sharp kick of the sort that breaks bones, but a hard kick that sent him sprawling backward. The man landed hard on the floor, rolling to a stop in a messy tangle of arms and legs. The other soldier stepped past his friend, grinning wide under his beard. He was taller than Quoth, and his fists were broad knots of scar and knuckle. Right, Cully, he said, dark satisfaction in his voice. You're getting a kickin' now. He snapped out a quick punch, but Quoth stepped aside and kicked out sharply, hitting the soldier just above the knee. The bearded man grunted in surprise, stumbling slightly. Then Quoth stepped close, caught the bearded man's shoulder, gripped his wrist, and twisted his outstretched arm at an awkward angle. The big man was forced to bend over, grimacing in pain. Then he jerked his arm roughly out of the innkeeper's grip. Quoth had half a moment to look startled before the soldier's elbow caught him in the temple. The innkeeper staggered backward, trying to gain a little distance and a moment to clear his head, but the soldier followed close after him, fists raised, waiting for an opening. Before Quoth could regain his balance, the soldier stepped close and drove a fist hard into his gut. The innkeeper let out a pained huff of air, and as he started to double over, the soldier swung his other fist into the side of the innkeeper's face, snapping Quoth's head to the side and sending him reeling. Quoth managed to keep his feet by grabbing a nearby table for support. Blinking, he threw a wild punch to keep the bearded man at a distance, but the soldier merely brushed it aside and caught hold of the innkeeper's wrist in one huge hand, easy as a father might grab hold of a wayward child in the street. Blood running down the side of his face, Quoth struggled to free his wrist. Dazed, he made a quick motion with both hands, then repeated it, trying to pull away. His eyes half-focused and dull with confusion. He looked down at his wrist and made the motion again, but his hands merely scrabbled uselessly at the soldier's scarred fist. The bearded soldier eyed the stupefied innkeeper with amused curiosity, then reached out and slapped him hard on the side of the head. "'You're almost a bit of a scrapper, boy,' he said. "'You actually stuck one on me.' Behind them, the blonde soldier was slowly getting to his feet, Little bastard sucker punched me! The big soldier yanked the innkeeper's wrist so he stumbled forward. Say you're sorry, Cully. The innkeeper blinked blearily, opened his mouth as if he were about to speak, then staggered. Or rather, he seemed to stagger. Halfway through, the stumbling motion became deliberate, and the innkeeper stomped down hard with the heel of his foot, aiming at the soldier's boot.
At the same time, he snapped his forehead down at the bearded man's nose. But the big man merely laughed, moving his head to the side as he jerked the innkeeper off balance again by his wrist. None of that, he chided, backhanding Quoth across the face. The innkeeper let out a yelp and lifted a hand to his bleeding nose. The soldier grinned and casually drove a knee hard into the innkeeper's groin. Quoth doubled over, first gasping soundlessly, then making a series of choked retching noises. Moving casually, the soldier let go of Quoth's wrist, then reached out and picked up the bottle of wine from the bar. Gripping it by the neck, he swung it like a club. When it hit the side of the innkeeper's head, it made a solid, almost metallic sound. Quoth crumpled bonelessly to the floor. The big man looked at the bottle of wine curiously before setting it back on the bar. Then he bent, grabbed the innkeeper's shirt, and dragged his limp body out onto the open floor. He nudged the unconscious body with a foot until it stirred sluggishly. Said I'd give you a kickin', boy, the soldier grunted and drove his foot hard into Quoth's side. The blonde soldier walked over, rubbing at the side of his face. Had to get all clever, didn't you? he said, spitting on the floor. He drew back his boot and landed a hard kick of his own. The innkeeper drew a sharp, hissing breath, but made no other sound. And you, the bearded soldier pointed a thick finger at Chronicler. I've got more than one boot. Would you like to see the other? I've already skint my knuckles. It's no bother to me if you want to lose a couple teeth. Chronicler looked around and seemed genuinely surprised to find himself standing. He lowered himself slowly back into his chair. The blonde soldier limped off to reclaim the purse from where it had fallen, while the big bearded man remained standing over Quoth. I suppose you figured you had to try, he said to the crumpled body, giving him another solid kick in the side. Damn fool! Pasty little innkeeper against two of the king's own! He shook his head and spat again. Honestly, who do you think you are? Curled on the floor, Quoth began to make a low, rhythmic sound. It was a dry, quiet noise that scratched around the edges of the room. Quoth paused as he drew a painful breath. The bearded soldier frowned and kicked him again. I asked you a question, Cully. The innkeeper made the same noise again, louder than before. Only then did it become obvious that he was laughing. Each low, broken chuckle sounded like he was coughing up a piece of shattered glass. Despite that, it was a laugh, full of dark amusement, as if the red-haired man had heard a joke that only he could understand. It went on for some time. The bearded soldier shrugged and drew back his foot again. Chronicler cleared his throat, and the two men turned to look at him. In the interest of keeping things civilized, he said, I feel I should mention that the innkeeper sent his assistant out on an errand. He should be back soon. The bearded soldier slapped his companion on the chest with the back of his hand. He's right. Let's get out of here. Wait a moment, the blonde soldier said. He hurried back to the bar and snatched the bottle of wine. Right. Let's go. The bearded soldier grinned and went behind the bar, stepping on the innkeeper's body rather than over it. He grabbed a random bottle, knocking over half a dozen others as he did so. 
They rolled and spun on the counter between the two huge barrels, a tall sapphire-colored one slowly toppling over the edge to shatter on the floor. In less than a minute, the men had gathered up their packs and were out the door. Chronicler hurried over to where Kvothe lay on the wooden floor. The red-haired man was already struggling into a sitting position. Well, that was embarrassing, Kvothe said. He touched his bloody face and looked at his fingers. He chuckled again, a jagged, joyless sound. Forgot who I was there for a minute. Are you all right? Chronicler asked. Quoth touched his scalp speculatively. I'll need a stitch or two, I suspect. What can I do to help? Chronicler asked, shifting his weight from foot to foot. Don't hover over me. Quoth pushed himself awkwardly to his feet, then slumped into one of the tall stools at the bar. If you want, you can fetch me a glass of water, and maybe a wet cloth. Chronicler scurried back into the kitchen. There was the sound of frantic rummaging, followed by several things falling to the ground. Quoth closed his eyes and leaned heavily against the bar. Why is the door open? Bast called as he stepped through the doorway. It's cold as a witch's tit in here. He froze, his expression stricken. Reshi? What happened? What? I... What happened? Ah, Bast. Quoth said. Close the door, would you? Bast hurried over, a numb expression on his face. Quoth sat in a stool at the bar, his face swollen and bloody. Chronicler stood next to him, dabbing awkwardly at the innkeeper's scalp with a damp cloth. I might need to prevail on you for a few stitches, Bast, Quoth said, if it wouldn't be too much trouble. Reshi, Bast repeated. What happened? Devon and I got into a bit of an argument, Quoth said, nodding at the scribe, about the proper use of the subjunctive mood. It got a little heated toward the end. Chronicler looked up at Bast, then blanched, and took several quick steps backward. He's joking, he said quickly, holding up his hands. It was soldiers. Quoth chuckled painfully to himself. There was blood on his teeth. Bast looked around the empty taproom. What did you do with them? Not much, Bast, the innkeeper said. They're probably miles away by now. Was there something wrong with them, Reshi? Like the one last night? Bast asked. Just soldiers, Bast, Quoth said. Just two of the king's own. Bast's face went ashen. What? he asked. Reshi, why did you let them do this? Quoth gave Bast an incredulous look. He gave a brief, bitter laugh, then stopped with a wince, sucking air through his teeth. Well, they seemed like such clean and virtuous boys, he said, his voice mocking. I thought, why not let these nice fellows rob me, then beat me to a pulp? Bast's expression was full of dismay. But you... Quoth wiped away the blood that was threatening to run into his eye, then looked at Bast as if he were the stupidest creature drawing breath in the entire world. What? he demanded. What do you want me to say? Two soldiers, Reshi? Yes, Quoth shouted. Not even two. Apparently one thick-fisted thug is all it takes to beat me half to death. He glared furiously at Bast, throwing up his arms. 
What is it going to take to shut you up? Do you want a story? Do you want to hear the details? Bass took a step backward at the outburst. His face went even paler. His expression panicked. Quoth let his arms fall heavily to his sides. Quit expecting me to be something I'm not, he said, still breathing hard. He hunched his shoulders and rubbed at his eyes, smearing blood across his face. He let his head sag wearily. God's mother, why can't you just leave me alone? Bass stood as still as a startled heart, his eyes wide. Silence flooded the room, thick and bitter as a lungful of smoke. Quoth drew a slow breath, the only motion in the room. I'm sorry, Bast, he said without looking up. I'm just in a little pain right now. It got the better of me. Give me a moment, and I'll have it sorted out. Still looking down, Quoth closed his eyes and drew several slow, shallow breaths. When he looked up, his expression was chagrined. I'm sorry, Bast, he said. I didn't mean to snap at you. A touch of the color returned to Bast's cheeks. Some of the tension left his shoulders as he gave a nervous smile. Quoth took the damp cloth from Chronicler and wiped the blood away from his eye again. I'm sorry I interrupted you before, Bast. What is it you were about to ask me? Bast hesitated, then said, You killed five Skrail not three days ago, Reshi. He waved toward the door. What's some thug compared to that? I picked the time and place for the Skrail rather carefully, Bast, Quoth said, and I didn't exactly dance away unscathed, either. Chronicler looked up surprised. You were hurt? he asked. I didn't know. You didn't look it. A small, wry smile twisted the corner of Quoth's mouth. Old habits die hard, he said. I do have a reputation to maintain. Besides, we heroes are only hurt in properly dramatic ways. It rather ruins the story if you find out Bast had to knit about ten feet of stitches into me after the fight. Realization broke over Bast's face like a sunrise. Of course, he said, his voice thick with relief. I forgot. You're still hurt from the scrail. I knew it had to be something like that. Quoth looked at the floor, every line of his body sagging and weary. Bast, he began. I knew it, Reshi, he said emphatically. There's no way some thug could get the better of you. Quoth drew a shallow breath, then let it out in a rush. I'm sure that's it, Bast, he said easily. I expect I could have taken them both if I'd been fresh. Bast's expression grew uncertain again. He turned to face Chronicler. How could you let this happen? he demanded. It's not his fault, Bast, Quoth said absentmindedly. I started the fight. He put a few fingers into his mouth and felt around gingerly. His fingers came out of his mouth bright with blood. I expect I'm going to lose this tooth, he mused. You will not lose your tooth, Reshi, Bast said fiercely. You will not! Quoth made a slight motion with his shoulders, as if trying to shrug without moving any more of his body than he needed to. It doesn't matter much in the grand scheme of things, Bast, 
He pressed the cloth to his scalp, then looked at it. I probably won't need those stitches, either. He pushed himself upright on the stool. Let's have our dinner and get back to the story. He raised an eyebrow at Chronicler. If you're still up for it, of course. Chronicler stared at him blankly. Reshi, Bast said worried. You're a mess. He reached out. Let me look at your eyes. I'm not concussed, Bast, Quoth said irritated. I've got four broken ribs, a ringing in my ears, and a loose tooth. I have a few minor scalp wounds that look more serious than they really are. My nose is bloody but not broken, and tomorrow I will be a vast tapestry of bruises. Quoth gave the faint shrug again. Still, I've had worse. Besides, they reminded me of something I was close to forgetting. I should probably thank them for that. He prodded at his jaws speculatively and worked his tongue around in his mouth. Perhaps not a terribly warm thanks. Reshi, you need stitches, Bast said, and you need to let me do something about that tooth. Quoth climbed off the stool. I'll just chew on the other side for a few days. Bast took hold of Quoth's arm. His eyes were hard and dark. Sit down, Reshi. It was nothing like a request. His voice was low and sudden, like a throb of distant thunder. Sit down. Quoth sat. Chronicler nodded approvingly and turned to Bast. What can I do to help? Stay out of my way, Bast said brusquely, and keep him in this chair until I get back. He strode upstairs. There was a moment of silence. So, Chronicler said, subjunctive mood. At best, Quoth said, it is a pointless thing. It needlessly complicates the language. It offends me. Oh, come now, Chronicler said, sounding slightly offended. The subjunctive is the heart of the hypothetical. In the right hands, he broke off as Bass stormed back into the room, scowling and carrying a small wooden box. Bring me water, Bast said imperiously to Chronicler. Fresh from the rain barrel, not from the pump. Then I need milk from the icebox, some warmed honey, and a broad bowl. Then clean up this mess and stay out of my way. Bast washed the cut on Quoth's scalp, then threaded one of his own hairs through a bone needle and laced four tight stitches through the innkeeper's skin more smoothly than a seamstress. Open your mouth, Bast said, then peered inside, frowning while he prodded one of the back teeth with a finger. He nodded to himself. Bast handed Quoth the glass of water. Rinse out your mouth, Reshi. Do it a couple of times and spit the water back into the cup. Quoth did. When he finished, the water was red as wine. Chronicler returned with a bottle of milk. Bast sniffed it, then poured a splash into a wide pottery bowl. He added a dollop of honey and swirled it around to mix it. Finally, he dipped his finger into the glass of bloody water, drew it out, and let a single drop fall into the bowl. Bast swirled it again and handed Quoth the bowl. Take a mouthful of this, he said. Don't swallow it. Hold it in your mouth until I tell you. His expression curious, Quoth tipped the bowl and took a mouthful of the milk. Bast took a mouthful as well. Then he closed his eyes for a long moment, a look of intense concentration on his face. Then he opened his eyes. He brought the bowl close to Quoth's mouth and pointed into it. 
Quoth spat out his mouthful of milk. It was a perfect, creamy white. Bast brought the bowl to his own mouth and spat. It was a frothy pink. Quoth's eyes widened. Bast, he said. You shouldn't... Bast made a sharp gesture with one hand, his eyes still hard. I did not ask for your opinion, Reshi. The innkeeper looked down, uncomfortable. It's more than you should do, Bast. The dark young man reached out and laid a gentle hand on the side of his master's face. For a moment, he looked tired, weary through to the bone. Bast shook his head slowly, wearing an expression of bemused dismay. You are an idiot, Reshi. Bast drew his hand back, and the weariness was gone. He pointed across the bar where Chronicler stood watching. Bring the food, he pointed at Quoth. Tell the story. Then he spun on his heel, walked back to his chair by the hearth, and lowered himself into it as if it were a throne. He clapped his hands twice sharply. Entertain me, he said with a wide, mad smile, and even from where the others stood near the bar, they could see the blood on his teeth. Chapter 137 Questions while the mayor of Levenshire seemed to approve of how I'd handled the false troopers, I knew matters weren't as simple as that. According to the Iron Law, I was guilty of at least three egregious crimes, any one of which would be enough to see me hanged. Unfortunately, everyone in Levenshire knew my name and description, and I worried the story might run ahead of me on the road. If that happened, I could easily come to a town where the local constables would do their duty and lock me up until a traveling magistrate arrived to judge my case. So I made my best speed towards Severin. I put in two days of hard walking, then paid for a seat on a coach heading south. Rumor travels fast, but you can keep ahead of it if you're willing to ride hard and lose a little sleep. After three days of bone-jarring ride, I arrived in Severin. The coach entered the city by the eastern gate, and for the first time, I saw the gibbet Braden had told me about. The sight of the bleached bones in the iron cage did not ease my anxieties. The mayor had put a man in there for simple banditry. What might he do to someone who had slaughtered nine traveling players on the road? I was sorely tempted to head straight to the Four Tapers, where I hoped to find Denna, despite what the Cathay had said. But I was covered in several days of grime and sweat. I needed a bath and a brush before I spoke with anyone. As soon as I was inside the mayor's estate, I sent a ring and note to Stapes, knowing it would be the quickest way to get in touch with the mayor for a private conversation. I made it back to my room with little delay, though it meant brushing roughly past a few courtiers in the halls. I had just set down my travel sack and sent runners for hot water when Stapes appeared in the doorway. Young Master Quoth, he beamed, grabbing my hand to shake it. It's good to have you back. Lord and lady, but I've been worried about you. His enthusiasm wrung a tired smile from me. It's good to be back, Stapes. Have I missed much? Much? He laughed. The wedding, for one. Wedding? I asked, but I knew the answer as soon as I said it. The mayor's wedding? Stapes nodded excitedly. Oh, it was a grand thing. It's a shame you had to be gone for it, considering... He gave a knowing look, but didn't say anything else. Stapes was always very discreet. They didn't waste much time, did they? 
It's been two months since the betrothal, Stape said with a hint of reproach. Not a bit less than proper. I saw him relax a bit, and he gave me a wink. Which isn't to say they weren't both a bit eager. I chuckled as runner boys came through the open door with buckets of steaming water. The splashing as they began to fill the bath was like sweet music. The manservant watched them leave, then leaned close and said in a quieter voice, You'll be glad to hear our other unresolved matter has been tended to properly. I looked at him blankly, searching through my memory for what he might be referring to. So much had happened since I had left. Stape saw my expression. Codicus, he said, his mouth twisting bitterly around the name. Dagon brought him back only two days after you left. He'd gone to ground not ten miles from the city. So close? I asked, surprised. Stapes nodded grimly. He was tucked away in a farmhouse like a badger in a burrow. He killed four of the mayor's personal guard and cost Dagon an eye. In the end, they only caught him by setting fire to the place. And what happened then? I asked. Not a trial, certainly. The matter was tended to, Stapes repeated. Properly. He said the last with a great weight of grim finality. His normally kind eyes were narrow with hate. In that moment, the round-faced little man looked very little like a grocer at all. I remembered Alvaron calmly saying, Take off his thumbs. Given what I knew of Alvaron's swift and decisive anger, I doubted anyone would ever see Cauticus again. Did the mayor manage to uncover why? Even though I spoke softly, I left the rest unsaid, knowing Stapes would not approve of my mentioning the poisoning openly. It's not my place to say, Stapes said carefully. His tone was slightly offended, as if I should know better than to ask him such things. I let the subject go, knowing that I wouldn't be able to get anything else out of Stapes. You'd be doing me a favor if you could deliver something to the mayor for me, I said, walking to where I dropped my worn travel sack. I rooted through it until I found the mayor's lockbox down near the bottom. I held it out to Stapes. I'm not sure what's in it, I said, but it's got his crest on the top, and it's heavy. I hope it might be some of the taxes that were stolen. I smiled. Tell him it's a wedding present. Stapes took hold of the box, smiling. I'm sure he'll be delighted. Three more runners appeared, but only two of them ran past with steaming buckets. The third went to Stapes and handed him a note. There was more splashing in the other room, and all three of the boys left again, stealing glances at me. Stapes skimmed the note, then looked up at me. The mayor is hoping it would be convenient for you to meet him in the garden at Fifth Bell, he said. The garden meant polite conversation. If the mayor had wanted a serious discussion, he would have summoned me to his rooms, or paid me a call through the secret passage that connected his rooms with mine. I looked at the clock on the wall. It wasn't a sympathy clock of the sort I was used to at the university. This was a harmony clock, swinging pendulum and all. Beautiful machinery, but not nearly as accurate. Its hands showed a quarter to the hour. Is that clock fast, Stapes? I asked hopefully. Fifteen minutes was barely enough time for me to strip out of my road clothes and lace myself into some sufficiently decorous court finery. But given the layers of dirt and sour sweat that covered me, 
That would be as pointless as tying a silk ribbon around a steaming cow pat. Stapes looked over my shoulder, then checked a small gear watch he kept in his pocket. It looks about five minutes slow, actually. I rubbed my face, considering my options. I wasn't simply must from a day's travel. I was filthy. I had walked hard under the summer sun, then spent days trapped in a stifling hot carriage. While the mayor was not one to judge things entirely by appearances, he did value propriety. I would not make a good impression if I showed up reeking and filthy. Unbidden, the memory of the iron gibbet rose up in my mind, and I decided I couldn't risk making a bad impression. Not with the news I brought. Stapes, I won't be ready for at least an hour. I could meet with him at Sixth Bell if he would like. Stapes' expression turned stiff and affronted. Its message was clear. You simply didn't request a different meeting time with the Mayor Alvaron. He asked, you came. That was the way of things. Stapes, I said as gently as I could. Look at me. Smell me. I've come three hundred miles in the last span of days. I'm not going to go strolling in the garden covered in road dust and reeking like a barbarian. Stapes' mouth firmed into a frown. I'll tell him you're otherwise occupied. More steaming buckets arrived. Tell him the truth, Stapes, I said as I began to unbutton my shirt. I'm sure he'll understand. After I was scrubbed, brushed, and properly dressed, I sent the mayor my golden ring and a card that said, Private Conversation at Your Earliest Convenience. Within an hour, a runner returned with a card from the mayor saying, Await my summons. I waited. I sent a runner to fetch dinner, then waited the rest of the evening. The following day passed without any further message, and because I didn't know when Alvaron's summons might come, I was effectively trapped in my rooms again, waiting for his ring. It was nice to have time to catch up on my sleep and have a second bath, but I was worried about the news from Levenshire catching up with me. The fact that I couldn't make my way down to Severin Low to look for Denna was a vast irritation as well. It was the sort of silent rebuke all too common in courtly settings. The mayor's message was clear. When I call, you come. My terms or not at all. It was childish in the way only the nobility can be. Still, there was nothing to be done. So I sent my silver ring to Braden. He arrived in time to share supper with me and caught me up on the season's worth of gossip I'd missed. Court rumor can be terribly insipid stuff, but Braden skimmed the cream off the top for me. Most of it centered around the mayor's whirlwind courtship and marriage to the lackless heir. They were besotted with each other, apparently. Many suspected a child might already be on the way. The royal court in Rhaenyra was busy, too. The prince regent Alatus had been killed in a duel, sending much of the southern feral into chaos as various nobility did their best to capitalize on the death of such a highly-ranked member of the court. There were rumors, too. The mayor's men had taken care of some bandits off in a remote piece of the Eld. They'd been waylaying tax collectors, apparently. There was grumbling in the north, where folk had to suffer a second visit from the mayor's collectors. But at least the roads were clear again, and those responsible were dead. Braden also mentioned an interesting rumor of a young man who had gone to visit Felurian and come back more or less intact, though slightly fey around the edges. It wasn't a court rumor, exactly. More the sort of thing you heard in a tap room. 
a low sort of rumor no high-born person would ever deign to lend an ear to. His dark, owlish eyes glittered merrily as he spoke. I agreed that such stories were indeed quite low and beneath the notice of fine persons such as ourselves. My cloak? It was rather fine, was it not? I couldn't remember where exactly I'd had it tailored. Somewhere exotic. By the way, I'd heard quite an interesting song the other day on the subject of Felurian. Would he like to hear it? We also played tack, of course. Despite the fact that I had spent a long time away from the board, Braden said my playing was much improved. It seemed I was learning how to play a beautiful game. Needless to say, when Alvaron sent his next summons, I came. I was tempted to arrive a few minutes late, but I resisted, knowing no good could come of it. The mayor was walking about on his own when I met him in the garden. He stood straight and tall, looking for all the world as if he'd never needed to lean on my arm or use a walking stick. Quoth, he smiled warmly. I'm glad you could find time to visit me. Always my pleasure, Your Grace. Shall we walk? he asked. The view is pleasant from the South Bridge this time of day. I fell into step beside him, and we began to wind our way among the carefully tended hedges. I could not help but notice that you are armed, he remarked, disapproval heavy on his voice. My hand went unconsciously to Sasura. It was at my hip now, rather than over my shoulder. Is there aught amiss with that, Your Grace? I have understood that all men keep the right to gird themselves in Vintus. It is hardly proper, he stressed the word. I understand that in the king's court in Rhaenyra there's not a gentleman would dare be seen without a sword. Well spoken as you are, you are no gentleman, Alvaron pointed out coolly as you would do well to remember. I said nothing. Besides, it is a barbarian custom, and one that will bring the king to grief in time. No matter what the custom in Rhaenyra, in my city, my house, and my garden, you will not come before me armed. He turned to look at me with hard eyes. I apologize if I have given any offense, Your Grace. I stopped and offered him a more earnest bow than the one I'd given before. My show of submission seemed to appease him. He smiled and laid a hand on my shoulder. There's no need for all that. Come, look at the morning fire. The leaves will be turning soon. We walked for a piece of an hour, chatting amiably about small nothings. I was unfailingly polite, and Alvaron's mood continued to improve. If catering to his ego kept me in his good graces, it was a small price to pay for his patronage. I must say that marriage suits your grace. Thank you, he nodded graciously. I have found it much to my liking. And your health continues well? I asked, pressing the boundaries of public conversation. Exceeding well, he said. Another benefit of married life, no doubt. He gave me a look that told me he would not appreciate further inquiry at least not in so public a place as this. We continued our walk, nodding to the nobles we passed. The mayor chatted on about trivialities, rumors in the court. I played along, filling my part in the conversation. But the truth was, I needed to have done with this so we could have an earnest conversation in private. But I also knew Alvaron could not be rushed into a discussion. Our talks had a ritual pattern. If I violated that, 
I would do nothing but annoy him. So I bided my time, smelled the flowers, and pretended interest in the gossip of the court. After a quarter hour, there was a characteristic pause in the conversation. Next, we would engage in an argument. After that, we could go somewhere private enough to speak of important matters. I have always thought, Alvaron said at last, introducing the topic of our discussion, that everyone has a question that rests in the center of who they are. How do you mean, Your Grace? I believe everyone has some question that drives them, a question that keeps them awake nights, a question they worry like a dog with an old bone. If you understand a man's question, it brings you closer to understanding the man himself. He looked sideways at me, half-smiling. Or so I have always believed. I thought on it for a moment. I would have to agree with you, Your Grace. Alvaron raised an eyebrow at this. As easy as that. He sounded slightly disappointed. I was expecting a bit of a struggle from you. I shook my head, glad for the easy opportunity to introduce a topic of my own. I've been worrying at a question for some years now, and I expect I will worry it some few years more. So what you say makes a perfect sense to me. Really? he said hungrily. What is it? I considered telling him the truth, about my search for the Chandrian and the death of my troop, but there was no real chance of that. The secret still sat in my heart, heavy as a great smooth stone. It was too personal a thing to tell someone as clever as the mayor. What's more, it would reveal my Edema Rue blood, something I had not made public knowledge in the mayor's court. The mayor knew I wasn't nobility, but he didn't know my blood was quite so low as that. It must be a heavy question for you to take so long in weighing it, Alvaron joked as I hesitated. Come, I insist. In fact, I will offer you a trade. A question for a question. Mayhap we will help each other to an answer. I could hardly hope for better encouragement than that. I thought for a moment, choosing my words carefully. Where are the Amir? The bloody-handed Amir. Alvaron mused softly to himself. He glanced sideways at me. I assume you're not asking where their bodies are bestowed. No, Your Grace, I said somberly. His face turned thoughtful. Interesting. I drew a relieved breath. I had half expected him to give a flip response to tell me the Amir were centuries dead. Instead, he said, I studied the Amir a great deal when I was younger, you know. Truly, Your Grace? I said, surprised by my own good luck. He looked at me, a ghost of a smile touching his lips. Not that surprising. I wanted to be one of the Amir when I was a boy. He looked ever so slightly embarrassed. Not all the stories are dark, you know. They did important things. They made hard choices that no one else was willing to. That sort of thing frightens people, but I believe they were a great force for good. I've always thought so, too, I admitted. Out of curiosity, which was your favorite story? Atreon, Alvaron said a little wistfully. I haven't thought of that in years. I could probably recite the Eight Oaths of Atreon from memory. He shook his head and glanced in my direction. And you? Atreon is a bit bloody for me, I admitted. 
Alvaron looked amused. They weren't called the bloody-handed Amir for nothing, he said. The tattoos of the Siri Day were hardly decorative. True, I admitted. Still, I prefer Sir Savian. Of course, he said, nodding. You're a romantic. We walked in silence for a moment, turning a corner and strolling past a fountain. I was enamored with them as a child, Alvaron said at last, as if confessing something slightly embarrassing. Men and women with all the power of the church behind them, and that was at a time when all the power of Atur stood behind the church. He smiled. Brave, fierce, and answerable to no one save themselves and God. And other Amir, I added. And ultimately the Pontifex, he finished. I assume you've read his proclamation declaiming them? Yes. We came to a small arching bridge of wood and stone, then stopped at the top of the arch and looked out over the water, watching the swans maneuver slowly on the current. Do you know what I found when I was younger? the mayor asked. I shook my head. Once I'd grown too old for children's stories of the Amir, I started wondering more specific things. How many Amir were there? How many were gentry? How many horse could they put to field for an armed action? He turned slightly to gauge my reaction. I was in Felton at the time. They have an old Ater and Mendery where they keep church records for the whole of the northern feral. I looked through their books for two days. Do you know what I found? Nothing, I said. You didn't find anything. Alvaron turned to look at me. His expression held a carefully controlled surprise. I found the same thing at the university, I said. It seemed as if someone had removed information about the Amir from the archives there. Not everything, of course, but there were scarce few solid details. I could see the mayor's own conclusions sparking to life behind his clever gray eyes. And who would do such a thing? he prompted. Who would have better reason than the Amir themselves? I said, which means they are still around, somewhere. Thus your question. Alvaron started walking again, slower than before. Where are the Amir? We left the stone bridge and began to walk the path around the pond, the mayor's face full of serious thought. Would you believe I had the same thought after searching in the mendery? he asked me. I thought the Amir might have avoided being brought to trial, gone into hiding. I thought there might even be Amir in the world after all this while, acting in secret for the greater good. I could feel the excitement bubbling in my chest. What did you discover? I asked eagerly. Discover? Alvaron looked surprised. Nothing. My father died that year and I became mayor. I dismissed it as a boyish fancy. He looked out over the water and the gently gliding swans. But if you found this same thing half a world away, he trailed off, and I drew the same conclusion, Your Grace. Alvaron nodded slowly. It is disturbing that there might be a secret this important. He looked around the garden at the walls of his estate. And in my own lands. I don't like that. He turned back to me his eyes sharp and clear. How do you propose to search them out?
I smiled ruefully. As your grace pointed out, no matter how well-spoken or well-educated I am, I will never be nobility. I lack the connections and the resources to research this as thoroughly as I would like, but with your name to open doors, I could make a search of many private libraries. I could access archives and records too private or too hidden to be pruned. Alvaron nodded, his eyes not leaving mine. I think I understand you. I, for one, would give a great deal to know the truth of this matter. He looked away as the sound of laughter drifted upward, mixing with the footsteps of a group of approaching nobles. You've given me a great deal to think about, he said in softer tones. We will discuss this further in more privacy. What time would be convenient for you to meet, Your Grace? Alvaron gave me a long, speculative look. Come to my rooms this evening, and since I cannot give you an answer, let me offer you a question of my own instead. I value questions near as much, Your Grace. Chapter 138 Notes With nearly five hours until my meeting with the mayor, I was finally free to go about my business in Severin Low. From the horse lifts, the sky was so clear and blue it could break your heart to look at it. With that in mind, I made my way to the Four Tapers Inn. The taproom wasn't busy, so it isn't surprising that the innkeeper spotted me heading toward the back stairs. Stop! You! He called out in broken A-Turin. Pay! Room only for paying men! Not wanting a scene, I approached the bar. The innkeeper was a thin, greasy man with a thick Lenati accent. I smiled at him. I was just visiting a friend. The woman in room three, long, dark hair. I gestured to show how long. Is she still here? Ah, he said, giving me a knowing look. The girl, her name, Dinay. I nodded knowing Denna changed her name as often as some other women changed their hair. The greasy man nodded again. Yes, the pretty dark eyes. She gone for long. My heart fell, despite the fact that I'd known better than to hope she would still be here after all this time. Do you know where she might have gone? He barked a short laugh. No, you and all the other wolves come sniffing after her. I could have sold knowing to you all to make a thick purse. But no, I hadn't idea. Might she have left a message for me? I asked without real hope. I hadn't found any letter or note waiting for me at Alvaron's estate. She was expecting me to find her here. Was she? He said mockingly, then seemed to remember something. I think there a note found. Might be. Not much a reader, me. You would like it? He smiled. I nodded, my heart lifting a little. She left without payment in her room, he said. Seventeen and a half pennies. I brought out a silver round and showed it to him. He reached for it, but I set it on the table and held it there with two fingers. He scurried off into a back room and was gone for a long five minutes. He finally returned with a tightly folded piece of paper clutched in one hand. I am find it! he said triumphantly, waving it in my direction. Not much good for paper here, but kindling. I looked at the piece of paper and felt my spirits lift. 
it was folded against itself in the same fashion as the letter I'd had the tinker deliver. If she'd copied that trick, it meant she must have read my letter and left this note for me. Hopefully, it would tell me where she had gone, how to find her. I slid the coin toward the innkeeper and took the note. Once outside, I hurried to the shadow of a recessed doorway, knowing it was the closest thing to privacy I would find on the busy street. I tore the note open carefully, unfolded it, and edged into the light. It read, Denna, I have been forced to leave town on an errand for my patron. I will be away some time, perhaps several span. It was sudden and unavoidable, else I would have made a point to see you before I left. I regret many of the things I said when we last spoke, and wish I could apologize for them in person. I will find you when I return. Yours, Quoth. At eighth bell, I made my way to the mayor's rooms, leaving Sasura behind. I felt oddly naked without it. It's strange how quickly we become accustomed to such things. Stape showed me into the mayor's sitting room, and Alvaron sent his manservant to invite Meloin to join us at her convenience. I wondered idly what would happen if she decided not to come. Would he ignore her for three days in silent rebuke? Alvaron settled onto a couch and gave me a speculative look. I've heard some rumors surrounding your recent excursion, he said. Some rather fantastic things I'm not given to believing. Perhaps you'd like to tell me what really happened. For a moment, I wondered how he'd managed to hear about my activities near Leventure so quickly. Then I realized he wanted to know the details of our bandit hunt in the Eld. I breathed a mental sigh of relief. I trust Daydan found you easily enough? I asked. Alvaron nodded. I regretted having to send him in my stead, Your Grace. He is not a subtle creature. He shrugged. No real harm was done. By the time he came to me, the need for secrecy was past. He did deliver my letter, then? Ah, yes, the letter. Alvaron pulled it out of a nearby drawer. I assumed it was some sort of odd joke. Your Grace? He gave me a frank stare, then looked down at my letter. Twenty-seven men, he read aloud, experienced mercenaries by their actions and appearance, a well-established camp with rudimentary fortifications. He looked up again. You can't expect me to believe this is the truth. The five of you couldn't possibly succeed against so many. We surprised them, Your Grace, I said with a certain smug understatement. The mayor's expression soured. Come now, all provincial humor aside— I consider this to be an extremely poor taste. Simply tell me the truth and have done. I have told you the truth, Your Grace. Had I known you would require proof, I would have let Daydan bring you a sackful of thumbs. It took a full hour of arguing to drive the notion out of his head. This didn't set the mayor back as I expected. Perhaps you should have let him, he said. The humor of the situation was rapidly fading for me. Your Grace... If I were to lie to you, I would choose a more convincing tale. I let him consider this for a moment. Besides, if all you want is proof, simply send someone out to verify it. We burned the bodies, but the skulls will still be there. I'll mark their camp for you on a map. The mayor took a different tack. What of this other part? Their leader. The man who didn't mind being shot through the leg. 
the one who stepped into his tent and disappeared. True, your grace. Alvaron eyed me for a long moment, then sighed. Then I believe you, he said. But still, it's strange and bitter news, he muttered almost to himself. Indeed, your grace. He gave me an oddly calculating look. What do you make of it? Before I could answer, there was the sound of a female voice from the outer rooms. Alvaron's scowl vanished, and he sat up straighter in his chair. I hid a smile behind my hand. It's Meluin, Alvaron said. If I am correct, she is bringing us the question I mentioned earlier. He gave me a sly smile. I think you will enjoy it. A puzzling thing, indeed. Chapter 139 Lockless Stapes escorted Meloin into the room while Alvaron and I rose to our feet. She was dressed in gray and lavender, and her curling chestnut hair was pulled back to reveal her elegant neck. Meloin was followed by two serving boys carrying a wooden chest. The mayor moved to take his wife's elbow while Stapes directed the boys to set the chest to one side of her chair. Alvaron's manservant hurried them outside and gave me a conspiratorial wink before he closed the door behind himself. Still standing, I turned to Meloin and made my bows. I am pleased to have the chance to meet with you again. My lady? I made the last a question, as I wasn't sure how to address her. The lackless lands used to be a full earldom, but that was before the Bloodless Rebellion, when they still controlled Tinue. Her marriage to Alvaron complicated things, too, as I wasn't sure if there was a female counterpart to the title of Mershan. Meloin waved her hand easily, dismissing the issue entirely. Lady is well enough between us two, at least when we are closeted. I've no need for formality from one to whom I owe so great a debt. She took hold of Alvaron's hand. Please, sit if you've a mind. I made another bow and took my seat eyeing the chest as casually as possible. It was about the size of a large drum, made of well-jointed birch and bound in brass. I knew the proper thing to do was engage in polite small talk until the matter of the chest was broached by one of the two of them. However, my curiosity got the better of me. I was told you were bringing a question with you. It must be a weighty one for you to keep it so tightly bound. I made a nod toward the chest. Meloin looked at Alvaron and laughed as if he had told a joke. My husband said you weren't the type to let a puzzle sit for very long. I gave a slightly shamefaced smile. It goes against my nature, lady. I would not have you battle your nature on my account. She smiled. Would you be so good as to bring it round in front of me? I managed to lift the chest without hurting myself, but if it weighed less than ten stone, then I'm a poet. Meloin sat forward in her chair, leaning over the chest. Lerand has told me of the part you played in bringing us together. For that, my thanks. I hold myself in debt to you. Her dark brown eyes were gravely serious. However, I also consider the greater piece of that debt repaid by what I am about to show you. I can count on both hands the people who have seen this. Debt or no— I would never have considered showing you had not my husband vouchsafed me your full discretion. She gave me a pointed look. By my hand, I will not speak of what I see to anyone, 
I assured her, trying not to seem as eager as I was. Maloan nodded. Then, rather than drawing out a key as I'd expected, she pressed her hands to the sides of the chest and slid two panels slightly. There was a soft click and the lid sprang slightly ajar. Lockless, I thought to myself. The open lid revealed another chest, smaller and flatter. It was the size of a bread box, and its flat brass lock plate held a keyhole that was not keyhole-shaped, but a simple circle instead. Maloin drew something from a chain around her neck. May I see that? I asked. Maloin seemed surprised. I beg your pardon? That key. May I see it for a moment? God's bother! Alvaron exclaimed. We haven't come to the interesting bit yet. I offer you the mystery of an age, and you admire the wrapping paper. Maloin handed me the key, and I gave it a quick but thorough examination, turning it in my hands. I like to take my mysteries layer by layer, I explained. Like an onion, he snorted. Like a flower, I countered, handing the key back to Maloin. Thank you. Maloin fit the key and opened the lid of the inner chest. She slid the chain back around her neck, tucked it underneath her clothes, and rearranged her clothes and hair, repairing any damage done to her appearance. This seemed to take an hour or so. Finally, she reached forward and lifted something out of the chest with both hands. Holding it just out of my sight behind the open lid, she looked up at me and took a deep breath. This has been, she began, just let him see it, dear, Alvaron interjected gently. I'm curious to see what he thinks on his own, he chuckled. Besides, I fear the boy will have a fit if you keep him waiting any longer. Reverently, Maloin handed me a piece of dark wood the size of a thick book. I took it with both hands. The box was unnaturally heavy for its size, the wood of it smooth as polished stone under my fingers. As I ran my hands over it, I found the sides were carved. Not dramatically enough to attract the attention of the eyes, but so subtly my fingers could barely feel a gentle pattern of risings and fallings in the wood. I brushed my hands over the top and felt a similar pattern. You were right, Maloin said softly. He's like a child with a midwinter's gift. You haven't seen the best of it yet, Alvaron replied. Wait until he starts. The boy has a mind like an iron hammer. How do you open it? I asked. I turned it in my hands and felt something shift inside. There were no obvious hinges or lid, not even a seam where a lid might be. It looked for all the world like a single piece of dark and weighty wood. But I knew it was a box of some sort. It felt like a box. It wanted to be opened. We don't know, Maloin said. She might have continued, but her husband hushed her gently. What's inside? I tilted it again, feeling the contents shift. We don't know, she repeated. The wood itself was interesting. It was dark enough to be Roa, but it had a deep red grain. What's more, it seemed to be a spice wood. It smelled faintly of... something. A familiar smell I couldn't quite put my finger on. I lowered my face to its surface and breathed in deeply through my nose, something almost like lemon. It was maddeningly familiar. 
What sort of wood is this? Their silence was answer enough. I looked up and met their eyes. You don't give a body much to work with, do you? I smiled to soften any offense the words might bring. Alvaron sat forward in his chair. You must admit, he said with thinly veiled excitement, this is a most excellent question. You've shown me your gift at guessing before. His eyes glittered gray. So what can you guess about this? It's an heirloom, I said easily. Very old. How old would you think? Alvaron interjected hungrily. Perhaps three thousand years, I said. Give or take. Maluin stiffened in surprise. I am close to your own guesses, I take it. She nodded mutely. The carving has no doubt been eroded over the long years of handling. Carving? Alvaron asked, leaning forward in his chair. It's very faint, I said, closing my eyes. But I can feel it. I felt no such thing. Nor I, said Maluin. She seemed slightly offended. I have exceptionally sensitive hands, I said honestly. They're necessary for my work. Your magic? she asked, with a well-hidden hint of childlike awe. And music, I said, if you'll allow me. She nodded. So I took her hand in my own and pressed it to the top of the box. There. Can you feel it? She furrowed her forehead in concentration. Perhaps just a bit. She took her hand away. Are you sure it's a carving? It's too regular to be an accident. How can it be you haven't noticed it before? Isn't it mentioned in any of your histories? Maloin was taken aback. No one would think of writing down anything regarding the Loklos box. Haven't I said this is the most secret of secrets? Show me, Alvaron said. I guided his fingers over the pattern. He frowned. Nothing. My fingers must be too old. Could it be letters? I shook my head. It's a flowing pattern, like scroll work. But it doesn't repeat. It changes. A thought struck me. It might be a Yillish story, not. Can you read it? Alvaron asked. I ran my fingers over it. I don't know enough Yillish to read a simple knot if I had the string between my fingers. I shook my head. Besides, the knots would have changed in the last three thousand years. I know a few people who might be able to translate it at the university. Alvaron looked to Maluin, but she shook her head firmly. I will not have this spoken of to strangers. The mayor seemed disappointed by this answer, but didn't press the point. Instead, he turned back to me. Let me ask you your own questions back again. What sort of wood is it? It's lasted three thousand years, I mused aloud. It's heavy despite being hollow, so it has to be a slow wood, like hornbeam or a rennel. Its color and weight make me think it has a good deal of metal in it, too, like roa. Probably iron and copper, I shrugged. That's the best I can do. What's inside it? I thought for a long moment before saying anything. Something smaller than a salt box, I began. Maloin smiled, but Alvaron gave the barest of frowns, so I hurried on. Something metal, by the way the weight shifts when I tilt it. 
I closed my eyes and listened to the padded thump of its contents moving in the box. No. By the weight of it, perhaps something made of glass or stone. Something precious, Alvaron said. I opened my eyes. Not necessarily. It has become precious because it is old and because it has been with a family for so long. It is also precious because it is a mystery. But was it precious to begin with? I shrugged. Who can say? But you lock up precious things, Alvaron pointed out. Precisely. I held up the box, displaying its smooth face. This isn't locked up. In fact, it might be locked away. It may be something dangerous. Why would you say that? Alvaron asked curiously. Why go through this trouble? Malowin protested. Why save something dangerous? If something is dangerous, you destroy it. She seemed to answer her own question as soon as she had voiced it. Unless it was precious as well as dangerous. Perhaps it was too useful to destroy, Alvaron suggested. Perhaps it couldn't be destroyed, I said. Last and best, Alvaron said, leaning forward even further in his seat. How do you open it? I gave the box a long look, turned it in my hands, pressed the sides. I ran my fingers over the patterns, feeling for a seam my eyes could not detect. I shook it gently, tasted the air around it, held it to the light. I have no idea, I admitted. Alvaron slumped a little. It was too much to expect, I suppose. Perhaps some piece of magic? I hesitated to tell him that sort of magic only existed in stories. None I have at my command. Have you ever considered simply cutting it open? Alvaron asked his wife. Malowin looked every bit as horrified as I felt at the suggestion. Never, she said as soon as she caught her breath. It is the very root of our family. I would sooner think of salting every acre of our lands. And hard as this wood is, I hurried to say, you would most likely ruin whatever was inside, especially if it is delicate. It was only a thought, Alvaron reassured his wife. An ill-considered one, Malowin said sharply, then seemed to regret her words. I'm sorry, but the very thought— She trailed off, obviously distraught. He patted her hand. I understand, my dear. You're right. It was ill-considered. Might I put it away now? Malowin asked him. I reluctantly handed the box back to Malowin. If there were a lock, I could attempt to circumvent it, but I can't even make a guess at where the hinge might be, or the seam for the lid. In a box, no lid or locks. Lackless keeps her husband's rocks. The child's skipping rhyme ran madly through my head, and I only barely managed to turn my laugh into a cough. Alvaron didn't seem to notice. As always, I trust to your discretion. He got to his feet. Unfortunately, I fear I have used up the better portion of our time. I'm certain you have other matters to attend to. Shall we meet tomorrow to discuss the Amir? Second bell? I had risen to my feet with the mayor. If it please your grace, I have another matter that warrants some discussion. He gave me a serious look. I trust this is an important matter. Most urgent, your grace, I said nervously. It should not wait another day. 
I would have mentioned it sooner had we both privacy and time. Very well. He sat back down. What presses you so direly? Lerand, Malowin said with slight reproach, it is past the hour. Hyannis will be waiting. Let him wait, he said. Quoth has served me well in all regards. He does nothing lightly, and I ignore him only to my detriment. You flatter me, your grace. This matter is a grave one. I glanced at Malowin. And somewhat delicate as well. If your lady desires to leave, it might be for the best. If the matter is important, should I not stay? She asked archly. I gave the mayor a questioning look. Anything you wish to say to me, you can tell my lady wife, he said. I hesitated. I needed to tell Alvaron about the false troopers soon. I was sure if he heard my version of events first, I could present them in a way that cast me in a favorable light. If word came through official channels first, he might not be willing to overlook the bald facts of the situation, that I had slaughtered nine travelers of my own free will. Despite that, the last thing I wanted was Malowin present for the conversation. It couldn't help but complicate the situation. I tried one final time. It is a matter most dark, your grace. Alvaron shook his head, frowning slightly. We have no secrets. I fought down a resigned sigh and drew a thick piece of folded parchment from an inner pocket of my shade. Is this one of the writs of patronage your grace has granted? His eyes flickered over it, showing some surprise. Yes. How did you come by it? Oh, Leyrand, Malowin said. I knew you let the beggars travel in your lands, but I never thought you would stoop to patronizing them as well. Only a handful of troops, he said, as befitting my rank. Every respectable household has at least a few players. Mine, Malowin said firmly, does not. It is convenient to have one's own troop, Alvaron said gently, and more convenient to have several. Then one can choose the proper entertainment to accompany whatever event you might be hosting. Where do you think the musicians at our wedding came from? When Malowin's expression did not soften, Alvaron continued, They are not permitted to perform anything bawdy or heathen, dear. I keep them under most close controlment, and rest assured, no town in my lands would let a troop perform unless they had a noble's writ with them. Alvaron turned back to me, which brings us back to the matter at hand. How did you come to have their writ? The troop must be doing poorly without it. I hesitated. With Malowin here, I was unsure as to the best way to approach the subject. I'd planned on speaking to the mayor alone. They are, your grace. They were killed. The mayor showed no surprise. I thought as much. Such things are unfortunate, but they happen from time to time. Malowin's eyes flashed. I'd give a great deal to see them happen more often. Have you any idea who killed them? the mayor asked. In a certain manner of speaking, your grace. He raised his eyebrows expectantly. Well, then? I did. You did what? I sighed. I killed the men carrying that writ, your grace. He stiffened in his seat. What? They had kidnapped a pair of girls from a town they passed through. I paused, 
looking for a delicate way of saying it in front of Maloin. They were young girls, your grace, and the men were not kind to them. Maloin's expression, already hard, grew cold as ice at this. But before she could speak, Alvaron demanded incredulously, And you took it on yourself to kill them? An entire troop of performers I had given license to? He rubbed his forehead. How many were there? Nine. Good Lord! I think he did right, Maloin said hotly. I say you give him a score of guards and let him do the same to every ravel band of rue he finds within your lands. My dear, Alvaron said with a touch of sternness, I don't care for them much more than you, but law is law when— Law is what you make it, she interjected. This man has done you a noble service. You should grant him fief and title and set him on your council. He killed nine of my subjects, Alvaron pointed out sternly. When men step outside the rule of law, anarchy results. If I heard of this in passing, I would hang him for a bandit. He killed nine rue rapists, nine murdering rabble thieves. Nine fewer edema men in the world is a service to us all. Maloin looked at me. Sir, I think you did nothing but what was right and proper. Her misdirected praise did nothing but fan the fire beneath my temper. Not all of them were men, my lady, I said to her. Maloin paled a bit at that remark. Alvaron rubbed his face with a hand. Good Lord, man, your honesty is like a felling axe. And I should mention, I said seriously, begging both your pardons, that those I killed were not Edema Rue. They were not even a real troop. Alvaron shook his head tiredly and tapped the writ in front of him. It says here otherwise. Edema Rue and troopers both. The writ was stolen goods, your grace. The folk I met on the road had killed a troop of Rue and taken up their place. He gave me a curious look. You seem rather certain of it. One of them told me so, your grace. He admitted they were merely impersonating a troop. They were pretending to be Rue. Maloin looked as if she couldn't decide whether she was confused or sickened by the thought. Who would pretend such a thing? Alvaron nodded. My wife makes a point, he said. It seems more likely that they lied to you. Who wouldn't deny such a thing? Who would willingly admit to being one of the Adimaru? I felt myself flush hot at this, suddenly ashamed that I had concealed my Adimaru blood for all this time. I don't doubt your original troop were Adimaru, your grace, but the men I killed were not. No Rue would do the things they did. Maloin's eyes flashed furiously. You do not know them. I met her eyes. My lady... I think I know them rather well. But why? Alvaron asked. Who in their right mind would try to pass themselves off as a Dimaru? For ease of travel, I said, and the protection your name offers. He shrugged my explanation away. They were probably Rue that tired of honest work and took up thieving instead. No, your grace, I insisted. They were not a Dimaru. Alvaron gave me a reproachful look. Come now, who can tell the difference between bandits and a band of rue? There is no difference, Maloin said crisply. Your grace, I would know the difference, I said hotly. 
I am Adima Ru. Silence. Meluin's expression turned from blank shock to disbelief to rage to disgust. She came to her feet, looked for a moment as if she would spit on me, then walked stiffly out the door. There was a clatter as her personal guard came to attention and followed her out of the outer rooms. Alvaron continued to look at me, his face severe. If this is a joke, it is a poor one. It is none, your grace, I said, wrestling with my temper. And why have you found it necessary to hide this from me? I have not hidden it, your grace. You yourself have mentioned several times that I am far from gentle birth. He struck the arm of his chair angrily. You know what I mean! Why did you never mention that you were one of the Rue? I think the reason rather obvious, your grace, I said stiffly, trying to keep from spitting out the words. The words Edema Rue have too strong a smell for many gentle noses. Your wife has found her perfume cannot cover it. My lady has had unfortunate dealings with the Rue in the past, he said by way of explanation. You would do well to note. I know of her sister, her family's tragic shame. Run off and love a trooper. How terrible, I said scathingly, my entire body prickling with hot rage. Her sister's sense does credit to her family, less so the actions of your lady wife. My blood is worth as much as any man's, and more than most. And even were it not, she has no leave to treat me as she did. Alvaron's expression hardened. I rather think that she has leave to treat you as she will, he said. She was simply startled by your sudden proclamation. Given her feelings about you ravel, I think she showed remarkable restraint. I think she ruse the truth. A trooper's tongue has gotten her to bed more quickly than her sister. As soon as I said it, I knew I had gone too far. I clenched my teeth to keep from saying anything worse. That will be all, Alvaron said with cold formality, his eyes flat and angry. I left with all the angry dignity I could muster, not because I had nothing else to say, but because if I had stayed one moment longer, he would have called for guards, and that is not how I wish to make my exit. Chapter 140 Just Rewards I was in the middle of dressing the following morning when an errand boy arrived bearing a thick envelope with Alvaron's seal. I took a seat by the window and discovered several letters inside. The outermost one read, Quoth, I have thought a while and decided your blood matters but little in light of the services you have rendered me. However, my soul is bound to another whose comfort I hold more dearly than my own. Though I had hoped to retain your services, I cannot. What's more, as your presence is the cause of my wife's considerable distress, I must ask you to return my ring and leave Severin at your earliest convenience. I stopped reading, got to my feet, and opened the door to my rooms. A pair of Alvaron's guards were standing at attention in the hallway. Sir? One of them said, eyeing my half-dressed state. Just checking, I said, closing the door. I returned to my seat and picked up the letter again. As to the matter that precipitated this unfortunate circumstance, I believe you have acted in the best interest of myself and Vintus as a whole. 
In fact, I have received report just this morning that two girls were returned to their families in Levenshire by a red-haired gentleman named Quoth. As reward for your many services, I offer the following. First, a full pardon for those you killed near Levenshire. Second, a letter of credit enabling you to draw on my coffers for the payment of your tuition at the university. Third, a writ granting you the right to travel, play, and perform wherever you will within my lands. Lastly, my thanks. Mershon Lerand Alvaron I sat for a few long minutes, watching the birds flit in the garden outside my window. The contents of the envelope were just as Alvaron had said. The letter of credit was a work of art, signed and sealed in four places by Alvaron and his chief exchequer. The writ was, if anything, even more lovely. It was drawn on a thick sheet of creamy vellum, signed by the mayor's own hand and fixed with both his family's seal and that of Alvaron himself. But it was not a writ of patronage. I read through it carefully. By omission, it made it clear that neither was I in the mayor's service, nor were we bound to each other. Still, it granted me free travel and the right to perform under his name. It was an odd compromise of a document. i just finished dressing when there came another knock on the door. I sighed, half expecting more guards coming to roust me out of my rooms. But opening the door, I revealed another runner boy. He carried a silver tray bearing another letter. This one had the lackless seal upon the top. Beside it lay a ring. I picked it up and turned it over in my hands, puzzled. It wasn't iron, as I'd expected, but pale wood. Malowin's name was burned crudely into the side of it. I noticed the runner boy's wide eyes darting back and forth between the ring and myself. More importantly, I noticed the guards were not staring at it. Pointedly not staring. The sort of not staring you only engage in when something very interesting has come to your attention. I handed the boy my silver ring. Take this to Braden, I said, and don't dawdle. Braden was looking up at the guards as I opened the door. Keep up the good work, my boys, he said playfully, tapping one of them on the chest with his walking stick. The silver wolf's head chimed lightly against the guard's breastplate, and Braden smiled like a jolly uncle. We all feel safer for your vigilance. He closed the door behind himself and raised an eyebrow at me. Lord's mercy, boy, you're up the ladder by leaps and bounds. I knew you sat solid in the mayor's good grace, but to have him assign you two of his personal guard? He pressed his hand to his heart and sighed dramatically. Soon you will be too busy for the likes of poor old useless Brayden. I gave him a weak smile. I think it's more complicated than that. I held up the wooden ring for him to see. I need you to tell me what this means. Braden's jovial cheer evaporated more quickly than if I'd pulled out a bloody knife. Lord and lady, he said. Tell me you got that from some old-fashioned farmer. I shook my head and handed it to him. He turned the ring over in his hands. Malowin? he asked quietly. Handing it back, he sank into a nearby chair, his walking stick across his knees. His face had gone slightly gray. The mayor's new lady wife sent you this? As a summons? It's about as far from a summons as anything can be, I said. She sent a charming letter, too. 
I held it up with my other hand. Braden held out his hand. Can I see it? He asked, then drew his hand back quickly. I'm sorry. That's terribly rude of me to ask. You could do me no greater favor than reading it, I said, pressing it into his hands. I am in desperate need of your opinion. Braden took the letter and began to read, his lips moving slightly. His expression grew paler as he made his way down the page. The lady has a gift for well-turned phrase, I said. That cannot be denied, he said. She might as well have written this in blood. I think she would have liked to, I said, but she would have to kill herself to fill the second page. I held it out to him. Braden took it and continued to read, his face growing even paler. God's all around us, he said. Is excrescence even a word? he asked. It is, I said. Braden finished the second page, then went back to the beginning and slowly read it through a second time. Finally, he looked up at me. If there were a woman, he said, who loved me with one-tenth the passion this lady feels for you, I would count myself the luckiest of men. What does this mean? I asked, holding up the ring. I could smell smoke on it. She must have burned her name into it just this morning. From a farmer? He shrugged. Many things, depending on the wood. But here? From one of the nobility? He shook his head, obviously at a loss for words. I thought there were only three types of courtly rings, I said. Only three a person would use, he said. Only three that are sent and displayed. It used to be you sent wooden rings to summon servants, those too low for iron. But that was a long while back. Eventually it became a terrible snub to send someone in the court a wooden ring. A snub I can live with, I said relieved. I've been snubbed by better folk than her. That was a hundred years ago, Braden said. Things have changed. The problem was, once the wooden rings were seen as a snub, some servants would be offended by them. You don't want to offend the master of your stables, so you don't send him a wooden ring. But if he doesn't get a wooden ring, then your tailor might be offended by one. I nodded my understanding. And so on. Eventually everyone was offended by a wooden ring. Braden nodded. A wise man is careful to stay on the good side of his servants, he said. Even the boy that brings your dinner can carry a grudge, and there are a thousand invisible revengers available to the lowest of them. Wooden rings aren't used at all anymore. They probably would have fallen out of memory entirely if they weren't used as a plot device in a handful of plays. I looked at the ring. So I'm lower than the boy who collects the slops. Braden cleared his throat self-consciously. More than that, actually, he pointed. That means to her, you aren't even a person. You aren't worth recognizing as a human being. Ah, I said. I see. I slid the wooden ring onto my finger and made a fist. It was quite a good fit, actually. It's not the sort of ring you wear... Braden said uncomfortably. It's quite the other sort of ring, actually. He gave me a curious look. 
I don't suppose you still have Alvaron's ring? He asked for it back, actually. I picked the mayor's letter off the table and handed it to Braden as well. At your earliest convenience, Braden quoted with a dry chuckle. That says quite a bit more than it seems. He set the letter down. Still, it's probably better this way. If he left you with his favor, you'd be a battleground for them, a peppercorn between her mortar and his pestle. They would crush you with their bickering. His eyes flickered back to the wooden ring on my hand. I don't suppose she gave it to you personally, he asked hopefully. She sent it with a runner. I let out a low sigh. The guards saw it, too. There was a knock on the door. I answered it, and a runner boy handed me a letter. I closed the door and looked at the seal. Lord Pravek, I said. Braden shook his head. I swear that man spends every waking moment with his ear against a keyhole or his tongue up someone's ass. Chuckling, I cracked the letter open and scanned it quickly. He's asking for his ring back, I said. It's smudged, too. He didn't even wait for the ink to dry. Braden nodded. Word is undoubtedly spreading. It wouldn't be so bad if she wasn't sitting strong at Alvaron's right hand. But she is, and she's made her opinion clear. Anyone who treats you better than a dog will doubtless share the scorn she feels for you. He fluttered her letter. And scorn such as this, there's plenty to go around without worry of it spreading thin. Braden gestured to the bowl of rings and gave a dry, mirthless chuckle. Just when you were getting some silver, too. I walked over to the bowl, dug out his ring, and held it out to him. You should take this back, I said. Braden's expression looked pained, but he made no move to take the ring. I'm going to be leaving soon, I said, and I'd hate for you to be tarnished by your contact with me. There's no way I can thank you for the help you've given me. The least I can do is help minimize the damage to your reputation. Braden hesitated, then closed his eyes and sighed. He took the ring with a defeated shrug. Oh, I said, suddenly remembering something else. I went to the stack of slanderous stories and pulled out the pages that described his pagan frolics. You might find this amusing, I said as I handed it to him. Now you should probably go. Simply being here can't be good for you. Braden sighed and nodded. I'm sorry it didn't work out better for you, my boy. If you're ever back in these parts, don't hesitate to call on me. These things do blow over eventually. His eyes kept drifting back to the wooden ring on my finger. You really shouldn't keep wearing that. After he was gone, I fished Stapes's gold ring out of the bowl and Alvaron's iron one as well. Then I stepped out into the hallway. I'm going to pay a call on Stapes, I said politely to the guards. Would the two of you care to accompany me? The taller one glanced at the ring on my finger, then looked at his companion before murmuring in agreement. I turned on my heel and set off, my escort keeping pace behind me. Stapes ushered me inside his sitting room and closed the door behind me. His rooms were even finer than my own and considerably more lived in. I also saw a large bowl of rings on a nearby table. All of them were gold. 
The only iron ring in sight was Alvaron's, and that was on his finger. He might look like a grocer, but Stapes had a sharp set of eyes. He spotted the ring on my finger straight away. She did it then, he said, shaking his head. You really shouldn't wear it. I'm not ashamed of what I am, I said. If this is the ring of an Edema Rue, I'll wear it. Stapes sighed. It's more complicated than that. I know, I said. I didn't come here to make your life difficult. Could you return this to the mayor for me? I handed him Alvaron's ring. Stapes put it in his pocket. I also wanted to return these. I handed him the two rings he had given me. One bright gold, one white bone. I don't want to make trouble between you and your master's new wife. Stapes nodded, holding up the gold ring. It would make trouble if you kept it, he said. I am in the mayor's service. As such, I need to be mindful of the games of the court. Then he reached out and took my hand, pressing the bone ring back into it. But this lies outside my duty to the mayor. It is a debt between two men. The games of the court have no sway over such things. Stapes met my eye. And I insist you keep it. I ate a late supper alone in my rooms. The guards were still waiting patiently outside as I read the mayor's letter for the fifth time. Each time I hoped to find some clement sentiment hidden in his phrasing. But it simply wasn't there. On the table sat the various papers the mayor had sent. I emptied my purse beside them. I had two gold royals, four silver nobles, eight and a half pennies, and, inexplicably, a single Modegan Stralum, though I couldn't for the life of me remember where I'd come by it. Altogether, they equaled slightly less than eight talents. I stacked them next to Alvaron's papers. Eight talents, a pardon, a player's writ, and my tuition paid at the university. It was not an inconsiderable reward. Still, I couldn't help but feel rather shorted. I had saved Alvaron from a poisoning, uncovered a traitor in his court, won him a wife, and rid his roads of more dangerous folk than I cared to count. Despite all that, I was still left without a patron. Worse, his letter had made no mention of the Amir, no mention of the support he had promised to lend me in my search for them. But there was nothing to be gained by making a fuss and much that I could lose. I refilled my purse and tucked Alvaron's letters into the secret compartment in my loot case. I also nicked three books I'd brought from Codicus's library, since no one knew I had them, and tipped the bowl full of rings into a small sack. The wardrobe held two dozen finely tailored outfits. They were worth a heavy penny, but weren't very portable. I took two of the nicer outfits and left the rest hanging. Lastly, I belted on Susura and worked my shade into a long cape. Those two items reassured me that my time in Ventus had not been entirely wasted, though I'd earned them on my own, not through any help of Alvaron's. I locked the door, snuffed the lamps, and climbed out a window into the garden. Then I used a piece of bent wire to lock the window and close the shutters behind me. Petty mischief? Perhaps, but I'd be damned if I'd be escorted from the estates by the mayor's guard. Besides, the thought of them puzzling over my escape made me chuckle, and laughter is good for the digestion. I made my way out of the estates without anyone seeing me. 
My shade was well suited to sneaking about in the dark. After an hour of searching, I found a greasy bookbinder in Severin Lowe. He was an unsavory fellow with the morals of a feral dog, but he was interested in the stack of slanderous stories the nobility had been sending to my rooms. He offered me four reels for the lot of them, plus the promise of ten pennies for every volume of the book he sold after they were printed. I bargained him up to six reels and six pennies per copy, and we shook hands. I left his shop, burned the contract, and washed my hands twice. I did keep the money, however. After that, I sold both suits of fine clothing and all of Codicus's books, except for one. With the money I'd accumulated, I spent the next several hours on the docks and found a ship leaving the next day for Junpui. As night settled onto the city, I wandered the high parts of Severin, hoping I might run into Denna. I didn't, of course. I could tell she was long gone. A city feels different when Denna is somewhere inside it, and Severin felt as hollow as an empty egg. At the end of several hours of fruitless searching, I stopped by a dockside brothel and spent some time drinking in the taproom. It was a slow night, and the ladies were bored. So I bought drinks for everyone, and we talked. I told a few stories, and they listened. I played a few songs, and they applauded. Then I asked a favor, and they laughed and laughed and laughed. So I poured the sack full of rings into a bowl and left them on the bar. Soon, the ladies were trying them on and arguing over who would get the silver ones. I bought another round of drinks and left. My mood somewhat improved. I wandered aimlessly after that, eventually finding a small public garden near the lip of the shear looking out over Severin Low. The lamps below were burning orange, while here or there a gaslight or sympathy lamp flickered greenish-blue and crimson. It was as breathtaking as the first time I had seen it. I had been watching for some time before I realized I wasn't alone. An older man leaned against a tree several feet away, looking down at the lights much as I had been. A faint and not unpleasant aroma of beer wafted from him. She's a pretty thing, isn't she? He said, his accent marking him as a dock worker. I agreed. We watched the twinkling fires silently for a time. I unscrewed the wooden ring from my finger and considered throwing it off the cliff, now that someone was watching, I couldn't help but feel the gesture was somewhat childish. They say a nobleman can piss on half a severing from up here, the dock man said conversationally. I tucked the ring into a pocket of my shade. A memento, then. Those are the lazy ones, I replied. The ones I've met can piss a lot further than that. Chapter 141 a journey to return. Fate favored me on the way back to the university. We had a good wind, and everything was delightfully uneventful. The sailors had heard of my encounter with Felurian, so I enjoyed a modest fame for the duration of the trip. I played them the song I had written about it, and told them the story about half as often as they asked me to. I also told them about my trip to the ADEM. They didn't believe a piece of it at first, but then I showed them the sword and threw their best wrestler three times. They showed me a different sort of respect after that, and a rougher, more honest sort of friendship. I learned a goodly bit from them on my journey home. They told me sea stories and the names of stars. They talked about wind, water, and women. Sorry, women. They tried to teach me sailor's knots, but 
I didn't have a knack for it, though I proved to be a dab hand at untying them. Altogether, it was very pleasant. The friendship of the sailors, the song of the wind in the rigging, the smell of sweat and salt and tar. Over the long days, these things slowly eased the bitterness I felt toward my ill treatment at the hands of Mayor Alvaron and his loving lady wife. Chapter 142 Home Eventually, we docked in Tarbian, where the sailors helped me find a cheap berth on a billow boat heading upstream toward Anilin. I got off two days later in Imre and walked to the university just as the first blue light of dawn was coloring the sky. I've never in my life had anything like a home. As a young child, I grew up on the road, endlessly traveling with my troop. Home wasn't a place. It was people and wagons. Later in Tarbian, I had had a secret place where three roofs came together and gave me shelter from the rain. I slept there and hid a few precious things, but it wasn't anything like a home. Because of this, I'd never in my life enjoyed the feeling of coming home after a journey. I felt it for the first time that day as I crossed the Omethi, the stones of the bridge familiar underneath my feet. As I came to the tallest part of its broad arch, I could see the gray shape of the archives rising out of the trees ahead of me. The streets of the university were comforting under my feet. I'd been gone for three quarters of a year. In some ways, it seemed much longer. But at the same time, everything here felt so familiar that it felt like hardly any time at all had passed. It was still early when I got to Anchors, and the front door was locked. I briefly considered climbing up to my window, then thought better of it, given that I was carrying my loot case and travel sack, and wearing Sasura as well. Instead, I made my way to the Muse and knocked on Simmons' door. It was early, and I knew I'd be waking him, but I was hungry for a familiar face. After waiting a short minute and hearing nothing, I knocked again, louder, and practiced my best jaunty smile. Sim opened the door, his hair in disarray, his eyes red from too little sleep. He looked blearily out at me. For the space of a breath, his expression was blank. Then he hurled himself at me with a crushing hug. Black and body of God, he said, using stronger language than I'd ever heard from him before. Quoth, you're alive! Sim had a bit of a cry, then shouted at me for a while, and then we laughed and sorted matters out. It seems Threp had been keeping closer tabs on my travels than I'd thought. Consequently, when my ship had gone missing, he'd assumed the worst. A letter would have cleared things up, but I'd never thought to send one. The thought of writing home was utterly alien to me. The ship was reported as all hands lost, Sim said. Word spread around the Aeolian, and guess who heard the news? Stanchion? I asked, knowing he was a terrible gossip. Sim shook his head grimly. Ambrose. Oh, lovely, I observed dryly. It would have been bad coming from anyone, Sim said. But it was worst from him. I was half convinced he'd somehow arranged to sink your ship. He gave a sickly smile. He waited until right before admissions before he broke the news to me. Needless to say, I pissed all over myself during my exam and spent another term as an Elyr. Spent? I said. You made Rilar? He grinned. Just yesterday. I was sleeping off the celebration when you woke me up this morning. How's Will? I asked. 
Did he take the news hard? Even keeled as always, Sim said. But for all that, yeah, pretty hard. He grimaced. Ambrose has been making his life difficult in the archives, too. Will got fed up with it and went home for a term. He should be back today. How's everyone else? I asked. A thought seemed to strike Sim all of a sudden. He stood up. Oh, God, fella! Then he sat down hard, as if his legs had been cut from underneath him. Oh, God, fella! He said in a completely different tone. What? I asked. Did something happen to her? She didn't take the news well, either. He gave me a shaky smile. It turns out she had quite a thing for you. Fella? I said stupidly. Don't you remember? Will and I thought she liked you. It seemed like years ago. I remember. Sim seemed uncomfortable. Well, you see, while you were gone, Will and I started spending a lot of time with her, and... He made an inarticulate gesture. His expression was stuck between sheepish and grinning. Realization struck. You and Fella? Sim, that's great! I felt a grin spread across my face, then saw his expression. Oh! My grin fell away. Sim, I wouldn't get in the way of that. I know you wouldn't. He smiled a sickly smile. I trust you. I rubbed my eyes. This is a hell of a homecoming. I haven't even been through admissions yet. Today's the last day, Sim pointed out. I know, I said, getting to my feet. I have an errand to run first. I left my baggage in Simmons' room and paid a visit to the bursar in the basement of Hollows. Reem was a balding, pinch-faced man who had disliked me ever since the masters had assigned me a negative tuition in my first term. He wasn't in the habit of giving money out, and the entire experience had rubbed him the wrong way. I showed him my open letter of credit to Alvaron's coffers. As I've said, it was an impressive document, signed by the mayor's own hand, wax seals, fine vellum, excellent penmanship. I drew the bursar's attention to the fact that the mayor's letter would allow the university to draw any amount needed to cover my tuition. Any amount. The bursar read it over and agreed that that seemed to be the case. It's too bad my tuition was always so low, I mused aloud. Never more than ten talents. It was a bit of a missed opportunity for the university. The mayor was richer than the king of Vint, after all and he would pay any tuition. Reem was a savvy man, and he understood what I was hinting at immediately. There followed a brief bout of negotiation, after which we shook hands and I saw him smile for the first time. I grabbed a bite of lunch, then waited in line with the rest of the students who didn't have admissions tiles. Most of them were new students, but a few were applying for readmission like myself. It was a long line, and everyone was visibly nervous to some degree. I whistled to pass the time, and bought a meat pie and a mug of hot cider from a man with a cart. I caused a bit of a stir when I stepped into the circle of light in front of the master's table. They had heard the news and were surprised to see me alive, most of them pleasantly so. Kilvin demanded I report to the workshop soon, while Mandrag, Dahl, and Arwill argued over which courses of study I would pursue. Elodin merely waved at me, the only one apparently unimpressed by my miraculous return from the dead. 
After a minute of congenial chaos, the Chancellor got things back under control and started my interview. I answered Dahl's questions easily enough, and Kilvin's, but I fumbled my cipher with Brandor, then had to admit I simply didn't know the answer to Mandrag's question about sublimation. Elodin shrugged away his opportunity to question me, yawning hugely. Lauren asked a surprisingly easy question about the Mender heresies, and I managed a quick and clever answer for him. I had to think for a long moment before answering Arwell's question about Lycilium. That left only Hem, who had been scowling furiously since I'd first stepped up to the master's table. My lackluster performance and slow answers had brought a smug curve to his lips by this point. His eyes gleamed whenever I gave a wrong answer. Well, well, he said, shuffling through the sheaf of papers in front of him. I didn't think we'd have to deal with your type of trouble again. He gave me an insincere smile. I'd heard you were dead. I heard you wear a red lace corset, I said matter-of-factly, but I don't believe every bit of nonsense that gets rumored about. Some shouting followed, and I was quickly brought up on charges of improper address of a master. I was sentenced to compose a letter of apology and find a single silver talent, money well spent. It was bad behavior, though, and poorly timed, especially after my otherwise lackluster performance. As a result, I was assigned a tuition of twenty-four talents. Needless to say, I was terribly embarrassed. Afterward, I returned to the bursar's office. I officially presented Alvaron's letter of credit to Reem and unofficially collected my agreed-upon cut, half of everything over ten talents. I put the seven talents in my purse and wondered idly if anyone had ever been paid so well for insolence and ignorance. I headed to Anchors, where I was pleased to discover no one had informed the owner of my death. The key to my room was somewhere at the bottom of the Sentha Sea, but Anchor had a spare. I went upstairs and felt myself relax at the familiar sight of the sloping ceiling and narrow bed. Everything was covered in a thin layer of dust. You might think my tiny room with its sloped ceiling and narrow bed would feel cramped after my grand suite in Alvaron's estate, but nothing could be further from the truth. I busied myself unpacking my travel sack and getting cobwebs out of corners. After an hour, I'd managed to pick the lock on the trunk at the foot of my bed and unpack the things I'd stored away. I rediscovered my half-dismantled harmony clock and tinkered with it idly, trying to remember whether I'd been in the middle of taking it apart or putting it back together. Then, since I had no other pressing engagements, I made my way back across the river. I stopped at the Aeolian, where Dioc greeted me with an enthusiastic bear hug that lifted me from the ground. After so long on the road, so much time spent among strangers and enemies, I'd forgotten what it was like to be surrounded by the warmth of friendly faces. Dioc, Stanchion, and I shared drinks and traded stories until it started to get dark outside, and I left them to tend to their business. I prowled the city for a while, going to a few familiar boarding houses and taverns. Two or three public gardens, a bench beneath a tree in a courtyard. Dioc told me he hadn't so much as glimpsed Denna's shadow in a year, but even looking for her and not finding her was comforting in a way. In some ways, that seemed to be the heart of our relationship. Later that night, I climbed onto mains and made my way through the familiar maze of chimneys and mismatched slate and clay and tin. I came around a corner and saw Ari sitting on a chimney.
her long, fine hair floating around her head as if she were underwater. She was staring up at the moon and swinging her bare feet. I cleared my throat softly, and Ari turned to look. She hopped off the chimney and came scampering across the roof, pulling up a few steps short of me. Her grin was brighter than the moon. There was a whole family of hedgehogs living in Cricklet, she said excitedly. Ari took two more steps and grabbed my hand with both of hers. There are babies tiny as acorns. She tugged at me gently. Will you come see? I nodded, and Ari led me across the roof to the apple tree we could use to climb down into the courtyard. When we finally got there, she looked at the tree, then down to where she still held my long, tan hand with both of her tiny white ones. Her grip wasn't tight, but it was firm, and she didn't give any sign of letting go. I missed you, she said softly without looking up. Don't go away again. I don't ever plan on leaving. I said gently. I have too much to do here. Ari tilted her head sideways to peek up at me through the cloud of her hair. Like visit me? Like visit you, I agreed. Chapter 143 Bloodless There was one final surprise waiting for me on my return to the university. I'd been back for a handful of days before I returned to my work in the fishery. While I was no longer in desperate need of money, I missed the work. There is something deeply satisfying in shaping something with your hands. Proper artificing is like a song made solid. It is an act of creation. So I went to stocks, thinking to start with something simple, as I was out of practice. As I approached the window, I saw a familiar face. Hello, Basil, I said. What did you do to get stuck here this time? He looked down. Improper handling of reagents, he muttered. I laughed. That's not so bad. You'll be out in a span or so. Yeah. He looked up and gave a shame-faced grin. I heard you were back. You come for your credit? I stopped halfway through my mental list of everything I'd need to make a heat funnel. I beg your pardon? Basil cocked his head to the side. Your credit, he repeated for the bloodless. He looked at me for a moment, then realization dawned on his face. That's right. You wouldn't know. He stepped away from the window for a moment and returned with something that looked like an eight-sided lamp made entirely of iron. It was different than the arrow catch I'd made. The one I'd constructed was built from scratch and rather rough around the edges. This one was smooth and sleek. All the pieces fit together snugly, and it was covered in a thin layer of clear alchemical enamel that would protect it from rain and rust. Clever. I should have included that in my original design. While part of me was flattered that someone had liked my design enough to copy it, a larger part of me was irritated to see an arrow catch so much more polished than my original. I noticed a telltale uniformity in the pieces. Someone made a set of moldings? I asked. Basil nodded. Oh, yes! Ages ago. Two sets. He smiled. I've got to say, it's clever stuff. Took me a long while to get my head around how the inertial trigger worked, but now that I've got it, he tapped his forehead, I've made two myself. Good money for the time they take. Beats the hell out of deck lamps. That wrung a smile out of me. 
Anything is better than deck lamps, I agreed, picking it up. Is this one of yours? He shook his head. Mine sold a month back. They don't sit long. Clever of you to price them so low. I turned it over in my hands and saw a word grooved into the metal. The blocky letters went deep into the iron, so I knew they were part of the mold. They read, Bloodless. I looked up at Basil. He smiled. You took off without giving it a proper name, he said. Then Kilvin formalized the schema and added it to the records. We needed to call it something before we started to sell it. His smile faded a bit. But that was around the same time word came back you'd been lost at sea. So Kilvin brought in Mastery Loden to give it a proper name, I said, still turning it in my hands. Of course. Kilvin grumbled a bit, Basil said. Called it dramatic nonsense, but it stuck. He shrugged and ducked down and rummaged a bit before bringing up a book. Anyway, you want your credit? He started flipping pages. You've got to have a chunk of it built up by now. Lot of folk have been making them. He found the page he wanted and ran his finger along the ledger line. There we are. Sold 28 so far. Basil, I said. I really don't understand what you're talking about. Kilvin already paid me for the first one I made. Basil furrowed his brow. Your commission, he said matter-of-factly. Then, seeing my blank look, he continued. Every time stock sells something, the fishery gets a 30% commission, and whoever owns the schema gets 10%. I thought stocks kept the whole 40, I said, shocked. He lifted one shoulder in a shrug. Most times it does. Stocks owns most of the old schemas. Most things have already been invented, but for something new... Manette never mentioned that, I said. Basil gave an apologetic grimace. Old Manette is a workhorse, he said politely. But he's not the most innovative fellow around. He's been here, what, thirty years? I don't think he has a single schema to his name. He flipped through the book a bit, scanning the pages. Most serious artificers have at least one just as a point of pride, even if it's something fairly useless. Numbers spun in my head. So, ten percent of eight talents each, I murmured, then looked up. I've got twenty-two talents waiting for me? Basil nodded, looking at the entry in the book. Twenty-two and four, he said, bringing out a pencil and a piece of paper. You want all of it? I grinned. When I set out for Imre, my purse was so heavy I feared I might develop a limp. I stopped by anchors and picked up my travel sack, resting it on my opposite shoulder to balance things out. I wandered through town, idly passing by all the places Denna and I had frequented in the past. I wondered where in the world she might be. After my ritual search was complete, I made my way to a back alley that smelled of rancid fat and climbed a set of narrow stairs. I knocked briskly on Davy's door, waited for a long minute, then knocked again, louder. There was the sound of a bolt being thrown and a lock turning. The door cracked open and a single pale blue eye peered out at me. I grinned. The door swung open slowly. Davy stood in the doorway, staring blankly at me, her arms at her sides. I raised an eyebrow at her. What? I said. No witty banter? I don't do business on the landing, she said automatically. 
Her voice was absolutely without inflection. You'll have to come inside. I waited, but she didn't step out of the doorway. I could smell cinnamon and honey wafting out from the room behind her. Davy? I asked. Are you okay? You're a... She trailed off, still staring at me. Her voice was flat and emotionless. You're supposed to be dead. In this and many other things, I aim to disappoint, I said. I was sure he'd done it, Davy continued. His father's barony is called the Pirate Isles. I was sure he'd done it because we'd set fire to his rooms. I was the one that actually set the fire, but he couldn't know that. You were the only one he saw. You and that sealish fellow. Davy looked up at me, blinking in the light. The pixie-faced Galet had always been fair-skinned, but this was the first time I'd ever seen her look pale. You're taller, she said. I'd almost forgotten how tall you are. I almost forgot how pretty you are, I said, but I couldn't quite manage it. Davy continued to stand in the doorway, pale and staring. Concerned, I stepped forward and laid my hand lightly on her arm. She didn't pull away as I half expected. She simply looked down at my hand. I'm waiting for a quip here, I teased gently. You're usually quicker than this. I don't think I can match wits with you right now, she said. I never suspected you could match wits with me, I said. But I do like a little banter now and then. Davy gave a ghost of a smile, a little color coming back to her cheeks. You're a horse's ass, she said. That's more like it, I said encouragingly as I drew her out of the doorway into the bright autumn afternoon. I knew you had it in you. The two of us walked to a nearby inn, and with the help of a short beer and long lunch, Davy recovered from the shock of seeing me alive. Soon she was her usual sharp-tongued self again, and we bantered back and forth over mugs of spiced cider. Afterward, we strolled back to her rooms behind the butcher shop, where Davy discovered she'd forgotten to lock her door. Merciful Taylu! she said once we were inside, looking around frantically. That's a first. Looking around, I saw that little had changed in her room since I'd last seen them, though her second set of bookshelves was almost half full. I looked over the titles as Davy searched the other rooms to make sure nothing was missing. Anything you'd like to borrow? she asked as she came back into the room. Actually, I said, I have something for you. I set my travel sack on her desk and rooted around until I found a flat rectangular package wrapped in oilskin and tied with twine. I moved my travel sack onto the floor and put the package on the desk, nudging it toward her. Davy approached the desk wearing a dubious expression, then sat down and unwrapped the parcel. Inside was the copy of Selim Tincher I'd stolen from Codicus's library. Not a particularly rare book, but a useful resource for an alchemist exiled from the archives. Not that I knew anything about alchemy, of course. Davy looked down at it. And what's this for? she asked. I laughed. It's a present. She eyed me narrowly. If you think this will get you an extension on your loan. I shook my head. I just thought you'd like it, I said. As for the loan, 
I brought out my purse and counted nine thick talents onto her desk. Well then, Davy said, mildly surprised. It looks like someone had a profitable trip. She looked up at me. Are you sure you don't want to wait until after you've paid tuition? Already taken care of, I said. Davy made no move to take the money. I wouldn't want to leave you penniless at the start of the new term, she said. I hefted my purse in one hand. It clinked with a delightful fullness that was almost musical. Davy brought out a key and unlocked a drawer at the bottom of her desk. One by one, she brought out my copy of Rhetoric and Logic, my talent pipes, my sympathy lamp, and Denna's ring. She piled them neatly on her desk, but still didn't reach for the coins. You still have two months before your year and a day is up, she said. Are you sure you wouldn't prefer to wait? Puzzled, I looked down at the money on the table, then around at Davy's rooms. Realization came to me like a flower unfurling in my head. This isn't about the money at all, is it? I said, amazed it had taken me this long to figure it out. Davy cocked her head to the side. I gestured at the bookshelves, the large velvet-curtained bed, at Davy herself. I'd never noticed before, but while her clothes weren't fancy, the cut and cloth were fine as any noble's. This doesn't have anything to do with money, I repeated. I looked at her books. Her collection had to be worth five hundred talents if it was worth a penny. You use the money as bait. You lend it out to desperate folks who might be useful to you, then hope they can't pay you back. Your real business is favors. Davy chuckled a bit. Money is nice, she said, her eyes glittering. But the world is full of things that people would never sell. Favors and obligation are worth far, far more. I looked down at the nine talents gleaming on her desk. You don't have a minimum loan amount, do you? I asked, already knowing the answer. You just told me that so I'd be forced to borrow more. You were hoping I'd dig myself a hole too deep and not be able to pay you back. Davy smiled brightly. Welcome to the game, she said as she began to pick up the coins. Thanks for playing. Chapter 144 Sword and Shade With my purse full to bursting and Alvaron's letter of credit assuring my tuition, my winter term was carefree as a walk in the garden. It was strange not having to live like a miser. I had clothes that fit me and could afford to have them laundered. I could have coffee or chocolate whenever I wanted. I no longer needed to toil endlessly in the fishery and could spend time tinkering simply to satisfy my curiosity or pursue projects simply for the joy of it. After almost a year away, it took me a while to settle back into the university. It felt odd not wearing a sword after all this time, but such things were frowned on here, and I knew it would cause more trouble than it was worth. At first, I left Sosura in my rooms, but I knew better than anyone how easy it would be to break in and steal it. The drop bar would only keep away a very genteel thief. A more pragmatic one could simply break my window and be gone in less than a minute. Since the sword was quite literally irreplaceable, and I'd made promises to keep it safe, it wasn't long before I moved it to a hiding place in the underthing. My shade was easier to keep at hand, as I was able to change its shape with a little work, 
These days, it only rarely billowed on its own. More commonly, it refused to move as much as the gusting wind seemed to demand. You'd think people would notice such things, but they didn't. Even Willem and Simmon, who teased me about my fondness for it, never marked my cloak as anything more than an exceptionally versatile piece of clothing. In fact, Elodin was the only one to notice anything out of the ordinary about it. What's this? he exclaimed when we crossed paths in a small courtyard outside Maine's. How did you come to be in Shaden? I beg your pardon? I asked. Your cloak, boy! Your turning cape! How in God's sweet grace did you tumble onto a shade? He mistook my surprise for ignorance. Don't you know what you're wearing? I know what it is, I said. I'm just surprised that you do. He gave me an insulted look. I wouldn't be much of a namer if I couldn't spot a fairy cloak a dozen feet away. He took a corner of it between his fingers. Oh, that's just lovely. Here's a piece of old magic man rarely lays a finger on. It's new magic, actually, I said. What do you mean? he asked. When it became obvious my explanation involved a long story, Elodin led us into a small, cozy pub I'd never seen before. I hesitate to call it a pub at all, actually. It wasn't full of chattering students and the smell of beer. It was dim and quiet, with a low ceiling and scattered clusters of deep, comfortable chairs. It smelled of leather and old wine. We sat near a warm radiator and sipped mulled cider while I told him the whole story of my unintentional trip into the Fay. It was a wonderful relief. I hadn't been able to tell anyone yet for fear of being laughed out of the university. Elodin proved to be a surprisingly attentive audience and was especially interested in the fight Valorian and I had had when she had tried to bend me to her will. After I'd finished the story, he peppered me with questions. Could I remember what I'd said to call the wind? How had it felt? The strange wakefulness I described. Was it more like being drunk or more like going into shock? I answered as best I could, and eventually he leaned back in his chair, nodding to himself. It's a good sign when a student goes chasing the wind and catches it, he said approvingly. That's twice you've called it now. It can only get easier. Three times, actually, I said. I found it again when I was off in Edemre. He laughed. You chased it to the edge of the map, he said, making a broad motion with his splayed left hand. Stunned, I realized it was Adem hand talk for amazed respect. How did it feel? Do you think you could find its name again if you had need of it? I concentrated, trying to nudge my mind into spinning leaf. It had been a month and a thousand miles since I'd tried, and it was hard to tip my mind into that strange, tumbling emptiness. Eventually, I managed it. I looked around the small room, hoping to see the name of the wind like a familiar friend, but there was nothing there except dust motes swirling in a beam of sunlight that slanted through a window. Well? Elodin asked. Could you call it if you needed to? I hesitated. Maybe. Elodin nodded as if he understood. But probably not if someone were to ask you to. I nodded, more than a little disappointed. Don't be discouraged. It will give us something to work toward. He grinned happily and clapped me on the back. But I think there's more to your story than you realize. You called more than the wind. From what you've said, 
I believe you called Florian's name itself. I thought back. My memories of my time in the Fey were oddly patchy, none more than my confrontation with Florian, which had an odd, almost dreamlike quality to it. When I tried to remember it in detail, it almost seemed as if it had happened to another person. I suppose it's possible. It's more than possible, he assured me. I doubt a creature as old and powerful as Felorian could be subdued with nothing more than wind. Not to belittle your accomplishment, he hurried to add. Calling the wind is more than one student in a thousand ever manages, but calling the name of a living thing, let alone one of the fae... He raised his eyebrows at me. That's a horse of a different color. Why would a person's name be so much different? I asked, then answered my own question. The complexity. Exactly, he said. My understanding seemed to excite him. To name a thing, you must understand it entire. A stone or a piece of wind is difficult enough. A person? He trailed off significantly. I couldn't claim to understand Florian, I said. Some part of you did, he insisted. Your sleeping mind, a rare thing indeed. If you'd known how difficult it was, you never would have stood a chance of doing it. Since poverty no longer forced me to work endless hours in the fishery, I was free to study more broadly than ever before. I continued my usual classes in sympathy, medicine, and artificing, then added chemistry, herbology, and comparative female anatomy. My curiosity had been pricked by my encounter with the lockless box, and I attempted to learn something about Yillish story knots. But I quickly discovered most books on Yill were historical, not linguistic, and gave no information as to how I might actually read a knot. So I scoured the dead ledgers and discovered a single shelf of disused books concerning Yill in one of the unpleasant, low-ceilinged sections of the lower basements. Then, while looking for a place to sit and read, I discovered a small room tucked behind a piece of jutting shelving. It wasn't a reading hole as I suspected. Inside were hundreds of large wooden spools wound about with knotted string. They weren't books, precisely, but they were the Yillish equivalent. A thin layer of dust covered everything, and I doubted anyone had been in the room for decades. I have a vast weakness for secret things, but I quickly found that reading the knots was impossible without first understanding Yillish. There were no classes on the subject, and asking around revealed none of Master Linguist Gillers knew more than a scattering of words. I wasn't terribly surprised, considering Yill had been nearly ground to dust under the iron boots of the Aeturan Empire. The piece that remained today was populated mostly by sheep, and if you stood in the middle of the country you could throw a stone across the border. Still, it was a disappointing end to my search. Then, several days later, Master Linguist summoned me to his office. He'd heard that I'd been making inquiries, and he happened to speak Yillish rather well. He offered to tutor me personally, and I gladly took him up on his offer. Since I'd come to the university, I'd only seen Master Linguist during admissions interviews and when I was brought up on the horns for disciplinary reasons. Acting as chancellor, he was rather grim and formal, but when he wasn't sitting in the chancellor's chair, Master Herma was a surprisingly deft and gentle teacher. He was witty with a surprisingly irreverent sense of humor. The first time he told me a dirty joke, you could have knocked me over with a feather. 
Elodin wasn't teaching a class this term, but I began to study naming privately under his direction. It went more smoothly now that I understood there was a method to his madness. Count Threp was overjoyed to find me alive and threw a resurrection party where I was proudly displayed to the local nobility. I had a suit of clothes tailored specifically for the event, and in a fit of nostalgia, I chose to have them done in the colors my old troop had worn, the green and gray of Lord Greyfellow's men. After the party, over a bottle of wine in his sitting room, I told Threp of my adventures. I left off the story of Felurian, as I knew he wouldn't believe it, and I couldn't tell him half of what I'd done in the mayor's service. Consequently, Threp thought Alvaron had been quite generous in rewarding me. I didn't argue the point. Chapter 145 Stories Ambrose had been blessedly absent during the winter term, but when spring arrived, he came back to roost like some sort of hateful migratory bird. By no coincidence, the day after he returned, I skipped all my classes and spent the entire day making myself a new gram. As soon as the snow melted and the ground grew firm again, I resumed my practice of the Katan. Remembering how odd it had looked when I'd first seen it, I did this in the privacy of the forest north of the university. With spring term came a new round of admissions. I showed up for my interview with a profound hangover and fumbled a few questions. My tuition was set at eighteen talents and five, earning me four talents and change from the bursar. Sales of the bloodless had slackened over the winter, as there were fewer merchants visiting the university. But once snows melted and roads grew dry, the handful that had accumulated in the stock sold quickly, bringing me another six talents. I was unused to having so much money at my disposal, and I'll admit I went a little mad with it. I owned six suits of clothes that fit me and had all the paper I could use. I bought fine, dark ink from Arua and purchased my own set of engraving tools. I had two pairs of shoes. Two! I found an ancient, ragged Yilish dictum buried in a bookstore in Imre. Full of drawings of knots, the bookstore owner thought it was a sailor's journal, and I bought it for a mere talent and a half. Not long after, I bought a copy of the Huroborica, then added a copy of Termagus Technica I could use as a reference while designing schema in the privacy of my own room. I bought dinner for my friends. Ari had new dresses and bright ribbons for her hair. All this and still money in my purse. How odd. How wonderful. Toward the middle of the term, I began to hear familiar stories. Stories about a certain red-haired adventurer who had spent the night with Felurian. Stories of a dashing young arcanist with all the powers of Taberlin the Great. It had taken months, but my exploits in Vintus had finally passed their way from mouth to ear all the long miles back to the university. It may be true that when I finally became aware of these stories, I lengthened my shade a bit and wore it more often than before. It might also be the case that I spent a shameful amount of time in alehouses over the next several span, lurking quietly, listening to stories. I might even have gone so far as to offer a suggestion or two. I was young, after all, and it was only natural for me to delight in my notoriety. I thought it would fade in time. Why shouldn't I revel a bit in the sidelong glances my fellow students made? Why not enjoy it while it lasted? Many of the stories centered around me hunting bandits and rescuing young girls, but none of them came terribly close to the truth. 
No story can move a thousand miles by word of mouth and keep its shape. While the details differed, most of them followed a familiar thread. Young women were in need of rescuing. Sometimes a nobleman hired me. Sometimes it was a concerned father, a distraught mayor, or a bumbling constable. Most of the time I saved a pair of girls. Sometimes only one. Sometimes there were three. They were best friends. They were mother and daughter. I heard one story where there were seven of them, all sisters, all beautiful princesses, all virgins. You know that sort of story. There was a great deal of variety as to who exactly I was rescuing the girls from. Bandits were fairly common, but there were also wicked uncles, stepmothers, and shamblemen. One story, in an odd twist, had me rescuing them from ADEM mercenaries. There was even an ogre or two. While I did occasionally rescue the girls from a troop of traveling players, I'm proud to say I never heard a story where they were kidnapped by the Edimaru. The story generally had one of two endings. In the first, I leapt to the battle like Prince Gallant and fought sword on sword until everyone was dead, fled, or appropriately repentant. The second ending was more popular. It involved me calling down fire and lightning from the sky after the fashion of Taberlin the Great. In my favorite version of the story, I met a helpful tinker on the road. I shared my dinner, and he told me of two children stolen from a nearby farm. Before I left, he sold me an egg, three iron nails, and a shabby cloak that could render me invisible. I used the items and my considerable wit to save the children from the clutches of a cunning, hungry trow. But while there were many versions of that tale, the story of Felurian was more popular by far. The song I'd written had made the journey west as well, and since songs hold their shape better than stories, the details about my encounter with Felurian were moderately close to the truth. When Will and Sim pressed me for details, I told them the whole story. It took me a while to convince them I was telling the truth. Rather, it took me a while to convince Sim. For some reason, Will was perfectly willing to accept the existence of the Fae. I didn't blame Sim. Until I saw her, I would have bet solid money Felorian didn't exist. It's one thing to enjoy a story, but it's quite another to take it for the truth. The real question... Sim said thoughtfully, is how old you really are. I know that one, Willem said with the somber pride of someone desperately pretending to not be drunk. Seventeen. Ah, Sim held up a finger dramatically. You'd think so, wouldn't you? What are you talking about, I asked. Sim leaned forward in his chair. You went into the Fay, spent some time there, then came out to discover only three days had passed, Sim said. Does that mean you're only three days older, or did you age while you were there? I was quiet for a moment. I hadn't thought of that, I admitted. In stories, Willem said, boys go into Fay and return as men. That implies one grows older. If you're going to go by stories, Sim said, what else? Will asked. Will you consult Marlock's Compendium of Fae Phenomenon? Find me such a book, and I will reference it. Sim gave an agreeable shrug. So? Will said, turning to me. How long were you there? That's hard to figure, I said. There wasn't any day or night, and my memories are a bit odd.
I thought for a long moment. We talked, swam, ate dozens upon dozens of times, explored a bit, and, well... I paused to clear my throat meaningfully. Cavorted? suggested Will. Thank you. And cavorted quite a bit as well. I counted the skills Felurian had taught me, and then figured she couldn't have taught me more than two or three a day. It was at least a couple months, I said. I shaved once. Or was it twice? Time enough for me to grow a bit of a beard. Will rolled his eyes at this, running his hand over his own dark sealedish beard. Nothing like your marvelous face bear, I said. Still, mine grew out at least two or three times. So, at least two months, Sim said. But how long could it have been? Three months? How many stories had we shared? Four or five months? I thought of how slowly we'd had to move my shade from starlight to moonlight to firelight. A year? I thought about the wretched time I'd spent recovering from my encounter with the Cathay. I'm sure it couldn't have been more than a year. My voice didn't sound nearly as convincing as I would have liked. Willem raised an eyebrow. Well then, happy birthday! He lifted his glass to me. Or birthdays, depending. Chapter 146 Failures During spring term, I experienced several failures. The first of these was mostly a failure in my own eyes. I had expected that picking up Yillish would be relatively easy, but nothing could have been further from the truth. In a handful of days, I had learned enough Tema to defend myself in court. But Tema was a very orderly language, and I'd already known a little bit from my studies. Perhaps, most importantly, there was a great deal of overlap between Tema and Aeturin. They used the same characters for writing, and many words are related. Yilish shared nothing with Aeturin, or Shaldish, or even with Aedemic for that matter. It was an irrational, tangled mess. Fourteen indicative verb tenses, bizarre formal inflections of address. You couldn't merely say, the Chancellor socks. Oh, no. Too simple. All ownership was oddly dual, as if the Chancellor owned his socks, but at the same time, the socks somehow also gained ownership of the Chancellor. This altered the use of both words in complex grammatical ways, as if the simple act of owning socks somehow fundamentally changed the nature of a person. So even after months of study with the Chancellor, Yillish grammar was still a muddy jumble to me. All I had to show for my work was a messy smattering of vocabulary. My understanding of the story knots was even worse. I tried to improve matters by practicing with Diok, but he wasn't much of a teacher and admitted the only person he'd ever known who could read story knots had been his grandmother, who had died when he was very young. Second came my failure in advanced chemistry, taken under Mandrag's Giller, Anisat. While the material fascinated me, I did not get along with Anisat himself. I loved the discovery chemistry offered. I loved the thrill of experiment, the challenge of trial and retrial. I loved the puzzle of it. I also will admit a somewhat foolish fondness toward the apparatus involved. The bottles and tubes, the acids and salts, the mercury and flame. There is something primal in chemistry, something that defies explication. 
Either you feel it or you don't. Anisat didn't feel it. For him, chemistry was written journals and carefully penned rows of numbers. He would make me perform the same titration four times simply because my notation was incorrect. Why write a number down? Why should I take ten minutes to write what my hands could finish in five? So we argued, gently at first, but neither of us were willing to back down. As a result, barely two span into the term, we ended up shouting at each other in the middle of the crucible while thirty students looked on, open-mouthed with dismay. He told me to leave his class, calling me an irreverent dinnerling with no respect for authority. I called him a pompous slipstick who had missed his true calling as a counting house scribe. In all fairness, we both had some valid points. My other failure came in mathematics. After listening to Fella chatter excitedly for months about what she was learning under Master Brandur, I set out to further my number lore. Unfortunately, the loftier peaks of mathematics did not delight me. I am no poet. I do not love words for the sake of words. I love words for what they can accomplish. Similarly, I am no arithmetician. Numbers that speak only of numbers are of little interest to me. Due to my abandonment of chemistry and arithmetic, I had a great deal of free time on my hands. Some of this I spent in the fishery, making a bloodless of my own that sold practically before it hit the shelves. I also spent a fair amount of time in the archives and the medica, doing research for an essay titled On the Non-Efficacy of Arrowroot. Arwill was skeptical, but agreed my initial research warranted attention. I also spent some of my time romantically. It was a new experience for me, as I had never caught the eye of women before. Or if I had, I hadn't known what to do with the attention. But I was older now, and wiser to some degree. And because of the stories circulating, women on both sides of the river were beginning to show an interest in me. My romances were all pleasant and brief. I cannot say why brief, except to state the obvious, that I do not have much in me that might encourage a woman to make long habit of my company. Simon, for example, had a great deal to offer. He was a gemstone in the rough, not stunning at first glance, but with a great deal of worth beneath the surface. Sim was tender, kind, and attentive as any woman could care for. He made Fella deliriously happy. Sim was a prince. By contrast, what did I have to offer? Nothing, really. Less now. I was more like a curious stone that is picked up, carried a while, and finally dropped again with the realization that for all its interesting look, it is nothing more than hardened earth. Master Kilvin, I asked, can you think of a metal that will stand hard use for two thousand years and remain relatively unworn or unblemished? The huge artificer looked up from the brass gear he was inscribing and eyed me standing in the doorway of his office. And what manner of project are you planning now, Relarkwolf? In the last three months, I've been trying to create another schema as successful as my bloodless. Partly for the money, but also because I'd learned that Kilvin was much more likely to promote students with three or four impressive schema to their credit. Unfortunately, I had met with a string of failures here, too. I'd had more than a dozen clever ideas, none of which had led to a finished design. Most of the ideas were struck down by Kilvin himself. Eight of my clever ideas had already been created, some of them more than a hundred years ago. 
Five of them, Kilvin informed me, would require the use of runes that were forbidden to Rillar. Three of them were mathematically unsound, and he quickly sketched out how they were doomed to failure, saving me dozens of hours of wasted time. One of my ideas he rejected as utterly inappropriate for a responsible artificer. I argued that a mechanism that would cut the time needed to reload a ballista would help ships defend against piracy. It would help defend towns against attack by V-Sembi raiders. But Kilvin would hear none of it. When his face began to grow dark as a storm cloud, I quickly abandoned my carefully planned arguments. In the end, only two of my ideas were sound, acceptable, and original. But, after weeks of work, I was forced to abandon them as well, unable to get them to work. Kilvin set down his stylus and half-inscribed brass gear, turning to face me. I admire a student who thinks in terms of durability, Relark Foth, but a thousand years is a great deal to ask of stone, let alone metal. To say nothing of metal put to heavy use. I was asking about Sasura, of course, but I hesitated to tell Kilvin the full truth. I knew all too well that the Master Artificer did not approve of artificery being used in conjunction with any sort of weapon. While he might appreciate the craftsmanship of such a sword, he would not think well of me for owning such a thing. I smiled. It isn't for a project, I said. I was just curious. During my travels, I was shown a sword that was quite serviceable and sharp. Despite this, there seemed to be proof that it was over two thousand years old. Do you know of any metal that could avoid breaking for so long as that, let alone keep an edge? Ah, Kilvin nodded his expression not particularly surprised. There are such things, old magics, one could say, or old arts now lost to us. These things are scattered through the world, marvelous devices, mysteries. There are many reliable sources that speak of the ever-burning lamp. He gestured with a broad hand at the hemispheres of glass laid out on his work table. We even possess a handful of these things here at the university. I felt my curiosity flare up. What sort of things? I asked. Kilvin tugged his beard idly with one hand. I have a device devoid of any sigildry that seems to do nothing but consume angular momentum. I have four ingots of white metal, lighter than water, that I can neither melt nor mar in any way a sheet of black glass, one side of which lacks any frictive properties at all, a piece of oddly shaped stone that maintains a temperate slightly above freezing, no matter what the heat around it. His massive shoulders shrugged. These things are mysteries. I opened my mouth, then hesitated. Would it be inappropriate for me to ask to see some of these things? Kilvin's smile was very white against the dark of his skin and his beard. It is never inappropriate to ask, Relarkvoth, he said. A student should be curious. I would be troubled if you were indifferent to such things. The big artificer went to his large wooden desk, so strewn with half-finished projects that the surface was barely visible. He unlocked a drawer with a key from his pocket, and drew out two dull metal cubes, slightly larger than dice. Many of these old things we cannot fathom or make use of, he said. 
but some possess remarkable utility. He rattled the two metal cubes as if they were dice, and they rang together sweetly in his hand. We call these warding stones. He bent and set them on the floor, spaced several feet apart from each other. He touched them and spoke very softly under his breath, too quietly for me to hear. I felt a subtle change in the air. At first, I thought that the room was growing colder, but then I realized the truth. I couldn't feel the radiant heat of the smoldering forge at the other end of Kilvin's office. Kilvin casually picked up the bar of iron used to stir the forge and swung it hard at my head. His gesture was so casual that it caught me completely off my guard, and I didn't even have time to cower or flinch away. The bar stopped two feet away from me, as if striking some unseen obstruction. There was no sound as if it had struck something, neither did it rebound in Kilvin's grip. I reached out my hand cautiously, and it butted up against... nothing. It was as if the intangible air in front of me was suddenly made solid. Kilvin grinned at me. The warding stones are of particular use when performing dangerous experiments or testing certain equipment, he said. They somehow produce a thaumic and kinetic barrier. I continued to run my hand along the unseen barrier. It wasn't hard or even solid. It gave way slightly when I pushed at it and felt slippery as buttered glass. Kilvin watched me his expression faintly amused. Truthfully, Relarkvoth, until Elodin made his suggestion, I was thinking of calling your arrow-arresting device the Minor Ward. He frowned slightly. Not entirely accurate, of course, but more so than Elodin's dramatic nonsense. I leaned hard against the unseen barrier. It was solid as a stone wall. Now that I was looking more closely... I could see a subtle distortion in the air, as if I were looking through a slightly imperfect sheet of glass. This is far superior to my arrow catch, Master Kilvin. True! Kilvin gave a conciliatory nod and bent to pick up the stones, muttering again under his breath. I staggered a little when the barrier disappeared. But your cleverness we can repeat endlessly. This mystery we cannot. Kilvin held up the two cubes of metal on the palm of his huge hand. These are useful, but never forget. Cleverness and caution profit the artificer. We do our work in the realm of the real. He closed his fingers over the warding stones. Leave mystery to poets, priests, and fools. Despite my other failures, my study with Mastery Loden was progressing rather well. He claimed all I needed to improve myself as a namer was time and dedication. I gave him both, and he put them to use in odd ways. We spent hours riddling. He made me drink a pint of Applejack, then read Tecum's Theophany from cover to cover. He made me wear a blindfold for three days straight, which didn't improve my performance in my other classes, but amused Will and Sim to no end. He encouraged me to see how long I could stay awake, and since I could afford all the coffee I liked, I managed nearly five days, though by the end I was rather manic and starting to hear voices. And there was the incident on the roof of the archives. Everyone has heard about that in one version or another, it seems. 
There was a great beast of a thunderstorm rolling in, and Elodin decided it would do me good to spend some time in the middle of it. The closer the better, he said. He knew Lauren would never allow us access to the roof of the archives, so Elodin simply stole the key. Unfortunately, that meant that when the key went tumbling off the roof, no one knew we were trapped up there. As a result, the two of us were forced to spend the entire night on the bare stone rooftop, caught in the teeth of the furious storm. It wasn't until mid-morning that the weather calmed enough for us to call down to the courtyard for help. Then, as there didn't seem to be a second key, Lauren took the straightest course and had several burly scribs simply batter down the door leading to the roof. None of this would have been a particular problem if, just as it had started to rain, Elodent hadn't insisted that we strip ourselves naked, wrap our clothes in an oilskin, and weigh them down with a brick. According to Elodin, it would help me experience the storm to the fullest degree possible. The winds were stronger than he'd expected, and they had snatched both the brick and our bundled clothes, hurling them into the sky like a handful of leaves. That was how we lost the key, you see. It had been in the pocket of Elodin's pants. Because of this, Master Lauren, Lauren's giller, Distril, and three brawny scribs found Elodin and me stark naked and wet as drowned rats on the roof of the archives. Within fifteen minutes, everyone in the university had heard the story. Elodin laughed his head off at the whole thing, and though I can see the humor of it now, at the time I was far from amused. I won't burden you with the entire list of our activities. Suffice to say that Elodin went to great lengths to wake my sleeping mind, Ridiculous lengths, really. And much to my surprise, our work paid dividends. I called the name of the wind three times that term. The first time I stilled the wind for the space of a long breath while standing on Stonebridge in the middle of the night. Elodin was there, coaching me. By which I mean he was prodding me with a riding crop. I was also barefoot and more than slightly drunk. The second time came on me unexpectedly while I was studying in tomes. I was reading a book of Yillish history when suddenly the air in the cavernous room whispered to me. I listened as Elodin had taught me, then spoke it gently. Just as gently, the hidden wind stirred into a breeze, startling the students and sending the scribs into a panic. The name faded from my mind some minutes later, but while it lasted, I held the certain knowledge that should I wish it, I could stir a storm or start a thunderclap with equal ease. The knowledge itself had to be enough for me. If I had called the wind's name strongly in the archives, Lauren would have me hung by my thumbs above the outer doors. You may not think these terribly impressive feats of naming, and I suppose you are right. But I called the wind a third time that spring, and third time pays for all. Chapter 147 Debts since I had a great deal of free time on my hands midway through the term, I hired the use of a two-horse fetter cart and headed to Tarbian on a bit of a lark. It took me all of reaving to get there, and I spent most of kindling visiting old haunts and paying old debts, a cobbler who had been kind to a shoeless boy, an innkeeper who had let me sleep on his hearth some nights, a tailor I had terrorized. Parts of Waterside were strikingly familiar while other pieces I didn't recognize at all. That didn't particularly surprise me. A city as busy as Tarbian is constantly changing. 
What did surprise me was the strange nostalgia I felt for this place that had been so cruel to me. I had been gone for two years. For all practical purposes, it was a lifetime ago. It had been a span of days since the last rain, and the city was dry as a bone. The shuffling feet of a hundred thousand people kicked up a cloud of fine dust that filled the city streets. It covered my clothes and got in my hair and eyes, making them itch. I tried not to dwell on the fact that it was mostly pulverized horseshit with an assortment of dead fish, coal smoke, and urine thrown in for flavor. If I breathed through my nose, I was assaulted with the smell. But if I breathed through my mouth, I could taste it, and the dust filled my lungs, making me cough. I didn't remember it being as bad as this. Had it always been so dirty here? Had it always smelled this bad? After half an hour of searching, I finally found the burned-out building with a basement underneath. I made my way down the stairs and through the long hallway to a damp room. Trappist was still there, barefoot and wearing the same tattered robe, tending to his hopeless children in the cool dark below the city streets. He recognized me. Not as other people would, not as a budding hero out of stories. Trappist had no time for such things. He remembered me as the smudgy, starveling boy who fell down his stairs fever-sick and crying one winter night. You could say I loved him even more for that. I gave him as much money as he would take, five talents. I tried to give him more, but he refused. If he spent too much money, he said, it would attract the wrong sort of attention. He and his children were safest if nobody noticed them. I bowed to his wisdom and spent the remainder of the day helping him. I pumped water and fetched bread. I made a quick examination of the children, then took a trip to an apothecary and brought back a few things that would help. Lastly, I tended to Trappist himself, at least as much as he would allow. I rubbed his poor, swollen feet with camphor and mother's leaf, then made him a gift of tight-fitting stockings and a good pair of shoes so he wouldn't have to go barefoot in the damp of the basement anymore. As the afternoon faded into evening, ragged children began to arrive in the basement. They came looking for a bit of food or because they were hurt and hoping for a safe place to sleep. They all eyed me suspiciously. My clothes were new and clean. I didn't belong there. I wasn't welcome. If I stayed, there would be trouble. At the very least, my presence would make some of the starveling children so uncomfortable they wouldn't stay the night. So I said goodbye to Trappist and left. Sometimes, leaving is the only thing you can do. Since I had a few hours before the taverns started to fill up, I bought a single piece of creamy writing paper and a matching envelope of heavy parchment. They were extremely fine quality, much nicer than anything I'd ever owned before. Next, I found a quiet cafe and ordered drinking chocolate with a glass of water. I arranged the paper on the table and brought out pen and ink from my shade. Then I wrote in an elegant, fluid script. Ambrose, the child is yours. You know it is true, and so do I. I fear my family will disown me. If you do not behave as a gentleman and see to your obligations, I will go to your father and tell him everything. Do not test me in this. I am resolved. I didn't sign a name, merely wrote a single initial, which could have been an ornate R or perhaps a shaky B. Then, dipping my finger into my glass of water, I let several drops fall onto the page. They swelled the paper a bit and smeared the ink slightly before I blotted them away. They made a fair approximation of teardrops. 
I let one final heavy drop fall under the initial I'd signed, obscuring it even more. Now the letter looked as if it could also be an F or a P or an E, perhaps even a K. It could be anything, really. I folded the paper carefully, then walked over to one of the room's lamps and melted a generous blob of sealing wax onto the fold. On the outside of the envelope, I wrote, Ambrose Jackis, University, two miles west of Imray, Bellany Baron, Central Commonwealth. I paid for my drink and headed to Drover's lot. When I was just a few streets away, I removed my shade and tucked it into my travel sack. Then I dropped the letter in the street and stepped on it, scuffing it around with my foot a bit before picking it up and brushing it off. I was almost to the square when I saw the final thing I needed. Hoy there, I said to an old whiskery man sitting against a building. I'll give you halfpenny if you let me borrow your hat. The old man pulled the draggled thing off and looked at it. His head was very bald and very pale underneath. He squinted a bit in the late afternoon sunlight. My hat? He asked, his voice rough. You can have it for a whole penny, and my blessing too. He gave a hopeful grin as he held out a thin, shaky hand. I gave him a penny. Could you hold this for a second? I passed him the envelope, then used both hands to screw the old, shapeless hat down over my ears. I used a nearby shop window to make sure every scrap of my red hair was tucked away underneath. Suits you, the old man said, giving a phlegmy cough. I reclaimed the letter and eyed the smudgy fingerprints he'd left. From there, it was a quick step to Drover's Square. I slouched a bit and narrowed my eyes as I wandered through the milling throng. After a couple minutes, my ear caught the distinctive sound of a southern vintage accent, and I walked over to a handful of men loading a wagon with burlap sacks. Oi, I said, putting on the same accent. You folk heading up Imray Way? One of the men heaved his sack into the wagon and walked over, dusting off his hands. Heading through there, he said. You looking for a ride? I shook my head and brought the letter out of my travel sack. I've got a letter for up that way. I was going to take it myself, but my ship sails tomorrow. I bought it from a sailor off in Gannery for a full quarter bit, I said. He had it himself off some noble gal for a single bit, I winked. She was quite urgent that it get to him, I hear. You paid a quarter bit, the man said, already shaking his head. Yeah, grummer, ain't nobody gonna pay that much for a letter. Eh, I said, holding up a finger. You ain't seen who it's for yet. I held it up for him to see. He squinted. Jackis, he said slowly, then his face lit with recognition. Is that Baron Jackus's boy, then? I nodded smugly. The eldest himself. Boy rich as that should pay a fair piece for a letter from his lady. Much as whole noble, I figure. He eyed the letter. Could be, he said cautiously. But look, it ain't got anything on it other than university. I been up that way. That ain't a small place. Baron Jackus's boy ain't going to sleep in a tin shack, I said crossly. Ask someone what the fanciest place is. That's where he'll be. 
The man nodded to himself, his hand creeping unconsciously toward his purse. I suppose I could take it off your hands, he said grudgingly. But only at a quarter bit. I'm taking a risk anyways at that. Have a heart now, I protested pitifully. I brought it eight hundred miles. That's worth better than nothing. Fine, he said, pulling coins out of his purse. I'd give you three bits then. I'd take half a round, I grumbled. You'll take three bits, he said, holding out a grubby hand. I handed him the letter. Remember to tell him it's from a noble lady, I said as I turned to leave. Rich Tosh, get whatever you can off him, that's what I say. I left the square, then straightened my shoulders and took off the hat. I pulled my shade back out of my travel sack and swirled it easily around my shoulders. I started to whistle, and as I passed the bald old beggar, I returned his hat and gave him the three bits besides. When I first heard the stories people were telling about me at the university, I'd expected them to be short-lived. I thought they would flare up, then die just as quickly, like a fire exhausting its fuel. But that hadn't been the case. The tales of Quoth rescuing girls and bedding Felurian mixed and mingled with scraps of truth and the ridiculous lies I'd spread to bolster my reputation. There was fuel aplenty, so the stories swirled and spread like a brush fire with the wind blowing hard behind it. Honestly, I didn't know if I should be amused or alarmed. When I went to Imre, people would point at me and whisper to each other. My notoriety spread until it was impossible for me to casually cross the river and eavesdrop on the stories people told. Tarbian, on the other hand, was forty miles away. After I left Drover's lot behind, I returned to the room I'd rented in one of the nicer parts of Tarbian. In this part of the city, the wind off the ocean brushed away the stink and the dust, leaving the air feeling sharp and clear. I called up water for a bath and in a fit of lavish spending that would have left my younger self dizzy, I paid three pennies to have the porter take my clothes to the nearest sealedish laundry. Then, clean and sweet-smelling again, I went down to the taproom. I'd picked the inn carefully. It wasn't fancy, but it wasn't seedy, either. The taproom was low-ceilinged and intimate. It sat at the corner of two of Tarbian's most well-traveled roads, and I could see sealedish traders rubbing elbows with yillish sailors and vintish wagoneers. It was the perfect place for stories. It wasn't long before I was lurking at the end of the bar, listening to how I had killed the black beast of Traban. I was stunned. I had actually killed a rampaging Dracus in Traban, but when Nina had come to visit me a year ago, she hadn't known my name. My growing reputation had somehow swept through the town of Traban and gathered up that story in its wake. There at the bar, I learned many things. Apparently, I owned a ring of amber which could force demons to obey me. I could drink all night and never be the worse for it. Locks opened at the barest touch of my hand, and I had a cloak made all out of cobwebs and shadows. That was also the first time I heard anyone call me Quoth the Arcane. It was not a new name, apparently. The cluster of men listening to the story simply nodded along when they heard it. I learned that Quoth the Arcane knew a word that would stop arrows dead in the air. Quoth the Arcane only bled if the knife that cut him was made of raw, untempered iron. The young clerk was building to the dramatic finish of the story, 
and I was genuinely curious as to how I was going to stop the demon beast with my ring shattered and my cloak of shadows nearly burned away. But just as I forced my way into Traben's church, shattering the door with a magic word and a single blow of my bare hand, the door of the inn burst open, startling everyone as it banged hard against the wall. A young couple stood there. The woman was young and beautiful, dark-haired and dark-eyed. The man was richly dressed and pale with panic. I don't know what's the matter, he cried, looking about wildly. We were just walking, and then she couldn't breathe. I was at her side before anyone else in the room had time to stand. She had half collapsed onto an empty bench, with her escort hovering over her. She had one hand pressed against her chest, while the other pushed him away weakly. The man ignored it and crowded close to her, speaking in a low, urgent voice. The woman kept sliding away from him until she was at the edge of the bench. I pushed him ungently aside. I think she wants her space from you right now. Who are you? He demanded, his voice shrill. Are you a physician? Who is this man? Someone fetch a physician at once! He tried to elbow me aside. You! I pointed to a large sailor sitting at a table. Take this man and put him over there! My voice snapped like a whip, and the sailor jumped to his feet, grabbed the young gentleman by the back of his neck, and scuffed him tidily away. I turned back to the woman and watched as her perfect mouth opened. She strained and drew in only the barest rasp of a breath. Her eyes were wild and wet with fear. I moved close to her and spoke in my gentlest tones. You will be fine. All is well, I reassured her. You need to look in my eyes. Her eyes fixed on mine, then widened in recognition, in amazement. I need you to breathe for me. I laid one hand against her straining chest. Her skin was flushed and hot. Her heart was thrilling like a frightened bird. I laid my other hand along her face. I looked deeply into her eyes. They were like dark pools. I leaned close enough to kiss her. She smelled of celis flower, of green grass, of road dust. I felt her strain to breathe. I listened. I closed my eyes. I heard the whisper of a name. I spoke it soft, but close enough to brush against her lips. I spoke it quiet, but near enough so that the sound of it went twining through her hair. I spoke it hard and firm and dark and sweet. There was a rush of indrawn air. I opened my eyes. The room was still enough that I could hear the velvet rush of her second desperate breath. I relaxed. She laid her hand over mine, over her heart. I need you to breathe for me, she repeated. That's seven words. It is, I said. My hero, Dennis said, and drew a slow and smiling breath. It were powerful strange, I heard the sailor say on the other side of the room. There was summit in his voice. I swear by all the salt in me, I felt like a puppet with my string pulled. I listened with half an ear. I guessed the deckhand simply knew to jump when a voice with the proper ring of authority told him to. But there was no sense in telling him that. My performance with Denna, combined with my bright hair and dark cloak, had identified me as Quoth. So it would be magic, no matter what I had to say about it. I didn't mind. What I had done tonight was worthy of a story or two. 
Because they recognized me, folk were watching us, but not coming very close. Dennis' gentleman friend had left before we thought to look for him. So the two of us enjoyed a certain privacy in our small corner of the taproom. I should have known I'd come across you here, she said. You're always where I least expect to find you. Have you migrated away from the university at last? I shook my head. I'm playing truant for a couple days. Are you heading back soon? Tomorrow, actually. I've got a fetter cart. She smiled. Would you like some company? I gave her a frank look. You must know the answer to that. Denna blushed a little and looked away. I suppose I do. When she looked down, her hair cascaded off her shoulders, falling around her face. It smelled warm and rich like sunshine and cider. Your hair, I said. Lovely. Surprisingly, she blushed even deeper at this and shook her head without looking up at me. So that's what we've come to after all this time, she said, darting a look up at me. Flattery? It was my turn to be embarrassed, and I stammered. I... I wouldn't... I mean, I would. I took a breath before reaching out to lightly touch a narrow, intricate braid, half hidden in her hair. Your braid, I clarified. It almost says, lovely. Her mouth made a perfect O of surprise, and one hand went self-consciously to her hair. You can read it? She said, her voice incredulous, her expression slightly horrified. Merciful Taylu, isn't there anything you don't know? I've been learning Yiddish, I said, or trying to. It's got six strands instead of four, but it's almost like a story knot, isn't it? Almost, she said. It's a damn sight more than almost. Her fingers plucked at the piece of blue string at the end of her braid. Even Yiddish folk barely know Yiddish these days, she said under her breath, plainly irritated. I'm not any good, I said. I just know some words. Even the ones that do speak it don't bother with the knots, she glared sideways at me. And you're supposed to read them with your fingers, not by looking at them. I've mostly had to learn by looking at pictures in books, I said. Denna finally untied the blue string and began to unfurl the braid, her quick fingers smoothing it back into her hair. You didn't have to do that, I said. I liked it better before. That's rather the point, isn't it? She looked up at me, tilting her chin proudly as she shook out her hair. There. What do you think now? I think I'm afraid to give you any more compliments, I said, not exactly sure what I'd done wrong. Her demeanor softened a bit, her irritation fading. It's just embarrassing. I never expected anyone to be able to read it. How would you feel if someone saw you wearing a sign that said, I'm dashing and handsome? There was a pause. Before it could grow uncomfortable, I said, Am I keeping you from anything pressing? Only Squire Strahota. She made a negligent gesture toward her departed escort. Pressing, was he? I gave a half-smile, raising an eyebrow. All men press one way or another, she said with mock severity. They're still keeping to their book, then? Denna's expression grew rueful, and she sighed. I used to hope they'd disregard the book with age. 
Instead, I found they merely turned a page. She held up her hand, displaying a pair of rings. Now instead of roses, they give gold, and in the giving, they grow sudden bold. At least you're being bored by men of means, I said consolingly. Who wants a mean man? She pointed out. Little matter if his wealth is above or below the board. I laid a gentling hand on her arm. You must forgive these men of mercenary thought. These poor, rich men who, seeing that you can't be caught, attempt to buy a thing they know cannot be bought. Denna applauded delightedly. A plea of grace for enemies. I merely point out that you yourself are not above the giving of gifts, I said, as I myself well know. Her eyes hardened, and she shook her head. There was a great difference between a gift freely given and one that's meant to tie you to a man. There's truth to that, I admitted. Gold can make a chain as easily as iron. Still, one can hardly blame a man who hopes to decorate you. Hardly, she said with a smile that was both wry and weary. Many of their suggestions are rather indecorous. She looked at me. What of you? Would you have me decorated or indecorous? I have given some thought to that, I said with a secret smile, knowing I had her ring tucked safely away in my room at Anchor's. I made a show of looking her over. Both have their merits, but gold is not for you. You are too bright for burnishing. Denna gripped my arm and squeezed it, giving me a fond smile. Oh, my quoth, I've missed you. Half the reason I came back to this corner of the world was in the hope of finding you. She stood and held out her arm to me. Come, take me away from all this. Chapter 148 The Stories of Stones On the long ride back to Imre, Denna and I spoke of a hundred small things. She told me about the cities she had seen, Tinue, Vartharet, and Denevan. I told her about Ademre and showed her a few pieces of hand language. She teased me about my growing fame, and I told her the truth behind the stories. I told her how things had fallen out with the mayor, and she was properly outraged on my behalf. But there was much we didn't discuss. Neither of us mentioned how we'd parted ways in Severin. I didn't know if she had left in anger after our argument, or if she thought I had abandoned her. Any questions seemed dangerous. Such a discussion would be uncomfortable at best. At worst, it might reignite our previous argument, and that was something I was desperate to avoid. Denna carried her harp with her, as well as a large traveling trunk. I guessed her song was finished, and she must be performing it. It bothered me that she would play it in Imre, where countless singers and minstrels would hear and carry it out across the world. Despite this, I said nothing. I knew that would be a hard conversation, and I needed to pick the time for it carefully. Neither did I mention her patron, though what the café had told me preyed on my mind. I thought on it endlessly, had dreams about it. Felorian was another matter we didn't discuss. For all the jokes Denna made about my rescuing bandits and killing virgins, she never mentioned Felorian. She must have heard the song I'd written, as it was much more popular than the other stories she seemed to know so well. But she never mentioned it, and I was not enough of a fool to bring it up myself. 
So as we rode, there were many things unspoken. The tension built in the air between us as the road jounced away beneath the cart's wheels. There were gaps and breaks in our conversation, silences that stretched too long, silences that were short but terrifyingly deep. We were trapped in the middle of one of those silences when we finally arrived in Imre. I dropped her off at the boar's head, where she planned to take rooms. I helped her carry her trunk upstairs, but the silence was even deeper there. So I skirted hastily around it, bid her a fond farewell, and fled without so much as kissing her hand. That night, I thought of ten thousand things I could have said to her. I lay awake, staring at the ceiling, unable to sleep until the deep, late hours of night. I woke early, feeling anxious and uneasy. I had breakfast with Simon and Fella, then went to Adept Sympathy, where Fenton beat me handily three duels in a row, setting him in the top rank for the first time since I'd returned to the university. With no other classes, I bathed and spent long minutes looking through my clothes before deciding on a simple shirt and the green vest Fella said set off my eyes. I worked my shade into a short cape, then decided not to wear it. I didn't want Denna thinking of Felorian when I came to call. Lastly, I slipped Denna's ring into my vest pocket and set off across the river to Imre. Once at the boar's head, I hardly had a chance to touch the door handle before Denna opened it and stepped out onto the street, handing me a basket lunch. I was more than slightly surprised. How did you know? She wore a pale blue dress that flattered her and smiled winsomely as she linked arms with me. Women's intuition. Ah, I said, trying to sound wise. The nearness of her was almost painful. The warmth of her hand on my arm. The smell of her like green leaves and the air before a summer storm. Do you know where we are bound as well? Only that you will take me there. When she spoke, she turned to face me and I felt her breath against the side of my neck. I gladly leave my trust in you. I turned to face her, thinking to say one of the clever things I'd thought of last night. But when I met her eyes, all words left me. I was lost in wonder. For how long, I cannot even guess. For a long moment, I was wholly hers. Denna laughed, jogging me from a reverie that might have stretched a moment or a minute. We made our way out of town, talking as easily as if there had never been a thing between us but sunlight and spring air. I led her to a place I'd found earlier that spring, a small dell sheltered by the backs of trees. A stream meandered past a gray stone that lay lengthwise on the ground, and the sun shone on a field of bright daisies stretching their faces to the sky. Denna caught her breath when we crested the ridge and saw the carpet of daisies open out in front of her. I've waited a long time to show these flowers how pretty you are, I said. That won me an enthusiastic embrace and a kiss burning on my cheek. Both were over before I knew they'd begun. Bemused and grinning, I led the way through the daisies to the graystone near the stream. I removed my shoes and socks. Denna kicked off her shoes and tied up her skirts. Then she ran to the center of the stream until the water rose past her knees. Do you know the secret of stones? she asked as she reached into the water. The hem of her dress dipped into the stream, but she seemed unconcerned. What secret is that? She drew up a smooth, dark stone from the stream bed and held it out to me. 
Come see. I finished cuffing up my pants and made my way into the water. She held up the dripping stone. If you hold it in your hand and listen to it, she did so, closing her eyes. She stood still for a long moment, her face turned upward like a flower. I was drawn to kiss her, but I resisted. Finally, she opened her dark eyes. They smiled at me. If you listen close enough, it will tell you a story. What story did it tell you? I asked. Once there was a boy who came to the water, Denna said. This is the story of a girl who came to the water with the boy. They talked and the boy threw the stones as if casting them away from himself. The girl didn't have any stones, so the boy gave her some. Then she gave herself to the boy, and he cast her away as he would a stone, unmindful of any falling she might feel. I was quiet for a moment, not sure if she was done. It's a sad stone, then? She kissed the stone and dropped it, watching as it settled to the sand. No, not sad, but it was thrown once. It knows the feel of motion. It has trouble staying the way most stones do. It takes the offer that the water makes and moves sometimes. She looked up at me and gave a guileless smile. When it moves, it thinks about the boy. I didn't know what to make of the story, so I tried to change the subject. How did you learn to listen to stones? You'd be amazed the things you hear if only you take time to listen. She gestured to the stream bed strewn with stones. Try it. You never know what you might hear. Not sure what game she was playing at, I looked around for a stone, then cuffed up my shirt sleeve and reached into the water. Listen, she prompted earnestly. Thanks to my studies with Elodin, I had a high tolerance for the ridiculous. I held the stone to my ear and closed my eyes. I wondered if I should pretend to hear a story. Then I was in the water, wet to the skin and spitting it. I spluttered and struggled to my feet while Denna laughed so hard she doubled over at the waist, barely able to stand. I moved toward her, but she skipped away with a little shriek that left her laughing even harder. So I held off chasing and made a show of wiping water from my face and arms. Give up so easily, she taunted. Are you so sudden doused? I lowered my hand into the water. I was hoping to find my stone again. I said, pretending to look around for it. Denna laughed, shaking her head. You'll not lure me in that easily. I'm serious, I said. I wanted to hear the end of its story. What story was that? She asked teasingly, not coming any closer. It was a story of a girl who trifled with a powerful arcanist, I said. She mocked him and she scoffed at him. She laughed at him full scornfully. He caught her one day in a brook, and rhyming, he did quell her fears. And then the girl forgot to look behind her, and it led to tears. I grinned at her and pulled my hand out of the water. She turned in time for the wave to hit her. It was only as high as her waist, but it was enough to unbalance her. She went under in a swirl of dress and hair and bubbles. The current carried her to me, and I helped her to her feet, laughing. She came to the surface looking three days drowned. Not fair, she sputtered indignantly. Not fair. I disagree, I said. 
You're the fairest water maid I hope to see today. She splashed at me. Flatter all you like. The truth remains for God to see. You cheated. I used honest trickery. She tried to dunk me then, but I was ready for it. We struggled for a while until we were pleasantly breathless. Only then did I realize how close she was. How lovely. How little our wet clothing seemed to separate us. Denna seemed to realize it at the same time, and we moved a little apart from each other, as if suddenly shy. The wind stirred, reminding us how wet we were. Denna skipped lightly to the shore and stripped away her dress without a moment's hesitation, tossing it over the graystone to dry. She wore a white shift underneath that clung to her as she made her way back into the water. She gave me a playful push as she passed me by, then crawled atop a smooth black boulder that lay half-submerged near the center of the stream. It was a perfect sunning stone, smooth basalt, dark as her eyes. The whiteness of her skin and the too revealing shift were a sharp contrast against it, almost too bright to look on. She lay on her back and spread her hair to dry. Its wetness made a pattern against the stone that spelled the name of the wind. She closed her eyes and tipped her face toward the sun. Valurian herself could not have been more lovely, more perfectly at ease. I moved toward the shore as well and stripped off my sodden shirt and vest. I had to be content with my wet pants, as I had nothing else to wear. What does that stone tell you? I asked to fill the silence as I laid my shirt next to her dress on the gray stone. She ran one hand over the smooth surface of the stone and spoke without opening her eyes. This one is telling me what it is like to live in the water but not be a fish. She stretched like a cat. Bring the basket over here, would you? I fetched the basket and waded out toward her, moving slowly so as not to splash. She lay perfect and still, as if asleep but as I watched, her mouth curved into a smile. You're quiet, she said. But I can smell you standing there. Nothing bad, I hope. She shook her head gently, still not opening her eyes. You smell like dried flowers, like strange spice smoldering, close to catching flame. Like river water, too, if I have any guess. She stretched again and smiled an easy smile, showing the perfect whiteness of her teeth, the perfect pinkness of her lips. She shifted her position on the rock slightly, almost as if she were making room for me. Almost. I thought of joining her. The stone was large enough for two if they were willing to lie close. Yes, Denna said. Yes to what? I asked. Your question, she said, tilting her face toward me, her eyes still closed. You're about to ask me a question. She adjusted her position slightly on the stone. The answer is yes. How was I to take that? What should I ask for? A kiss? More? How much was too much to ask? Was this a test? I knew asking too much would only drive her away. I was wondering if you would move over a little, I said gently. Yes. She shifted again, making more space beside her. Then she opened her eyes, and they went wide at the sight of me standing shirtless above her. She glanced down and relaxed when she saw my pants. I laughed, but her wide-eyed look of shock pushed me back into caution. I set the basket in the place I had thought to take myself.
What thought was that, my lady? She colored a bit, embarrassed. I didn't think you were the sort to bring a girl her lunch while you were running stark. She gave a little shrug, looked at the basket, at me. But I like you this way, my own bare-chested slave. She closed her eyes again. Feed me strawberries. I was happy to oblige, and so we passed the afternoon. Lunch was long gone, and the sun had dried us. For the first time since our fight in Severin, I felt things were right between us. The silences no longer lay around us like holes in the road. I knew it had just been a matter of waiting patiently until the tension passed. As the afternoon slowly slid by, I knew this was the right time to bring up the subject I had been biting my tongue over for so long. I could see the dull green of old bruises on her upper arms, the remnant of a raised welt on her back. There was a scar on her leg above her knee, new enough that the red of it showed through the white of her shift. All I needed to do was ask about them. If I phrased things carefully, she'd admit they were from her patron. From there, it would be a simple thing to draw her out, to convince her she deserved better, that whatever he was offering her was not worth this abuse. And for the first time in my life, I was in a position to offer her a way out. With Alvaron's line of credit and my work in the fishery, money would never be a problem for me. For the first time in my life, I was wealthy. I could give her a way to escape. What happened to your back? Denna asked softly, interrupting my train of thought. She was still reclining on her stone. I was leaning against it, my feet in the water. What? I asked, unconsciously turning a foolish half-circle. You're scarred all along your back, she said gently. I felt one of her cool hands touch my sun-warm skin, tracing a line. I could hardly tell they were scars at first. They're pretty. She traced another line down my back. It looks like some giant child mistook you for a piece of paper and practiced his letters on you with a silver pen. She took her hand away, and I turned to face her. How did you get them? she asked. I caused some trouble at the university, I said somewhat sheepishly. They whipped you? she said incredulous. Twice, I said. And you stay there? She asked as if she still couldn't believe it. After they did this to you? I shrugged it away. There are worse things than whipping, I said. There's nowhere else I can learn the things they teach here. When I want a thing, it takes more than a little blood to... It was only then I realized what I was saying. The masters whipped me. Her patron beat her. And we both stayed. How could I convince her my situation was different? How could I convince her to leave? Denna looked at me curiously, her head tilted to the side. What happens when you want a thing? I shrugged. I was just saying I'm not easily chased away. I've heard that about you, Denna said, giving me a knowing look. A lot of girls in Imre say you're not easily chased. She sat upright and began to slide toward the edge of the stone. Her white shift twisted and slid slowly up her legs as she moved. I was about to comment on her scar, 
hoping I might still bring the conversation around to her patron when I noticed Denna had stopped moving and was watching me as I stared at her bare legs. What do they say exactly? I asked, more for something to say than from any curiosity. She shrugged. Some think you're trying to decimate Imre's female population. She edged closer to the lip of the stone. Her shift shifted distractingly. Decimate would imply one in ten, I said, trying to turn it into a joke. That's slightly ambitious, even for me. How reassuring, she said. Do you bring all of them? She made a little gasp as she slipped down the side of the stone. She caught herself just as I was reaching out to help her. Bring them what? I asked. Roses, fool, she said sharply. Or have you turned that page already? Would you like me to carry you? I asked. Yes, she said. But before I could reach for her, she slid the rest of the way into the water, her shift gathering to a scandalous height before she slipped free into the stream. The water rose to her knee, just dampening the hem. We made our way back to the graystone and silently worked our way into our now dry clothes. Denna fretted at the wetness at the hem of her shift. You know, I could have carried you, I said softly. Denna pressed the back of her hand to her forehead. Another seven words, I swoon. She fanned herself with her other hand. What should a woman do? Love me. I had intended to say it in my best flippant tone teasing, making a joke of it, but I made the mistake of looking into her eyes as I spoke. They distracted me, and when the words left my mouth, they ended up sounding nothing at all the way I had intended. For a fleet second, she held my eyes with intent tenderness. Then a rueful smile quirked up the corner of her mouth. Oh no, she said, not that trap for me. I'll not be one of the many. I clenched my teeth, stuck somewhere between confusion, embarrassment, and fear. I'd been too bold and made a mess of things, just as I'd always feared. When had the conversation managed to run away from me? I beg your pardon? I said stupidly. You should. Denna straightened her clothes, moving with an uncharacteristic stiffness, and ran her hands through her hair, twisting it into a thick plate. Her fingers knitted the strands together, and for a second I could read it clear as day. Don't speak to me. I might be thick, but even I can read a sign that obvious. I closed my mouth, biting off the next thing I'd been about to say. Then Denna saw me eyeing her hair and pulled her hands away self-consciously without tying off the braid. Her hair quickly spun free to fall loose around her shoulders. She brought her hands in front of her and twisted one of her rings nervously. Hold a moment, I said. I'd almost forgotten. I reached into the inner pocket of my vest. I have a present for you. Her mouth made a thin line as she looked at my outstretched hand. You too? she asked. I honestly thought you were different. I hope I am, I said, and opened my hand. I'd polished it, and the sun caught the edges of the pale blue stone. Oh! Denna's hands went to her mouth, her eyes suddenly brimming. Is it really? She reached out with both hands to take it. It is, I said. 
She turned it over in her hands, then removed one of her other rings and slid it onto her finger. It is, she said in amazement, a few tears spilling over. How did you ever— I got it from Ambrose, I said. Oh, she said. She shifted her weight from one foot to the other, and I felt the silence loom up between us again. It wasn't much trouble, I said. I'm just sorry it took so long. I can't thank you enough for this. Denna reached out and took my hand between hers. You would think that would have helped, that a gift and clasped hands would make things right between us. But the silence was back now, stronger than before, thick enough that you could spread it on your bread and eat it. There are some silences that even words cannot drive away. And while Denna was touching my hand, she wasn't holding it. There is a world of difference. Denna looked up at the sky. The weather's turning, she said. We should probably head back before it rains. I nodded, and we left. Clouds cast their shadows across the field behind us as we went. Chapter 149 Tangled Anchors was deserted except for Sim and Fella sitting at one of the back tables. I made my way toward them and sat with my back to the wall. So, Sim asked as I slumped into my seat, how did yesterday go? I ignored the question, not really wanting to discuss it. What was yesterday? Fella asked curiously. He spent the day with Denna, Sim supplied. The whole day? I shrugged. Sim lost some of his buoyant manner. Not so well, he said carefully. Not particularly, I said. I looked behind the bar, caught Laurel's eye, and gestured for her to bring me some of whatever was in the pot. Care for a lady's perspective? Fella asked gently. I'd settle for yours. Sim burst out laughing, and Fella made a face. I'll help you in spite of that, she said. Tell Auntie Fella all about it. So I told her the bones of it. I tried my best to paint a picture of the situation, but the heart of it seemed to defy explication. It sounded foolish when I tried to put it into words. That's all, I said after several minutes of fumbling around the subject. Or at least, that's enough of my talking about it. She confuses me like no other thing in the world. I picked at a splinter in the tabletop with my finger. I hate not understanding a thing. Laurel brought me warm bread and a bowl of potato soup. Anything else? she asked. I'm fine, thanks. I smiled at her, then observed her rear aspect as she made her way back to the bar. All right, then, Fella said in a businesslike manner. Let's start with your good points. You're charming, handsome, and perfectly courteous to women. Sim laughed. Didn't you see how he looked at Laurel just now? He's the world's first lecher. He looks at more women than I could if I had two heads with necks that spun like an owl's. I do, I admitted. There's looking and there's looking, Fella said to Simon. When some men look at you, it's a greasy thing. It makes you want to have a bath. With other men, it's nice. It helps you know you're beautiful. She ran a hand absently through her hair. You hardly need to be reminded, Simmons said. 
Everyone needs to be reminded, she said. But with Quoth, it's different. He's so serious about it. When he looks at you, you can tell his whole attention is focused on you. She laughed at my uncomfortable expression. It's one of the things I liked about you when we met. Simmons' expression darkened, and I tried to look as non-threatening as possible. But since you came back, it's almost physical, Bella said. Now when you look at me, there's something happening behind your eyes. Something all sweet fruit, shadows, and lamplight. Something wild that fairy maidens run from underneath a violet sky. It's a terrible thing, really. I like it. As she said the last, she squirmed slightly in her seat, a wicked glitter in her eye. It was too much for Simon. He pushed his chair away from the table and started to get to his feet, making inarticulate gestures. Fine, then. I'll just... Fine. Oh, sweetling, Fella said, laying a hand on his arm. Hush. It's not like that. Don't hush me, he snapped, but he stayed in his chair. Fella ran her hand through the hair on the back of Sim's neck. It's nothing you need to worry over. She laughed as if the thought was ridiculous. You have me tied to you more tightly than you know, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a little flattery from time to time. Sim glowered. Should I cloister myself then? Fella asked. Irritation crept into her voice, bringing with it the barest lilt of her Modegan accent. You know how you feel when Mola takes the time to flirt with you. Simon gaped and looked as if he were trying to go pale and blush at the same time. Fella laughed at his bewilderment. Tiny God, Sim, do you think I'm blind? It's a sweet thing, and it makes you feel good. What's the harm in it? There was a pause. Nothing, I suppose, Sim said finally. Looking up, he gave me a shaky grin and brushed his hair back from his eyes. Just don't ever give me the look she mentioned, okay? His grin widened, became more genuine. I don't know if I could handle it. I grinned back at him without thinking of it. Sim could always make me smile. Besides, Fella said to him, you're perfect just the way you are. She kissed his ear as if to put the seal on his improving mood, then turned back to me. On the other hand, you couldn't pay me enough to get tangled up with you, she said flatly. What do you mean? I demanded. What about my look? My dark fairy whateverness? Oh, you're fascinating, but a girl wants more than that. She wants a man devoted to her. I shook my head. I refuse to throw myself at her like every other man she's ever met. She hates it. I've seen what happens. Have you ever thought she might feel the same way? Fella asked. You do have something of a reputation with the ladies. Should I cloister myself then? I said, repeating what she'd said to Sim, though it came out sharper than I'd intended. Black and body of God! I've seen her on the arms of ten dozen men. Suddenly it's offensive to her if I take another woman out to see a play? Fella gave me a frank look. You've been doing more than going for carriage rides. Women talk. Wonderful. And what do they say? I asked bitterly, looking down at my soup. That you're charming, she said easily, and polite. You don't have wandering hands, which is actually a source of frustration in some cases, apparently. She smiled a little. 
I looked up, curious. Who? Fella hesitated. Meriden, she said, but you didn't hear it from me. She didn't say twenty words to me over dinner, I said, shaking my head. And she's disappointed I didn't grope her afterward? I thought she hated me. We're a long way from Modeg, Fella said. People aren't sensible about sex in this part of the world. Some women don't know how to deal with a man that doesn't make bold moves. Fine, I said. What else do they say? Nothing terribly surprising, she said. While you might not be grabby, it's certainly no challenge to trip you either. You're generous, witty, and... She trailed off, looking uncomfortable. Go ahead, I said. Fell aside and added, Distant. It wasn't the crushing blow I'd expected. Distant? Sometimes all you're looking for is dinner, Fella said. Or company, or conversation, or for someone to have a friendly grope at you. But mostly, you want a man to... She frowned and started over. When you're with a man... She trailed off again. I leaned forward. Say what you mean. Fella shrugged and looked away. If we were together, I'd expect you to leave me. Not right away, not with any malice or meanness, but I know you would. You don't seem like the sort who will settle down with a girl forever. Eventually, you'd move on to something more important than me. I prodded idly at a bit of potato in my soup, not sure what to think. There's got to be more to it than just devotion, Sim said. Quoth would turn the world upside down for this girl. You can see that, can't you? Fella gave me a long look. I suppose I can, she said softly. If you can see it, then Denna must be able to, Simon pointed out sensibly. Fella shook her head. It's only easy to see because I'm far enough away. Love is blind? Sim laughed. That's the advice you have to offer? He rolled his eyes. Please! I never said I was in love, I interjected. I never said that. She confuses me, and I'm fond of her. But it doesn't go further than that. How could it? I don't know her well enough to make any earnest claim of love. How can I love something I don't understand? They looked at me in silence for a moment. Then Sim burst out in his boyish laugh, as if I'd just said the most ridiculous thing he'd ever heard. He took hold of Fella's hand and kissed it squarely on her multifaceted ring of stone. You win, he said to her. Love is blind. And a deaf mute, too. I'll never doubt your wisdom again. Still feeling out of sorts, I went looking for Mastery Loden, eventually finding him sitting under a tree in a small garden next to the muse. Quoth! He waved lazily. Come, sit! He nudged a bowl toward me with his foot. Have some grapes! I took a few. Fresh fruit wasn't a rarity for me these days, but the grapes were lovely nonetheless, just on the verge of being overripe. I chewed pensively, my mind still tangled with thoughts of Denna. Mastery Loden? I asked slowly. What would you think of someone who kept changing their own name? What? He sat up suddenly, his eyes wild and panicked. What have you done? His reaction startled me, and I held up my hands defensively. Nothing, I insisted. It's not me. 
It's a girl I know. Elodin's face grew ashen. Fella? he said. Oh, no. No! She wouldn't do something like that. She's too smart for that. It sounded as if he were desperately trying to convince himself. I'm not talking about Fella, I said. I'm talking about a young girl I know. Every time I turn around, she's picked another name for herself. Oh, Elodin said, relaxing. He leaned back against the tree, laughing softly. Calling names, he said with tangible relief. God's bones, boy, I thought... He broke off, shaking his head. You thought what? I asked. Nothing, he said dismissively. Now, what's this about a girl? I shrugged, beginning to regret bringing it up in the first place. I was just wondering what you'd say about a girl who keeps changing her name. Every time I turn around, she's picked a different one. Diana, Donna, Diane. I'm assuming she's not some fugitive, Elodin asked, smiling. Hunted, doing her best to evade the iron law of Ator, that sort of thing. Not to the best of my knowledge, I said with a faint smile of my own. It could indicate she doesn't know who she is, he said, or that she does know and doesn't like it. He looked up and rubbed his nose thoughtfully. It could indicate restlessness and dissatisfaction. It could mean her nature is changeable and she shifts her name to fit it. Or it could mean she changes her name with the hope it might help her be a different person. That's a lot of nothing, I said testily. It's like saying you know your soup is either hot or cold, that an apple is either sweet or sour. I gave him a frown. It's just a complicated way of saying you don't know anything. You didn't ask me what I knew of such a girl, he pointed out. You asked me what I would say of such a girl. I shrugged, tiring of the subject. We ate grapes in silence as we watched the students come and go. I called the wind again, I said, realizing I hadn't told him yet. Down in Tarbian. He perked up at that. Did you now? He said, turning to look at me expectantly. Let's hear it then, all the details. Elodin was everything you could want in an audience, attentive and enthusiastic. I related the entire story, not sparing a few dramatic flourishes. By the end of it, I found my mood much improved. That's three times this term, Elodin said approvingly, sought and found when you had need of it. And not just a breeze, but a breath. That's subtle stuff. He looked at me from the corner of his eye, giving me a sly smile. How long do you think it will be before you can make yourself a ring of air? I lifted up my naked left hand, fingers spread. Who's to say I'm not already wearing it? Elodin rocked with laughter, then stopped when my expression didn't change. His brow furrowed a bit as he gave me a speculative look, eyes flickering first to my hand, then back to my face. Are you joking? he asked. That's a good question, I said, looking him calmly in the eye. Am I? Chapter 150 Folly Spring term rolled on. Contrary to what I'd expected, Denna didn't make any public performances in Imre. Instead, she headed north to Annalyn after a handful of days. But this time, she made a special trip to Anchors to tell me she was leaving. I found myself strangely flattered by this, 
and couldn't help but feel it was a sign that things were not entirely sour between us. The Chancellor fell ill just as the term was coming to a close. Though I didn't know him very well, I liked Herma. Not only did I find him to be a surprisingly easygoing teacher when he had been teaching me Yiddish, but he had been kind to me when I was new to the university. Nevertheless, I wasn't particularly worried. Arwill and the staff of the Medica could do everything just short of bringing people back from the dead. But days passed and no news came from the Medica. Rumors said he was too weak to leave his bed, plagued with spikes of fever that threatened to burn away his powerful arcanist's mind. When it became apparent he wouldn't be able to resume his duties as chancellor any time soon, the masters gathered to decide who would fill his place, perhaps permanently should his condition worsen. And, to make a painful story short, Hem was appointed chancellor. After the shock wore off, it was easy to see why. Kilvin, Arwill, and Lauren were too busy to take up the extra duties. The same could be said for Mandrag and Dahl to a lesser extent. That left Elodin, Brandur, and Hem. Elodin didn't want it, and was generally regarded as too erratic to serve. And Brandur always faced whatever direction Hem's own wind was blowing. So Hem gained the Chancellor's chair. While I found it irritating, it had little impact on my day-to-day -day life. The only precaution I took was to step with extra care around even the least of the university's laws, knowing if I were put on the horns now, Hem's vote would count doubly against me. As admissions approached, Master Herma remained weak and fevered. So it was with a knot of sour dread in my stomach that I prepared for my first admissions interview with Hem as Chancellor. I went through the questioning with the same careful artifice I'd maintained for the last two terms. I hesitated and made a few mistakes, earning a tuition of twenty talents or so. Enough to earn some money, but not enough to embarrass myself too badly. Hem, as always, asked double-sided or misleading questions designed to trip me. But that was nothing new. The only real difference seemed to be that Hem smiled a great deal. It wasn't a pleasant smile, either. The masters had their usual muted conference. Then Hem read my tuition. Fifty talents. Apparently the Chancellor had greater control over these things than I had ever known. I forced myself to bite my lip to keep from laughing, and arranged my face in a dejected expression as I made my way to the basement of Hollows, where the bursar kept his counting room. Reem's eyes brightened at the sight of my tuition slip. He disappeared into his back room and returned in a moment with an envelope of thick paper. I thanked him and returned to my room at Anchors, maintaining my morose expression all the way. Once I had the door closed, I tore open the heavy envelope and poured its contents into my hand. Two gleaming gold marks worth ten talents each. I laughed then, laughed until my eyes watered and my sides ached. Then I drew on my best suit of clothes and gathered my friends, Willem and Simon, Fella and Mola, I sent a runner-boy to Imre with an invitation to Davy and Threp. Then I hired a four-horse carriage and had the lot of us driven across the river to Imre. We stopped by the Aeolian. Denna wasn't there, but I collected Diok instead, and we made our way to the King's Arms, an establishment of the sort no self-respecting student could ever afford. The doorman looked the motley lot of us over scornfully, as if he would object. But Threp frowned his best gentleman's frown and ushered all of us safely inside. Then commenced a night of pleasant decadence, the likes of which I have hardly seen equaled since. 
We ate and drank, and I paid for everything happily. The only water on the table was in the hand bowls. In our cups, there was only old vintage wines, dark scutton, cool metheglin, sweet brand, and every toast we drank was to Hem's folly. Chapter 151 Locks Quoth drew a deep breath and nodded to himself. Let's stop there, he said. Money in my pocket for the first time in my life, surrounded by friends, that's a good place to end for the night. He idly rubbed his hands together, right hand massaging the left absentmindedly. If we go much farther, things get dark again. Chronicler picked up the short stack of finished pages and tapped them on the table, squaring their corners before resting the half-finished page on top. He opened his leather satchel, removed the bright green crown of holly, and slid the pages inside. Then he screwed shut his inkwell and began to dismantle and clean all the pieces of his pen. Quoth stood and stretched. Then he gathered up the empty plates and cups, carrying them into the kitchen. Bast merely sat, his expression blank. He didn't move. He hardly seemed to be breathing. After several minutes, Chronicler began to dart glances in his direction. Quoth came back into the room and frowned. Bast, he said. Bast slowly turned his eyes to look at the man behind the bar. Shep's wake is still going on, Quoth said. There's not much cleaning up to do tonight. Why don't you head over for the end of it? They'll be glad to have you. Bast considered for a moment, then shook his head. I don't think so, Reshi, he said, his voice flat. I'm not really in the mood. He pushed himself out of his chair and made his way across the room toward the stairs without looking either of them in the eye. I'll just turn in. The hard sounds of his footsteps retreated slowly into the distance, followed by the sound of a closing door. Chronicler watched him go, then turned to look at the red-haired man behind the bar. Quoth was looking at the stairway, too, his eyes concerned. He's just had a rough day, he said, sounding as if he were speaking to himself as much as his guest. He'll be fine tomorrow. Wiping off his hands, Quoth walked around the bar and headed to the front door. Do you need anything before you turn in? he asked. Chronicler shook his head and began fitting his pen back together. Quoth locked the front door with a large brass key, then turned to Chronicler. I'll leave this in the lock for you, he said in case you wake up early and feel like having a walk or some such. I don't tend to sleep very much these days. He touched the side of his face where a bruise was beginning to model his jaw. But tonight I might make an exception. Chronicler nodded and shouldered his satchel. Then he delicately picked up his holly crown and headed up the stairs. Alone in the common room, Quoth swept the floor methodically, catching all the corners. He finished the dishes washed the tables and the bar, and rolled down all the lamps but one, leaving the room dimly lit and full of flickering shadow. For a moment, he looked at the bottles behind the bar, then turned and made his own slow climb upstairs. Bast stepped slowly into his room, closing the door behind himself. He moved quietly through the dark to stand before the hearth. Nothing but ash and cinder remained from the morning's fire. Bast opened the wood bin, 
but there was nothing inside except a thick layer of chaff and chips at the bottom. The dim light from the window glinted in his dark eyes and showed the outline of his face as he stood motionless, as if trying to decide what to do. After a moment, he let the lid of the bin fall closed, wrapped himself in a blanket, and folded himself onto a small couch in front of the empty fireplace. He sat there for a long while, his eyes open in the dark. There was a faint scuffle outside his window, then nothing, then a faint scraping. Bast turned and saw a dark shape outside, moving in the night. Bast went motionless, then slid smoothly from the couch to stand in front of the fireplace. Eyes still on the window, his hands hunted carefully across the top of the mantel. There was another scrape at the window, louder this time. Bast's eyes darted away from the window to the mantel, and he caught up something with both hands. Metal gleamed faintly in the dim moonlight as he crouched, his body tense as a coiled spring. For a long moment, there was nothing. No sound. No movement outside the window or in the darkened room. Tap, 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 tap. It was a faint noise, but perfectly clear in the stillness of the room. There was a pause. Then the noise came again, sharp and insistent against the window glass. Tap, 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 tap. Bast sighed. Relaxing out of his tense crouch, he walked over to the window, threw the drop bar, and opened it. My window doesn't have a lock, Chronicler said petulantly. Why does yours? Obvious reasons, Bast said. Can I come in? Bast shrugged and moved back toward the fireplace while Chronicler climbed awkwardly through the window. Bast struck a match and lit a lamp on a nearby table, then carefully set a pair of long knives on the mantel. One was slender and sharp as a blade of grass, the other keen and graceful as a thorn. Chronicler looked around as light swelled to fill the room. It was large, with rich wood paneling and thick carpets. Two lounging couches faced each other in front of the fireplace, and one corner of the room was dominated by a huge canopy bed with deep green curtains. There were shelves filled with pictures, trinkets, and oddments, locks of hair wrapped in ribbon, Whistles carved from wood, dried flowers, rings of horn and leather and woven grass, a hand-dipped candle with leaves pressed into the wax, and, in what was obviously a recent addition, holly boughs decorated parts of the room. One long garland ran along the headboard of the bed, and another was strung along the mantel, weaving in and out through the handles of a pair of bright, leaf-bladed hatchets hanging there. Bast sat back in front of the cold fireplace and wrapped a rag blanket around his shoulders like a shawl. It was a chaos of ill-matching fabric and faded color except for a bright red heart sewn squarely in the center. We need to talk, Chronicler said softly. Bast shrugged, his eyes fixed dully on the fireplace. Chronicler took a step closer. I need to ask you, you don't have to whisper, Bast said without looking up. We're on the other side of the inn. Sometimes I have guests. It used to keep him awake, so I moved to this side of the building. There are six solid walls between my room and his. Chronicler sat on the edge of the other couch, facing Bast. I need to ask about some of the things you said tonight. About the Cathay. We shouldn't talk about the Cathay. Bast's voice was flat and leaden. It's not healthy. The Sith, then, Chronicler said. 
You said if they knew about this story, they'd kill everyone involved. Is that true? Bast nodded, eyes still on the fireplace. They'd burn this place and salt the earth behind them. Chronicler looked down, shaking his head. I don't understand this fear you have of the Cathay, he said. Well, Bast said, evidence seems to indicate that you're not terribly smart. Chronicler frowned and waited patiently. Bast sighed, finally pulling his eyes away from the fireplace. Think. The Cathay knows everything you're ever going to do. Everything you're going to say. That makes it an irritating conversationalist, Chronicler said. But not... Bast's expression went suddenly furious. Dejenweyat! And Feyenweyat Tilloring Death! He spat almost incoherently. He was trembling clenching and unclenching his hands. Chronicler went pale at the venom in Bast's voice, but he didn't flinch. You're not angry at me, he said calmly, looking Bast in the eye. You're just angry, and I happen to be nearby. Bast glared at him, but said nothing. Chronicler leaned forward. I'm trying to help. You know that, right? Bast nodded sullenly. That means I need to understand what's going on. Bast shrugged. His sudden flare of temper had burned itself out, leaving him listless again. Quoth seems to believe you about the Cathay, Chronicler said. He knows the hidden turnings of the world, Bast said. And what he doesn't understand, he's quick to grasp. Bast's fingers flicked idly at the edges of the blanket. And he trusts me. But doesn't it seem contrived? The Cathay gives a boy a flower. One thing leads to another, and suddenly there's a war. Chronicler made a dismissive motion. Things don't work that way. It's too much coincidence. It's not coincidence. Bast gave a short sigh. A blind man has to stumble through a cluttered room. You don't. You use your eyes and pick the easy way. It's clear to you as anything. The Cathay can see the future. All futures. We have to fumble through. It doesn't. It merely looks and picks the most disastrous path. It is the stone that stirs the avalanche. It is the cough that starts the plague. But if you know the Cathay is trying to steer you, Chronicler said, you would just do something else. He gives you the flower, and you just sell it. Bast shook his head. The Cathay would know. You can't second-guess a thing that knows your future. Say you sell the flower to the prince. He uses the flower to heal his betrothed. A year later, she catches him diddling the chambermaid, hangs herself in disgrace, and her father launches an attack to avenge her honor. Bast spread his hands helplessly. You still get civil war. But the young man who sold the flower stays safe. Probably not. Bast said grimly. More likely he gets drunk as a lord, catches the pox, then knocks over a lamp and sets half the city on fire. You're just making things up to prove your point, Chronicler said. You're not actually proving anything. Why do I need to prove anything to you? Bast asked. Why would I care what you think? Be happy in your silly little ignorance. I'm doing you a favor by not telling you the truth. What truth is that? Chronicler said, plainly irritated. 
Bast gave a weary sigh and looked up at Chronicler, his expression utterly empty of all hope. I would rather fight Haliax himself, he said. I'd rather face all the Chandrian together than have ten words of conversation with the Cathay. This gave Chronicler a bit of a pause. They'd kill you, he said. Something in his voice made it a question. Yes, Bast said. Even so. Chronicler stared at the dark-haired man sitting across from him, wrapped in a rag blanket. Stories taught you to fear the Cathay, he said, disgust plain in his voice. And that fear is making you stupid. Bast shrugged, his empty eyes drifting back to the non-existent fire. You bore me, manling. Chronicler stood up, stepped forward, and slapped Bast hard across the face. Bast's head rocked to the side, and for a moment he seemed too shocked to move. Then he came to his feet in a blur of motion, blanket flying from his shoulders. He grabbed Chronicler roughly by the throat, teeth bared, his eyes a deep, unbroken blue. Chronicler looked him squarely in the eye. The Cathay set all of this in motion, he said calmly. It knew you would attack me, and terrible things will come of it. Bast's furious expression went stiff, his eyes widening. The tension left his shoulders as he let go of Chronicler's throat. He started to sink back down under the cushions of the couch. Chronicler drew back his arm and slapped him again. If anything, the sound was even louder than before. Bast bared his teeth again, then stopped. His eyes darted to Chronicler, then away. The Cathay knows you fear it, Chronicler said. It knows I would use that knowledge against you. It's still manipulating you. If you don't attack me, terrible things will come of it. Bast froze as if paralyzed, trapped halfway between standing and sitting. Are you listening to me? Chronicler said. Are you finally awake? Bast looked up at the scribe with an expression of confused amazement. A bright red mark was blossoming on his cheek. He nodded, sinking slowly back onto the couch. Chronicler drew back his arm. What will you do if I hit you again? Beat ten colors of guts out of you, Bast said earnestly. Chronicler nodded and sat back down on his couch. I will, for the sake of argument, accept that the Cathay knows the future. That means it can control many things. He raised a finger. But not everything. The fruit you ate today was still sweet in your mouth, wasn't it? Bast nodded slowly. If the Cathay is as malicious as you say, it would harm you in every way possible. But it cannot. It could not keep you from making your Reshi laugh this morning. It could not keep you from enjoying the sun on your face or kissing the rosy cheeks of farmers' daughters, could it? A flicker of a grin found Bast's face. I kissed more than that, he said. That, Chronicler said firmly, is my point. It cannot poison everything we do. Bast looked thoughtful, then sighed. You're right in a way, he said. 
but only an idiot sits in a burning house and thinks everything is fine because fruit is still sweet. Chronicler made a point of looking around the room. The inn doesn't look like it's on fire to me. Bast looked at him incredulously. The whole world is burning down, he said. Open your eyes. Chronicler frowned. Even ignoring everything else, he said, bullying ahead. Valorian let him go. She knew he'd spoken with the Cathay. Surely she wouldn't have loosed him on the world unless she had some way to guard against its influence. Bath's eyes brightened at the thought, then dimmed almost immediately. He shook his head. You're looking for depth in a shallow stream, he said. I don't follow you, Chronicler demanded. What possible reason could she have for letting him go if he was truly dangerous? Reason? Bast asked, dark amusement coloring his voice. No reason. She's got nothing to do with reason. She let him go because it pleased her pride. She wanted him to go out into the mortal world and sing her praises, tell stories about her, pine for her. That's why she let him leave. He sighed. I've already told you. My folk are not famous for our good decisions. Perhaps, Chronicler said. Or perhaps she simply recognized the futility of trying to second-guess the Cathay. He made a nonchalant gesture. If whatever you're going to do is wrong, you might as well do whatever you want. Bast sat quietly for a long moment. Then he nodded, faintly at first, then more firmly. You're right, he said. If everything is going to end in tears anyway... I should do what I want. Bast looked around the room, then came suddenly to his feet. After a moment's searching, he found a thick cloak crumpled on the floor. He gave it a vigorous shake and wrapped it around his shoulders before heading to the window. Then he stopped, came back to the couch, and rummaged in the cushions until he found a bottle of wine. Chronicler looked puzzled. What are you doing? Are you going back to Shep's wake? Bast paused on his way back to the window, seeming almost surprised to see Chronicler still standing there. I'm going about my business, he said, tucking the bottle of wine under his arm. He opened the window and swung one foot outside. Don't wait up. Quoth stepped briskly into his room, closing the door behind himself. He moved about busily. He cleared the cold ashes from the fireplace and set new wood in its place sparking the fire to life with a fat red sulfur match. He fetched a second blanket and spread it over his narrow bed. Frowning slightly, he picked up the crumpled piece of paper from where it had fallen to the floor and returned it to the top of his desk where it sat next to the two other crumpled sheets. Then, moving almost reluctantly, he made his way to the foot of his bed. Taking a deep breath, he wiped his hands on his pants and knelt in front of the dark chest that sat there. He rested both hands on the curved lid and closed his eyes, as if listening for something. His shoulders shifted as he tugged against the lid. Nothing happened. Kvoth opened his eyes. His mouth made a grim line. His hands moved again, pulling harder, straining for a long moment before giving up. Expressionless, Kvoth stood and walked to the window that overlooked the woods behind the inn. He slid it open and leaned out, reaching down with both hands. 
Then, he drew himself back inside, clutching a slender wooden box. Brushing away a coating of dust and spiderwebs, he opened the box. Inside lay a key of dark iron and a key of bright copper. Quoth knelt in front of the chest again and fit the copper key into the iron lock. With slow precision, he turned it. Left, then right, then left again, listening carefully to the faint clicks of some mechanism inside. Then he lifted the iron key and fit it into the copper plate. This key he did not turn. He slid it deep into the lock, brought it halfway out, then pushed it back before drawing it free in a smooth, quick motion. After replacing the keys in their box, he put his hands back on the sides of the lid in the same position as before. Open, he said under his breath. Open, damn you! Edro! He lifted, his back and shoulders tensing with the effort of it. The lid of the chest didn't budge. Quoth gave a long sigh and leaned forward until his forehead pressed against the cool, dark wood. As the air rushed out of him, his shoulders sagged, leaving him looking small and wounded, terribly tired and older than his years. His expression, however, showed no surprise, no grief. It was merely resigned. It was the expression of a man who has finally received bad news he'd already known was on the way. Chapter 152 Elderberry It was a bad night to be caught in the open. The clouds had rolled in late, like a gray sheet pulled across the sky. The wind was chill and gusty, with fits and starts of rain that spattered down heavily before fading into drizzle. For all this, the two soldiers camped in a thicket near the road seemed to be enjoying themselves. They'd found a woodcutter's stash and built their fire so high and hot that the occasional gust of rain did little more than make it spit and hiss. The two men were talking loudly, laughing the wild, braying laughter of men too drunk to care about the weather. Eventually, a third man emerged from the dark trees, stepping delicately over the trunk of a nearby fallen tree. He was wet, if not soaked, and his dark hair was plastered flat to his head. When the soldiers saw him, they lifted their bottles and called out an enthusiastic greeting. Didn't know if you'd make it, the blonde soldier said. It's a shit night, but it's only fair you get your third. You went through, said the bearded one, lifting up a narrow yellow bottle. Suck on this. It's some fruit thing, but it kicks like a pony. Yours is girly piss the blonde soldier said, holding up his own. Here! Now this here is a man's drink. The third man looked back and forth, as if unable to decide. Finally, he lifted a finger, pointing at one bottle, then the other, as he began to chant. Maple, maple, catch and carry, ash and ember, elderberry. He ended pointing at the yellow bottle then gripped it by the neck and lifted to his lips. He took a long, slow drink, his throat working silently. Hey there, said the bearded soldier. Save a bit. Bast lowered the bottle and licked his lips. He gave a dry, humorless chuckle. You got the right bottle, he said. 
eats elderberry. You're nowhere near as chatty as you were this morning, the blonde soldier said, cocking his head to one side. You look like your dog died. Is everything all right? No, Bast said. Nothing's all right. It ain't our fault if he figured it out, the blonde one said quickly. We waited a bit after you left, just like you said. But we'd been sitting for hours already. Thought you were never going to leave. Hell, the bearded man said, irritated. Does he know? He'd throw you out? Bast shook his head and tipped the bottle back again. Then you ain't got nothing to complain of. The blonde soldier rubbed the side of his head, scowling. Silly bastard gave me a lump or two. He got it back with some despair. The bearded soldier grinned, rubbing his thumb across his knuckles. He'll be pissing blood tomorrow. So it's all good at the end, the blonde soldier said philosophically, lurching unsteadily as he waved his bottle a little too dramatically. You got to skin your knuckles. I got a drink of something lovely, and we all made a heavy penny. Everyone's happy. Everyone gets what they wanted most. I didn't get what I wanted. Bast said flatly. Not yet, the bearded soldier said, reaching into his pocket and pulling out a purse that made a weighty chink as he bounced it in his palm. Grab a piece of fire and we'll divvy this up. Bast looked around the circle of firelight, making no move to take a seat. Then he began to chant again as he pointed at things randomly. A nearby stone, a log, a hatchet. Fallow Pharaoh ash and oak, bide and borrow, chimney smoke. He ended pointing at the fire. He stepped close, stooped low, and pulled out a branch longer than his arm. The far end was a solid knot of glowing coal. Hell, you're drunker than I am, the bearded soldier guffawed. That's not what I meant when I said grab a piece of fire. The blonde soldier rolled with laughter. Bast looked down at the two men. After a moment, he began to laugh too. It was a terrible sound, jagged and joyless. It was no human laugh. Boy! The bearded man interrupted sharply, his expression no longer amused. What's the matter with you? It began to rain again, a gust of wind spattering heavy drops against Bast's face. His eyes were dark and intent. There was another gust of wind that made the end of the branch flare a brilliant orange. The hot coal traced a glowing arc through the air as Bast began to point it back and forth between the two men, chanting. Barrel, barley, stone and stave, wind and water, misbehave. Bast finished with the burning branch pointing at the bearded man. His teeth were red in the firelight. His expression was nothing like a smile. Epilogue. A silence of three parts. It was night again. The Waystone Inn lay in silence, and it was a silence of three parts. The most obvious part was a hollow, echoing quiet made by things that were lacking. If there had been a steady rain, it would have drummed against the roof, sluiced the eaves, and washed the silence slowly out to sea. If there had been lovers in the beds of the inn, they would have sighed and moaned and shamed the silence into being on its way. If there had been music, but no. 
Of course there was no music. In fact, there were none of these things, and so the silence remained. Outside the waystone, the noise of distant revelry blew faintly through the trees. A strain of fiddle, voices, stomping boots and clapping hands, but the sound was slender as a thread, and a shift in the wind broke it, leaving only rustling leaves and something almost like the far-off shrieking of an owl. That faded too, leaving nothing but the second silence, waiting like an endless indrawn breath. The third silence was not an easy thing to notice. If you listened for an hour, you might begin to feel it in the chill metal of a dozen locks turned tight to keep the night away. It lay in rough clay jugs of cider and the hollow taproom gaps where chairs and tables ought to be. It was in the mottling ache of bruises that bloomed across a body, and it was in the hands of the man who wore the bruises as he rose stiffly from his bed, teeth clenched against the pain. The man had true red hair, red as flame. His eyes were dark and distant, and he moved with the subtle certainty of a thief in the night. He made his way downstairs. There, behind the tightly shuttered windows, he lifted his hands like a dancer, shifted his weight, and slowly took one single perfect step. The waystone was his, just as the third silence was his. This was appropriate as it was the greatest silence of the three, wrapping the others inside itself. It was deep and wide as autumn's ending. It was heavy as a great river-smooth stone. It was the patient cut-flower sound of a man who is waiting to die. We hope you have enjoyed our presentation of The Wise Man's Fear by Patrick Rothfuss. Copyright 2011 by Patrick Rothfuss. Performed by Nick Podell. Directed by Colleen Willits. Engineered by Troy Harrison. Performance copyright 2011 by Brilliance Audio. All rights reserved. For further information concerning this program or other Brilliance Audio titles, please call the following toll-free number, 1-800-222-3225, or visit our website at www.brilliantsaudio.com. No part of this recording may be played for an audience or reproduced in any form. It may not be streamed, downloaded, broadcast, or copied without written permission. Address all inquiries to Brilliance Audio, P.O. Box 887, Grand Haven, Michigan, 49417. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.